This is Audible. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors, carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled "World War II: A Military and Social History, Part One." The lecturer is Professor Thomas Childers. Professor Childers is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania, where he has been teaching for over 25 years. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the University of Tennessee, and earned his Ph.D. in history from Harvard University. In addition to his position at Penn, Professor Childers has held visiting professorships at Trinity Hall College, Cambridge, Smith College, and Swarthmore College. He is a popular lecturer abroad as well, lecturing in London, Oxford, Berlin, and Munich. Professor Childers is the author and editor of several books on modern German history and the Second World War. He is currently completing a trilogy on the Second World War. The first volume, "Wings of Morning: The Story of the Last American Bomber Shot Down Over Germany in World War II," was praised by Jonathan Yardley in the Washington Post as a powerful and unselfconsciously beautiful book. During his tenure at Penn, Professor Childers has won numerous awards for his work in the classroom, including the Ira T. Abrams Award for Distinguished Teaching and Challenging Teaching in the Arts and Sciences. The Richard S. Dunn Award for Distinguished Teaching in History, and the Senior Class Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching. Professor Childers prepared the course guide that comes with these lectures. The course guide includes a detailed outline of each lecture, timeline, glossary, biographical notes, and bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to follow along with the outlines or review them before or after each lecture. Lecture One: The Origins of the Second World War. Hello, I'm Tom Childers. Welcome to this set of lectures on the Second World War. It's just over 50 years since the guns fell silent and the instruments of surrender were signed, and the Second World War came at last、uh, to an end. 50 years, and yet we are still caught. In its powerful thrall, books, films, magazines, museums are devoted、uh, to the war and assault us from all sides daily. Whether we live in the United States, in Great Britain, in Germany, Japan, or Russia, they summon us to remember, to bear witness to a momentous conflict that shaped the very contours of life in the 20th century. The complex of interrelated conflicts. We call the Second World War is the most widely researched and exhaustively documented conflict in the modern era, and even so, its sheer scope is staggering. Between 1937 and 1945, we estimate—no one knows for certain—55 million lives were consumed by the war. 
dead. Millions more were maimed, wounded, physically and mentally, or they simply vanished or missing, never accounted for. The war was contested across all the world's oceans and seas, leaving a few corners of the globe unscathed. It was fought in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, and drew combatants from North America, Australia, and South Asia. It was, quite simply, the single greatest, largest event in human history. Its political consequences were profound. It fundamentally altered the balance of power in the world, leading to the eclipse of Europe and the emergence of the United States and the Soviet Union as superpowers. It ushered in the Cold War, the ideological and strategic hangover uh, from which we've suffered until this very decade. And it accelerated the retreat of European colonial empires throughout the world, intensifying and in some cases even generating movements of national liberation. It was, like none before it, a total war, a people's war, leaving no element of society, regardless of which society, immune from its demands. It demanded the total mobilization of the nation's industrial, agricultural, financial, and human resources. And when it ended, it had brought fundamental economic and social changes in all of the combatant nations. After 1945, when the millions of veterans began returning home, people expected the states for which they had sacrificed and suffered to provide more in the way of health and homes and education. In Europe, the Second World War marks the real beginning of the welfare state, one of the most important social developments of the 20th century. Historians have devoted a great deal of attention to and can speak with some confidence about the diplomatic origins, the underlying causes of the Second World War. We know a great deal about the economic mobilization for war and the social and political consequences of the war. We have numerous works, and very good ones, about the war's major statesmen, Franklin Roosevelt, Churchill, Stalin, Hitler, Tojo, and so on. We have great works about the leading military figures of the conflict, Eisenhower, Montgomery, Rommel, Yamamoto, Chukov. These are important topics, key issues in understanding the war, and we will certainly address them at some length in these lectures. But there is, for my money, uh, more, another dimension that we ought to explore and that we will explore. Until very recently, we've had surprisingly little about the actual experience of war, the soldiers, the workers, the loved ones left at home, how they experienced the conflict. And so in these lectures, we will examine the origins of the war. Why was it fought? The politics and diplomacy of the participants. What were their goals? And what were the military strategies they employed to reach their objectives? We'll attempt to explain the war's outcome. What did the Allies win? Could the Germans and Japanese have prevailed? We tend to overdetermine the outcomes of these things. But I think for anyone who lived through the war, the outcome was anything but obvious, and certainly at the very beginning. We'll look at the role of economics. There's a growing tendency, I think, to believe that um, uh, we simply outproduced, the Allies simply outproduced the Axis, uh, that economic production doomed uh, the Japanese and the Germans from the very outset. This is the case. We'll also look at the changes in culture and society, primarily in the United States, but in the other combatant nations as well. But in all of this analysis, We don't want to lose sight of, indeed we will not lose sight of, the grim reality that war 
is about fighting and about dying. It confronts us with the most elemental human emotions and experiences. Love, loss, fear, courage, sacrifice, cowardice, cruelty. It reveals humankind at its stunning best, ordinary men and women called upon to and performing extraordinary feats of bravery, of devotion to duty. And it also confronts us with humankind at its barbaric, bestial worst. We think only of the great crimes of the Second World War to be reminded of that. In this regard, it seems to me the Second World War confronts us with a peculiar irony. It is, after all, what Studs Terkel called in quotation marks, the good war. Uh, fought by the Allies to defeat the evil of Hitler's Third Reich and the militarism of Imperial Japan. But as time has passed, we seem to have come to the historical conclusion that the war, because it was fought for a good and just and even noble cause, that the fighting of the war was somehow itself ennobling, elevating, even glamorous. That the combat did not bring with it great agonies and sufferings. That post-traumatic stress syndrome, MIAs, POWs, were somehow uh, unique features of the Vietnam experience. I think this is a, a, a view that subsequent generations of the war have, certainly not those uh, men and women who actually lived through the war. But we have this what I would, a kind of Vietnam syndrome, it seems to me, as we look back at the Second World War, and we have this sort of Mekong Delta-sized body of work about the Vietnam War, uh, that the Second World War and the nature of it, what it meant in human terms, has somehow been lost. We want to, to address ourselves uh, to that experience. And so in these lectures, we will try to probe the full range of wartime experiences. Um, for the Second World War, for the meaning of the Second World War, not, to see it not simply from the perspective of those who directed the conflict, but from the perspective of those millions upon millions who did not make policy or formulate strategy, but found themselves and their families caught in the great and terrifying machinery of war. Let's begin this odyssey then by turning our attention to the origins of the war in Europe, and especially the legacy of the First World War. A hundred years from now, if there are people still around watching films from the teaching company or reading books and thinking about the past, we hope there will be, uh, and they look back at our own troubled star-crossed century, they may conclude that the two world wars uh, of this century, in fact, constituted one great conflict, a kind of second 30 years war, like that of the 17th century, with a 20-year truce between the end of its first installment in 1918 and the beginning of its second in 1939. Now, certainly there are differences, important differences in motives, in objectives, uh, in the nature of the regimes involved, the Soviet Union, after all, was not Tsarist Russia. The Third Reich was not the Imperial Germany of the Kaiser and so on. There were differences in the means with which the war was fought, the nature of combat, the machinery, the technology, the weapons. And we will analyze those differences uh, down the road in subsequent lectures. But it might be said with some justice that the origins of the Second World War in Europe are to be found actually in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace at Versailles, in the way the Great War, as the First World War was commonly called after 1918, was concluded. In the summer of 1918, 
the German public was led to believe that victory was within sight. There was light at the end of the tunnel. After four long years of suffering, enormous casualties, uh, a mobilization of resources that uh, had never been seen before in Europe, uh, that the great offensive that the German army launched in the spring of 1918 was going to bring the long-awaited and ultimate victory of German arms. Information was tightly controlled. Censorship was uh, in place uh, in Germany, as it was in all the uh, combatant countries during the First World War. And over and over through the course of the war, the public, despite the long list of casualty figures in the papers uh, underneath the, the black iron cross that appeared with frightening regularity, um, there was the sense that the war was going very well, that victory was within their grasp. And certainly this last great offensive in the spring of 1918 was to be that victory that was going to deliver the ultimate victory to Germany before the impact of the Americans could be felt uh, on the war in Europe. Then, in October, the high command made a startling announcement. An announcement that Germany had in fact surrendered. The country was in shock. How could this be? How could it be that the offensive that was going to bring Germany and the Kaiseritz victory had led instead to, some, to an armistice, that the Germans had asked for an armistice? The sudden collapse left many in Germany believing that the army had, at the last moment, been stabbed in the back, that some sort of combination of domestic enemies, left-wing social democrats, the Catholic Center Party, the liberal parties dominated the right wing in Germany believed by Jews, had somehow stabbed the victorious army in the back at the crucial moment, just as victory was within their grasp. That was the only possible explanation. After all, in 1918, in the fall of 1918, Germany, uh, German troops were deep inside France. Russia had surrendered. Uh, the war on the Eastern Front had been won. We tend to think that uh, Germany could not, and this is important as we think about the Second World War and the German invasion of, of the Soviet Union, that the Germans could not have prevailed, that somehow this was, a, this was a great folly. But, of course, the German experience was they had triumphed on the Eastern Front in the First World War, at great cost, certainly. But in 1918, the war in the East uh, had been won. The peace had not been won. The Bolsheviks were running amok in the East. The Germans didn't know what to do, but they had prevailed. The war there had ended successfully. German troops were still deep inside France. Indeed, Paris was still uh, within marching distance of the German lines. And Germany itself was untouched. Its in industries were still intact. There was no foreign soldier anywhere close to the German frontier. For the German public, this was a triumphant Germany. And yet, suddenly, in November... An armistice had been signed, asked for by the Germans. The Kaiser uh, had passed into exile in Holland, where he would be passed in 1940 by German troops uh, on their way into Belgium. Um, the war was over. And the proud German Empire, the greatest military power in Europe, possibly in the world, in 1914, had not, had not only not seized uh, their objectives, it apparently lost the war. And a revolution had been proclaimed, overthrowing the old imperial regime, and a democratic republic had been established by a coalition of social democrats, liberals, uh, and the Catholic Center Party. 
the outsiders of the old empire were now the insiders. The world had been turned upside down. Then, in early 1919, the Germans were summoned to Versailles, to the uh, ornate palace of the Bourbons just outside of Paris for the peace treaty. It was a convening of the the diplomats of the combatant nations uh, along the lines of the Congress of Vienna, which had ended the Napoleonic Wars uh, a century before. The German representatives were summoned to Versailles not to negotiate. This this would be no negotiated uh, settlement, but rather to hear the terms of the victorious allies. For their part, the Allies, after suffering four long years of untold casualties, were determined to weaken Germany and to provide for some sort of international system of collective security. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, David Lloyd George of Great Britain, Clemenceau of France, Orlando of Italy, all came to the conference determined uh, to uh, make the world a safer place. This, after all, was the, the war to end all wars, the war, the, war, the war to make the world safe for democracy. And for the Europeans, certainly, what this meant above all else was to find a way to provide for collective security and to weaken Germany at the same time. Germany, after all, had held Europe uh, at bay for four years, came very close to winning uh, the Great War, and now something simply had to be done. Woodrow Wilson arrived with um, a more idealistic agenda, certainly his idea that one of the causes of the Great War had been uh, that was frustrated nationalism, that what one needed uh, was the national self-determination of peoples, allow the individual nations of Europe, the peoples of Europe, to have their own states, their own nation states, and that this would provide for some sort of stable peace. But they were all agreed that Germany somehow had to be weakened. They began with a series of um, actions. The first was to detach territory. The Germans simply had to lose something from the Great War. So a portion of Germany, of German territory in the east, was taken uh, to create the new Polish state which came into existence, a state which hadn't existed uh, in the, at the outset of the war, a Polish corridor established between East Prussia and Germany proper to give this new Polish state access to the sea, uh, meant that Germany had lost territory to this new successor state, as it was called, successor to the old Austro-Hungarian and German empires. Danzig, uh, the largest German city in the area on the coast, the port city of Danzig, uh, was to be given over to the League of Nations to administer. Mamel on the Baltic was handed over to Lithuania. Alsace and Lorraine, the two provinces on the border of Germany and France, bounced back again uh, to France in 1919. They had been taken from France by the Germans uh, in 1871. Uh, So that territory in the West was lost. The mineral-rich, industrial-rich Tsar region on the German-French frontier was also to be administered by the League of Nations for a period of 15 years. So these losses in Europe uh, meant that the German state that would come out of the First World War uh, had suffered significant uh, territorial losses. They also lost territory in Silesia, a coal mining area in eastern Germany that was important uh, to them. One doesn't usually think about this in terms of uh, the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles, but Germany also lost overseas territories. The German colonies in Africa were distributed to the British and the French, 
while in the South Pacific, Japan would be the heir to Germany's uh, South Pacific colonies. The Marshall, Gilbert, and Mariana Island chains were German. It sort of always strikes one, I think, as, as somewhat odd to think about uh, a place in the South Pacific called Kaiser Wilhelmsland, uh, but it certainly existed. There's the Bismarck Archipelago. And these island chains, the Marshalls, the Gilberts, the Marianas, uh, went over to Japan as a result uh, of the outcome of the, the Great War. In addition to these territorial losses, the Germans were also forced to pay reparations. All of the allied victor states, particularly France and Great Britain, had begun the war as creditor states and ended the war as debtor nations. They had gone heavily into debt to the United States. We had loaned money to uh, the allies um, before our entry into the war uh, so that the British... The French approached the Treaty of Versailles with the notion that the, and the Belgians as well, who had suffered under German occupation for the entire duration of the war, the Germans now were going to have to pay. Lloyd George had run uh, a campaign just prior to the domestic campaign in Britain, just prior to the convening of the Versailles negotiations, um, in which he said they were going to make the Germans, it was going to squeeze Germany until the pips squeak. This was the so-called khaki election where Lloyd George talked a tough line about just exactly what they were going to extract from the Germans. The Germans were going to have to pay. There was no final uh, amount set. It was, in effect, a blank check. But the Germans were going to be required to pay billions upon billions of dollars. This reparations issue would become... I think the most poisonous issue in European politics in the interwar years, at least down to the early, the early 1930s. Poisoning relations between France and Britain on the one hand and uh, Germany on the other, and also complicating relations between the United States uh, and its former European partners. What, for the Germans, what insult was added to injury because not only was Germany forced now to pay reparations, But the Allies added a new clause to the treaty, the so-called War Guilt Clause. The War Guilt Clause was added as a justification for making Germany pay. Germany now was forced to to accept full responsibility for the outbreak of hostilities in 1914. Now, there there was a lot of difference of opinion about who was ultimately responsible and so on. But as far as the Treaty of Versailles was concerned, the Germans were responsible. There was a war guilt clause, and this was the basis for Germany's uh, payment of reparations. So the loss of territory, payment of reparations, and then a series of military clauses were added to the treaty, which also uh, were meant to weaken uh, Germany's position. The great German army, this German army which had been the pride of German society, which had fought successfully for four years uh, during the course of the war, was now to be reduced to no more than 100,000 troops, just enough to maintain domestic stability in Germany. The Germans were not allowed to have an air force uh, at all. There were to be no tanks, no heavy artillery. The German army was to be stripped of its ability to make war. It was there to to maintain domestic order, pure and simple. A German navy was certainly allowed to exist, but could have no more than six warships and, most important for the Allies, no submarines. The U-boats had been one of the, the great problems for the Allies during the war, and they were in no mood to tolerate the existence of this arm of the, the German military. So no submarines. All of these 
aspects of the treaty were bitterly resented by the Germans uh, and would all become quite controversial during the course of the, the 1920s and early 30s. That, and many believed, in fact, almost before the ink was dry, that the treaty probably had been too harsh. And yet there's a curious thing about the treaty. There was no occupation of Germany. After four years of bitter combat on a scale that the Europeans had never experienced, the war ends, the Kaiser goes into exile, a new, Ger- a new German government is declared, and there's no occupation. Allied troops were certainly sent into the Rhineland for a sort of temporary occupation, and in the Rhineland, this area of Germany west of the Rhine River on the border of Belgium and, uh, and France, was to be a demilitarized zone, but no real occupation. There were no Allied troops marching off to occupy Berlin and so on. One of the major differences between uh, the outcome of the First War uh, and the second. Finally, a system of collective security seen as absolutely crucial was to be provided for by a new institution. And this was one of the brain uh, children of, of Woodrow Wilson, and that's the League of Nations. An international organization which would help to negotiate differences between the uh, nations of the world, which would hopefully prevent the outbreak of great tragedies such as the, the war that uh, the world had just endured. So the League of Nations uh, would be present uh, to, to mitigate trouble uh, after the end of hostilities. But this wasn't going to be enough. The French, in particular, were concerned. After all, the Germans were still just across the river. Um, what were they going to do? The English could go back across the Channel. The Americans could drift off back across uh, the Atlantic. But the French had the Rhine, and that was it. And so for the French, and this is, this is the underlying story of French policy through the 1920s and into the 1930s, is a search for security. There were still 20 million Germans too many, uh, as far as the French were concerned. And so what were they going to do? Well, at the meetings at Versailles, Wilson and Lloyd George pledged to the French a guarantee of French sovereignty and French territory. There was to be an Anglo-American guarantee. So when the conference came to an end, these attempts to weaken Germany and then to establish a system of collective security were all in place. And yet there was trouble. Trouble almost instantly. Indeed, problems with the treaty and the system of collective security emerged at once. Predictably, this was a surprise to absolutely nobody, the Germans, regardless of their political affiliation, whether they were on the radical left from the communists or on the radical right or the conservatives, the monarchists, all German political parties thought the treaty was a dictated peace, that it was unfair, that it was an abomination. The treaty alienated the Germans. They saw it as a diktat, was the German term. It means a dictated peace. They resented all the provisions, not some of them, but all of them. Particularly, I think, the war guilt clause uh, and the reparations. Also, the way the war ended in this curious fashion, the German army was successful, remarkably successful, in diverting responsibility for the armistice away from the army itself. It had been the army that had called for the armistice. And yet, the army managed to distance itself from the actual surrender and then certainly from the Treaty of Versailles. The responsibility for Versailles was the new republican government that had been established by the revolution. And so, as the Germans came home from the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles where the treaty was negotiated, 
the, the stab in the back legend had already taken root. A sense that the German army, there had to be some explanation. Germany had been sold out. The army stabbed in the back. The right wing in particular in Germany was convinced of this. And this stab in the back legend, the way the war ended, the Treaty of Versailles served to delegitimize the new democratic government. The Republican government in Germany uh, was born with a heavy burden of responsibility for something that it had not, in fact, it had not been in power during the war, whereas the Kaiser, the army, and so on managed to sidestep that responsibility. Although Germany in the late 1920s would try to fulfill the treaty, it was never accepted in Germany. Its validity was always questioned. It became simply a mantra of all political parties. That was predictable. What was not predictable and what came as a great shock and a blow to the treaties uh, and the international system of collective security was that the United States Senate failed to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. The United States would not become a member of the League of Nations. It was a preview of American isolationism that would dominate American policy in the 1930s. So that at the very outset, one of the major pieces foreseen at Versailles of this great puzzle, this great system, was absent. The United States failed to participate, and not only did we fail to enter the League of Nations to ratify the Treaty of Versailles, the Senate also failed to approve the Anglo-American guarantee to France. It was an entangling alliance. This was, uh, we didn't want any part of, of being involved in European problems. The upshot of this was that when the United States failed to, to ratify the guarantee to France, so did Great Britain. Britain was not going to do it without the United States. And so at the very beginning, already by, 19, by 1920, these key factors uh, in the international system, the anticipated international system, were absent. The anticipated collective security system was gravely weakened, if not utterly undone, almost from the beginning. The United States would remain heavily involved in European financial affairs in the 1920s, but resolutely refused to enter into any sort of collective security arrangement. Collective security was also further weakened by a growing British conviction in the 1920s that the Treaty of Versailles had been, as the Germans maintained, too harsh, and that the real problem for stability in Europe wasn't the Germans who were defeated, but rather the, with the French, the vindictiveness of the French, that the French were now going to use this opportunity to establish their hegemony on the continent. Uh, this is a theme we'll come back to uh, in the future. But cooperation between Britain and France was not something that one could take for granted, uh, despite their cooperation during the Great War. And with over a million dead and wounded in the First War, the British were extremely wary of being drawn into, con into a new conflict. That was especially the case since the Dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa had become separate members of the League of Nations and were even more reluctant to be drawn into continental affairs. Britain therefore favored accommodation with Germany. The British saw the League of Nations not as an instrument to enforce the treaty, but as an instrument for reconciliation, uh, to, to manage conflict, rather to enforce the treaty. Italy uh, was embittered, uh, 
because it had not been rewarded with territories in the Adriatic or in North Africa, the Italians wind up technically a victor state in the First War, although they had, they had suffered grievous losses fighting the Austrians uh, in the south. Uh, Italy came away from the Treaty of Versailles also unhappy, unhappy that it hadn't gotten these territories, uh, former territories in North Africa or in the Adriatic. If Republican Italy, which had fought the war, was disappointed with the outcome, fascist Italy, Mussolini would come to power in 1922, was infuriated uh, by this uh, turn of events. There was also one other absentee at the Treaty of Versailles, and an important one. The new Bolshevik regime in Russia was not invited to the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, to the negotiations at Versailles. The Bolshevik regime in the new Soviet Union was a pariah state, an outsider. Not invited, it's the beginning along with the Allied intervention, an attempt to, to roll back the Bolshevik revolution, to keep the Russians in the war. It's the beginning of a conviction on the part of the new uh, Bolshevik leadership that the Western allies couldn't be relied upon, uh, that the West was not interested in... Um, in real security with the, with the Russians involved. What this meant then, at the conclusion of the decade, was that France was compelled to assume responsibility for enforcing the treaty. What had begun as an attempt to weaken Germany and to provide for a system of collective security had already, even actually by the mid-twenties, resulted in a situation in which France alone felt responsible for finding some sort of workable solution to what it saw as the ongoing German problem. Lecture 2, Hitler's Challenge to the International System. 1933 to 1936. Hello and welcome to our second lecture on the Second World War. In this lecture, we're going to be examining the rise of Hitler's Nazi party in Germany and the ideological and geopolitical wellsprings of his foreign policy. We will trace his step-by-step revision of the Treaty of Versailles and also look at the rhetorical style, the way he presented his demands for change, uh, both to the international community as well as uh, to the German population at home. We've been talking about the problems of the international system and the legacy of the First World War for the background uh, of the Second. And I think what one needs to emphasize, even before Hitler's rise to power, is that already by the end of the 1920s, the international system as it had been envisioned by those diplomats who had framed the Treaty of Versailles was already uh, tattered, if not destroyed, certainly tattered. Without the steadfast support of the British uh, and the United States' absence, France found itself in a position of having to, it felt, maintain, enforce the Treaty of Versailles virtually alone. The British had reneged on their guarantees to France when the United States had failed to ratify the Anglo-American guarantee. And without Russia, France was forced to rely on, it felt, on the new so-called successor states of Eastern Europe, those states that had been created, really, out of the collapse of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, and the German Empire. So that France had 
in the 1920s begun to establish a set of military alliances with Poland, with Czechoslovakia, had made agreement an agreement with U- Yugoslavia and with Romania in the east, and also with Belgium uh, in the west. But these states, particularly those in the east, were hardly a substitute, hardly a replacement for Russia. The big problem for France was to find a counterbalance to German power in the east. The old Tsarist empire had provided this for the French in the pre-war era, uh, and now uh, the Soviet Union was not seen as a reliable alternative. So France struggles all the way through the 1920s, trying to find a way to to manage this, this situation. In the 20s, and certainly after uh, the mid-1920s, these problems were largely manageable. In 1924, uh, the German government had embarked upon what was called the policy of fulfillment. Gustav Stresemann was the chancellor briefly of Germany in 1923. He would become foreign minister of Germany in 24 and would dominate German uh, foreign policy through the last portion of the 1920s. Stresemann was convinced, as were all German politicians, that the Treaty of Versailles was brutally unfair, that it had to be revised. But, he argued to his friends at home and to the international community, Germany's attempts to frustrate the Allies, the Germans from 1920 down to 1923, had not tried, had paid, tried not to pay reparations, to fudge this and that, complained certainly uh, that the, just continued to argue that the treaty was unfair and to, to be obstreperous. Stresemann argued that a new tact was now required. What Germany should do was to follow what he called the policy of fulfillment. Erfüllungspolitik is the German term. What this meant was to make a good faith effort to fulfill all of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, no matter how unfair they were seen as being. And by that good faith attempt, Germany would demonstrate, even to the French, that the treaty had been, in fact, impossible, that its terms could not be fulfilled, and therefore a revision of the treaty would take place, but through negotiation. Not confrontation, negotiation. In this sense, Germany, between 1924 and 1925, entered into a series of international agreements which reintegrated Germany into the community of nations. In 1925, Germany signed the Locarno Treaty in which it basically recognized uh, the frontiers that had been redrawn in the West. In 1926, Germany applied for membership and was received in the League of Nations, something Germany had not been allowed to do previously. In 1928, Germany would uh, be a signatory to the so-called Kellogg-Briand Pact, uh, a non-aggression pact in which all states pledged themselves to resolve all of their differences amicably. I think one could find a similar non-aggression pact in almost every decade of the 20th century and beyond. Uh, looking backward, um, one no more effective than the other. The United States during this period was certainly active in economic matters. The United States had become involved with the so-called Dawes Plan, named for the American Charles Dawes, the vice president to help Europe settle, to sort out its reparations problems, its war debt problems. Uh, But the United States still remained on the sidelines. It was not the party to the various treaties that would be signed in Europe, other than this Kellogg-Briand Pact. But all of this attempt at negotiation on the part of Stresemann, this attempt to reintegrate Germany into the community of nations, which had taken up much of the last part of the 1920s, would all come to a crashing halt when the stock market crashed 
uh, on Wall Street in the fall of 1929. The Great Depression would hit Germany like a steamroller. Germany, more than any other country other than the United States, was powerfully affected by the Great Depression. Germany was quickly exposed to, because Germany had taken many short-term loans from private sources in the United States, those loans were withdrawn suddenly in 1929 and early 1930, and the impact of the Depression was uh, astounding. Germany's unemployment rate uh, would jump massively between 1928 and 1932. By 1932, one-third of the German workforce was either unemployed or working drastically reduced hours, a third. In addition, a tidal wave of failed businesses, especially of small shops, and farm foreclosures simply swamped the country. The businesses failed right and left. Those German businesses that had somehow managed to get through the turbulent post-war era up to 1924, a hyperinflation in Germany of absolutely hyperbolic proportions, managed to get through a harsh period of stabilization in the latter part of the 20s, now found themselves swept away uh, by the Great Depression between 1928 and 1933. As a consequence, these these economic problems fed what in Germany was called an anti-system, anti-republican sentiment, an anti-republican bitterness that held the Democratic Republic of Germany responsible for these failed economic problems. Now not only was the German government, this Republican government established by revolution in 1918 with a new constitution in 1919, not Not only was it held responsible for the loss of the Great War and the Treaty of Versailles, it seemed to have delivered to the Germans one economic crisis after another, with the Great Depression being the final punctuation mark uh, on uh, that unhappy economic development. Adolf Hitler's National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP, had less than 3% of the vote in 1928 before the effects of the Depression hit Germany. In 1930, the vote jumped to 18%. In the summer of 1932, the National Socialists, the Nazis, received about 37% of the vote. It was the most votes, the largest percentage of votes the Nazis would ever receive in anything like free elections. And in uh, the elections at the end of the year, uh, in in November, the Nazi vote actually declined. Uh, This very difficult coalition that the Nazis had put together of diverse social forces, put together largely on the basis of what we would think of as negative campaigning. What are you opposed to? We're opposed to it too. Are you unhappy? Well, we're more unhappier than you are. We're going to solve your problems. Hitler was appointed chancellor on January 30th, 1933, in one of, I think, one of the cruelest ironies of all of human history. At just the point when the Nazis themselves believed that their constituency was fragmenting, coming apart at the seams, Hitler was appointed chancellor, not on the, uh, on the shoulders of a, a groundswell of public support, but rather as a result of a backdoor intrigue uh, with President Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, the great hero of the First World War. There was nothing in the National Socialist approach to foreign policy during Hitler's rise to power that would necessarily have distinguished it from other German parties. It was a bit more radical, but it was opposed to Versailles. So were the communists, so were the conservatives, so were the liberals, so were the social democrats who signed the treaty. Uh, The Nazis, however, hammered away. They'd never been in power in Germany. Uh, As a consequence, they were able to attack, relentlessly attack the failures of the other parties, relentlessly attacked the failed uh, Republican government, 
And, of course, the Nazis put forward a promise to restore Germany to its rightful position in the world. Now, other parties had talked about this as well, but they were talking about compromise with the West. Could we see if we could get the reparations done away with? Just as in domestic politics, sober politicians would talk to their economic advisors and say, well, in order to pull Germany out of the Depression, we must do this, we must do that. Um, and then there would be a, a huge debate, of course. No, one can't do this. That's uh, if, you, if you try to reduce prices, this will happen, that will happen. The Nazi position to all of this was, when people pointed out the contradictions of their own economic policy, the Nazis would simply respond, we will make it work. There will be a triumph of the will over all of the sort of naysaying liberals and social democrats and so on. We will make it work. And that same forceful projection of determination uh, was also there in foreign policy. They would not simply revise the treaty. They would break the chains of Versailles. They would restore uh, Germany to its rightful position in Europe and in the world. Upon coming to power, for the first two years, really, of the National Socialist regime in 1933 and 1934, Hitler's attention was largely focused on domestic policy, establishing the framework of the National Socialist dictatorship, defeating his domestic enemies, establishing really the foundations of what we would think of as a totalitarian regime. But Hitler would also have departures in foreign policy that were quite uh, important. But before turning to the specifics of Nazi policy, I want to say a few words about Hitler's overall conception of the international system, his conception of international politics, what he, how he wanted to operate, how he viewed the world, uh, and how he hoped to see what his objectives were and how he hoped to see those objectives realized. There's a tendency, I think, to view Hitler as, especially in his foreign policy, as a madman, as a megalomaniac bent on world domination. Um, there was a, f- a song within the Nazi party that was sung during the rise to power, the lyrics of which were, Heute da hört uns Deutschland und morgen die ganze Welt. That means today Germany listens to us, tomorrow the whole world. But just a slight change of wording in German, they would sing, Heute gehört uns Deutschland und morgen die ganze Welt, which means today Germany belongs to us and tomorrow the whole world. I think there is a tendency to think that this is the way Hitler in his foreign policy operated. But in fact, Hitler was far more cautious. He operated from a notion of the international system that was quite concise for him. He believed that the world would ultimately be divided into four major power blocks, a multipolar world, to use the post-World War II terminology for it. Germany's rightful position would be to dominate the European continent. It would be the great hegemonic power of Europe. The British would be able to maintain their international empire, their uh, global empire. Hitler had a very, saw Britain in a, in a very favorable light, was, uh, I think, obsessed with them in many ways, frustrated with the British, as we will see. Uh, but in his overall thinking, Germany was to dominate the land mass of Europe. Britain was to have its international uh, empire. The Japanese would be the dominant power in Asia. They were, Hitler liked to call them, the Aryans of the East. Um, the, Japan would dominate Southeast Asia and the Pacific. 
And then finally, there would be the United States, which would dominate the Western Hemisphere. In the long run, Hitler believed that the United States was doomed, too much racial mixture uh, and so on, and this would ultimately bring the United States down. But in terms of the way he operated and thought, these were the four great uh, blocks of power with which he had to deal. For Germany, his goals were also clear. He spelled them out in Mein Kampf, uh, his, his political testament autobiography, uh, which he wrote in prison in 1924, published in 1925. And then he, in a second book, a book that was never published during his lifetime, appeared only after the Second World War, called sometimes Hitler's Second Book or uh, Hitler's Secret Book, in which he dealt very specifically with foreign policy. What were Germany's objectives? What did Hitler want for Germany? What was he trying to achieve? At one level, Hitler's goals were geopolitical, almost traditional. Germany, he felt, needed Lebensraum, or living space. The German population needed to increase, uh, to grow, and Germany, which already was not economically self-sufficient in 1914, had imported about 20% of its food, and hence was successfully blockaded, virtually starved by the British after 1916. Hitler believed that Germany should be economically self-sufficient, capable of withstanding any sort of allied blockade a la the First World War. Lebensraum then, and where was that living space to come? Well, it was to come in the east. Germany would have to expand into the so-called successor states, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and of course beyond, uh, beckoned the Ukraine, uh, the uh, great uh, agricultural areas of now the Soviet Union. So living space, and what the Germans called economic autarky, that is economic self-sufficiency. In addition, however, there was an ideological dimension to Hitler's foreign policy, an ideological level which saturated these geopolitical ideas. So far, in thinking about what he he thought about for Germany, there was nothing really to distinguish it terribly from uh, some of the more uh, radical framers of uh, or advisors to the Kaiser. During the First World War, the idea of a Großdeutsches Reich, a greater German Reich, uh, with territory in the East was quite common among uh, many on the German right during the First World War. But, But for Hitler there was the second dimension. The new greater German Reich, greater German empire that was to be created, that was to dominate the European continent, was to be a racially pure empire. This racial, he believed that Germany was the, what one might call the last best racial hope of mankind. He never, he didn't argue, this is a point that we will, we will come back to when we see the terrible consequences of this ideology. Hitler didn't believe that the Germans were a master race, and Herrenvolk is the term, in the 1920s, 30s, or 40s. But the historic goal of Germany was to concentrate as best it could to bring together the racial stock, the undiluted racial stock of the Aryans, these sort of blonde-haired, blue-eyed um, uh, types, and that the Germans were best able to do this. This meant creating a Reich, a Central European Empire, that would be free of Slavs, so the, the Polish uh, or Czech or Slovak elements would have to be uh, expelled or simply done away with. And, of course, for Hitler, central to this, too, was the idea of the Jews. The Jews would have to go. 
they would have to be eliminated. He talked about this in general terms. The Jews would have to go. It was not simply, however, a racial notion. Hitler always talked, when he talked about foreign policy or domestic policy in many cases as well, about what he called the threat of Judeo-Bolshevism. Germany, indeed the world, was threatened by this Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy with its home, its center in the Soviet Union. Therefore, it was to be one of the great objectives of the National Socialist State of the Third Reich to conduct a crusade against Judeo-Bolshevism. So, a war for living space in the East, which would obviously mean, and he didn't believe... He didn't believe that these goals could be achieved peacefully. He believed, and this is much of what Nazi ideology was about, in a kind of social Darwinistic notion of the survival of the fittest, that uh, life was struggle, that, the, the, that international politics was the struggle of nations, and that it would be Germany's task to expand to the East, and that did not mean through negotiation. It meant war. He calculated, he, he talked quite often about the prospect of war with Poland or with Czechoslovakia, and then ultimately beyond that, a war against the Soviet Union. A war not only for living space, but also as seen as a, an ideological crusade against what he saw as Judeo-Bolshevism. Needless to say, what this meant was not a revision of the Treaty of Versailles. This meant the destruction of the Treaty of Versailles. It meant removing all of the fetters of this hated treaty. This is the way, this is the, the set of concepts with which he worked. He was an opportunist. Uh, he was, uh, capable of making an alliance on Monday, breaking it on Tuesday, uh, making short-term agreements with, as we will see, the Soviet Union in 1939, uh, when it suited his purposes. I'll need to shift, uh, a bit later on. But these concepts, these notions, were clearly behind Hitler's foreign policy from the beginning of his career down to the last days in, in the bunker in 1945. In 1933, when Hitler came to power, and really into 1934, he was in no position to embark upon an adventurous foreign policy. Instead, those years, as I said earlier, were devoted largely to a consolidation of his control over Germany itself. But one does see in 1933-34 some previews of Nazi foreign policy and also his modus operandi, the way Hitler operated. None better, I think, than his handling of the disarmament conference of 1932-33 and the League of Nations. When Hitler came into power in January of 1933, Germany was already a participant in an international disarmament conference. It had, been, it had begun in 1932. Uh, Hitler comes to power. And really his first initiative on the international scene had to do with this disarmament conference. Now you'll recall that the Treaty of Versailles had restricted Germany's armed forces considerably. 100,000 troops was the maximum, no tanks, no artillery, no air force, and so on. At the disarmament conference, Hitler instructed his representatives to make a daring proposal. Germany, he argued, would completely disarm, give up all of its armaments, all 100,000, um, if France, Great Britain, Japan, the United States, and so on would do the same. Well, this was an offer that he correctly assumed would be refused, and in, in fact, France balked. And as soon as France did, 
Hitler had exactly what he wanted. He went back to the German population and said, you see, the Treaty of Versailles, this disarmament, this is all a ruse. This is not about equality. This is not about disarmament. This is not about world peace. This is one more attempt to enforce this corrupt and miserable treaty. We offered them complete disarmament. If that's what they wanted, they could have had it. But they didn't want it. All they wanted to do was to keep Germany in this position of, of this oppressed condition. Hitler then withdrew from the conference with great fanfare and withdrew from the League of Nations also in 1933, which had sponsored and was involved with, with the conference. This was absolutely quintessential Hitler. On the one hand, it's aggressive. He's withdrawing from this disarmament conference. On the other hand, Hitler always cloaked, always cloaked, right down to the time the first shots were fired on September 1st, 1939. Always cloaked his very aggressive policies in a rhetorical garb that emphasized Germany's demand for justice, Germany's demand for equality, Germany's demand to be treated as an equal in in the international community. Germany should no longer be a second-class citizen. This played very, very well in Germany, and over time, it also had a corrosive effect on the resolve of the Allies, especially in Great Britain. Those two, his withdrawal from the Disarmament Conference and his withdrawal from the League of Nations then, really give us a glimpse of the way Hitler liked uh, to operate. In 1934, he surprised a great many people by signing a 10-year non-aggression pact with Poland. Now, for those people who'd been reading Mein Kampf or who had listened to Hitler's speeches, the discussion of Lebensraum, you think, well, Lebensraum is going to come to the East. It's got to be Poland. They've got to be victim number one. And yet, in 1934, uh, the National Socialist regime signs a non-aggression pact with a Polish state. What this did was to strike a blow at the French alliance system. France, as you'll recall, had been trying to establish a series of alliances with the so-called successor states. Poland was the key to this, with its frontier right, uh, its common frontier with Germany. And now the Germans had plucked Poland from this French alliance system with this non-aggression pact. In 1935, Hitler was in a much stronger position domestically. Paul von Hindenburg, the old Reich president, uh, passed away in 1934, and Hitler was able to assume the position of Reich president and also uh, head of the armed forces. The German army swore an oath of allegiance directly to Hitler. His position at home was very, very solid. Hitler had been, ever since his withdrawal from the non-aggression conference, Hitler had been making, I suppose we would say that now they would be called leaks uh, of information, that Germany having withdrawn from the disarmament conference, was also not going to abide by the disarmament clauses of the Treaty of Versailles, that the Allies had already lost whatever justification they had for this. Then in March of 1935, Hitler made a formal announcement. Germany had, in fact, he he revealed, been building an air force, a Luftwaffe, as it was called, and would henceforth move on uh, to do this in a formal, public way. Germany was going to build an air force. Why? Britain had an air force. France had an air force. Poland had an air force. Germany needed an air force just for its own protection. This was not an act of aggression. This was not uh, a, a provocative act. This was simply Germany declaring that it needed to defend itself. 
one week later, when there had been no no real outcry, there was a there was a certain amount of blustering and complaint in the League of Nations in Paris and in London, but nothing more than that. One week later, Hitler announced his intention to introduce conscription. He was going to build an army, he announced, of half a million men and then continue to expand it thereafter. Once again, the League protested, but there was no action taken. No action from Paris, no action from Britain, and now what Hitler had done by 1935 then was he had completely destroyed the disarmament clauses of the Treaty of Versailles. Then, then, in 1935, the cruelest blow of all for France, the two powers that were really seen by the French as, and the world as the enforcers of the treaty, France foremost, and more reluctantly, Great Britain, now suffered a real split. In June of 1935, France was horrified to discover that Great Britain had entered into a naval agreement with Germany. The British had done this without consulting either the French or the Italians, who at this point were still seen as, as uh, potential allies. And in this agreement, Great Britain recognized Germany's right, right to build a navy up to 35% of Britain's surface tonnage and 60% of British submarine strength. In other words, what the British had done was to cut a deal with Hitler. In a sense, what this reveals is the British had already given up on Versailles. They'd given up on disarmament. They'd given up on the enforcing any sort of military uh, strictures on Germany and opted to cut their own deal with Germany on the one thing that really mattered most to Britain, and that was the Navy. So they'd now, if, if Versailles had any breath left in it at all, this uh, blow from Britain uh, certainly, I think, was, was the end for Versailles. In March of 1936, then, Hitler sent troops into the Rhineland. It was French territory, or German territory, rather. Um, but as you'll recall from the Treaty of Versailles, it had been de- a demilitarized zone. It was crucial to the French position in Europe that that zone in Germany remained demilitarized because this gave the French a clear avenue into the heartland of Germany, directly to the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of the country, without any opposition. As soon as the Germans sent troops back into the Rhineland, as soon as they remilitarized the Rhineland, France's ability to influence events in Germany, not to mention to protect their alliance partners in the east, was gone. French military commanders urged caution, and the British opposed military intervention. The matter was referred to the League of Nations, which did nothing. The Germans, we now know, the German high command, had not been in favor of this move at all. In fact, Hitler had been told by his military commanders, if the French send a regiment out there, we'll be humiliated. We couldn't possibly defend ourselves against the French, who had the largest army in Europe at the time. Hitler gambled. He won. The remilitarization of the Rhineland represents now, I think, this relentless pressure that Hitler was, was asserting. Pressure constantly, all in one direction, revision, revision, revision of the treaty or destruction of the treaty. And his prestige in Germany and in the international community soared. Not only the remilitarization of the Rhineland in 1936, but also what was the great coup for 
Hitler's foreign policy, not in any power political way, but in terms of German prestige in 1936, was, of course, the holding of the Olympic Games uh, in Berlin. We tend to think of this. There's one story that Americans seem to know about the 1936 Olympics, and that's, of course, Jesse Owens' uh, terrific performance there and the embarrassment it caused Hitler to have to, to acknowledge that here's a black man, an African-American. How does this fit with his racial notion of Aryans and so on? But for the German point of view, the Olympics were a terrific success. The world had come to Berlin. Germany was back. And not only that, the Germans won the 1936 Olympics. Uh, on points, all of these obscure events, uh, not the f- track and field things that the Americans dominated. But by 1936, the Treaty of Versailles and the system of collective security that the framers of that treaty had sought to create was largely dead. Largely dead. Lecture 3, The Failure of the International System. Hello and welcome to our third lecture on the Second World War. In this lecture, we're going to focus on the reasons for the failure of the international system to meet the threat of German foreign policy in the 1930s. We'll examine the dilemmas of British, French, and Soviet foreign policy as well as the problem of isolationism confronted by Franklin Roosevelt in the United States. Then finally, we'll conclude with the treatment of the major international crises of 1938 and 1939 as Europe moved relentlessly toward the outbreak of war. In 1936, with the Olympic Games, the remilitarization of the Rhineland, Germany had announced its return as a major power in Europe. In addition, in 1936, Hitler would introduce the so-called four-year plan, an economic plan to make Germany self-sufficient within four years, uh, economically self-sufficient, to confront the dangers of an increasingly challenging international situation. And as I said in the last lecture, I think it's extremely important to understand over and over and over again in 1936, 37, 38, Hitler would constantly emphasize his desire for peace. Anyone who thinks that I want war, he would routinely say, uh, doesn't understand anything at all about me personally. After all, unlike some of the other statesmen of the period, I was a soldier at the front during the First World War, during the Great War. I know what it was like. I know what the suffering of the trenches was like, and I don't want to plunge Europe back into anything like this. All I want is for Germany to be restored to its rightful place, in the international community, for Germany once again to be the major power that it should be and to be treated like an equal. By 1936, he had gone a long way toward restoring Germany. And with each of these steps, which certainly led to the piecemeal dismantling of the Treaty of Versailles, each was couched in the same defensive, reasonable sort of demeanor of his. One tends to think of Hitler as this sort of ranting uh, maniac if we see the film clips, especially if one doesn't understand German. It just sounds sort of like this high-pitched shrieking where the point is to say Deutschland as many times in 30 seconds as he possibly can. But 
invariably, Hitler had a set routine the way he would speak. It was always, he began, he would warm himself up, uh, and it would always begin. When he was talking about foreign policy, there would be a long list of the various privations of Germany, the unfair treatment of Germany, and his very reasonable, uh, peaceful determination uh, to see justice uh, prevail. By 1936, it was clear that the momentum was running all in Hitler's direction. The wartime alliance against Germany had certainly bad, was badly fractured, and France especially found itself uh, in an impossible situation. Confronted by Hitler's relentless pressure, France cast about for allies, cast about for some sort of workable policy to confront this growing German threat. But France in the 1930s was, was paralyzed uh, in, in very important ways. There was political polarization in France during the Depression. The Depression in France was not as dramatic as it was in the United States or Germany with massive unemployment, uh, runs on the banks, failing businesses and so on. It was a long, protracted economic agony. French political life fragmented in the 1930s. The Popular Front government had come to power in 1936 on the left. It was confronted by a, a right wing in France that was convinced that the Third Republic was simply corrupt, incapable of, of managing f French affairs, and so on. And so while there was a clear perception of a German challenge, a fear of German revival, there was simply a lack of any kind of political consensus or political will to, to meet that challenge. Uh, no agreement about the necessity of rebuilding the armed forces or modernizing the armed forces, of ad adopting any sort of new strategy to meet changing times. In fact, it is in the 1930s that one sees what might be called the Maginot mentality really come to the fore. The French in the late 20s had embarked upon uh, a defensive scheme to protect the eastern frontier of France from German invasion. They had begun to erect extraordinary fortifications, a line of fortifications basically from the Swiss frontier up the borders of Alsace and Lorraine over to the Dutch frontier. Enormous concrete pillboxes. It was state-of-the-art uh, static defensive positions that the French were creating. This Maginot line, as it came to be known, was in fact symptomatic of French problems in the interwar years. French military thinking was fighting the First World War. It was fighting the Great War of the Trenches, a war in which he who occupied the defensive position had uh, the advantage. There was no sense at all of the possibilities of mobility. There was a great deal of discussion in France, in Britain, and in Germany about uh, the use of armor, the use of, of aircraft to create a more mobile, uh, more flexible battlefield. Charles de Gaulle, a young colonel in France, uh, had already written, talked about this. He had been a tank commander in the Great War. Had talked about the need to move beyond this defensive mentality that the French military seemed to be mired in. But uh, it was to no avail. France was simply unwilling at this point to embark upon any more ambitious military program to confront this German challenge. An interesting aspect of the Maginot Line, of course, too, is that the Maginot Line runs up that frontier of Germany over to the Ardennes Forest and stops. It does not continue all along the, uh, the French frontier with Belgium. 
and one thinks, well, this is a kind of curious thing. After all, the Germans had invaded France twice since 1870. Neither time had they tried to come where the Maginot Line was constructed, but instead had used this avenue through the Ardennes and then through Belgium during the First War. But the French did not build uh, the Maginot Line, did not extend the Maginot Line across the Belgian frontier. There are several reasons for this that are, I think, important. One is that France had an ambiguous relationship with Belgium. Belgium, France had guaranteed Belgium, Belgian sovereignty. It was not a military alliance in the sense that there was not an exchange of information, not an exchange of uh, military uh, or a plan for a coordinated military response to a German invasion. France simply had proclaimed its determination to, to guarantee Belgium. So for the French politically, Extending the Maginot Line across the frontier with Belgium was a problematic thing. What would your, Belgi- your Belgian allies think if what you'd done was to build a fortification along their frontier so that you would simply withdraw behind it? So politically, this was seen as a problematic thing for, for, for the French leadership. There were also engineering problems with it as well. As any soldier who had fought on the Western Front in the First World War understood from the experience of trench foot, the water table in northwestern Europe, in this area of the Low Countries, is very high. You dig down a little bit and you hit water. The idea of sinking these enormous concrete fortifications into that terrain was a problem. It was certainly solvable. They could have done it, but it was, it was going to be an engineering feat to do it. It was going to be expensive to do it, and there simply was not in France the will or the determination to do it. France had, in the 1930s, the largest army in Europe, west of the Soviet Union. The French army still enjoyed a tremendous reputation as being the great military force on the continent. And the French, on the one hand, in their foreign policy, constantly strove to find some sort of collective security arrangement that we've been talking about, but militarily, there's no follow-through. There is a sort of sense of, well, we know there's a threat, but what is one to do in the end? They mistrusted the British. This British-French relations from the 20s into the 30s were strained for, for a variety of reasons. The, the British in particular, as we, we talked about in the last lecture, had become increasingly convinced that the Treaty of Versailles was too harsh, that it was unenforceable, and that the best thing to do was to meet legitimate demands of the Germans for change, for revision of the treaty. But each one of those was one more nail in the coffin of of the collective security arrangements that the French had hoped to see. The French then were looking for allies, someone they could trust, someone that they could rely upon in this context. In 1935, a new opportunity presented itself. In 1935, the Soviet Union decided that it, too, was directly challenged by the revival of German power. Stalin was ready for some sort of uh, arrangement with the Western powers, especially after 1934 when Germany had signed this 10-year non-aggression pact with Poland. To the Soviets, this looked like the Germans encroaching into Eastern Europe. Why were they making a deal with the Poles? Was this to be a spearhead for some sort of Polish-German alliance that could be directed against the Soviet Union? And in this sense, uh, Stalin, and being trustful was not one of Stalin's great strong suits, I think, 
Stalin was convinced that something no good was afoot here. He saw this as a threat. And the Soviet Union would reverse its position. It would enter the League of Nations. It would seek to break its status as an outsider state, a pariah nation. And he named as his foreign secretary Maxim Litvinov, who became a major advocate of collective security. Litvinov, more than any other Soviet leader, was associated with building bridges to Western Europe, maintaining some sort of collective security arrangement that would, that would um, protect the Soviet Union and Western Europe from, from German aggression. The Soviet Union also, in the same spirit, in 1935, signed an agreement with Czechoslovakia, in which the Soviets pledged to come to Czechoslovakia's aid if it were attacked by another party. Well, the other party was clearly Germany. Uh, This is what everyone understood. But Stalin didn't trust, did not trust the French or the Czechs terribly about this. France had an agreement with Czechoslovakia, so Stalin wrote language into the agreement with the Czechs which said the Soviet Union would come to Czechoslovakia's aid if France first honored its obligations to the Czechs. Stalin was worried that what the West would do was simply to, was trying to do was to channel German aggression eastward. And so what Stalin didn't want to do was to pledge to go to, the, to Czechoslovakia's aid along with the French only to have the French back out and leave them in the lurch. There was another small problem for the Russians with this aid to Czechoslovakia, and that is that in, 19, in the 1930s and until after the Second World War, there was no common frontier between Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. Uh, they were going to have to pass through Polish territory, and the Poles were not terribly keen on the idea of, of the Red Army passing across Polish territory to aid the Czechs. Nonetheless, this agreement with Czechoslovakia in 1935 indicated that the Soviet Union was interested in becoming the counterweight in the East that France had been seeking. In addition, Stalin instructed the Comintern to urge communist parties in Western Europe to cooperate with socialists and liberals in forming popular front governments. Up until this point, the official Comintern position, the official Soviet position, was that the greatest, the greatest danger in the Western European states was not fascism at all, but rather corrupt social democracy. Now in 1935, they reversed themselves on this and say, well, now what we need to do is to build bridges to the socialists, even the liberals, form popular fronts in order to meet this mounting fascist threat. So one has an uneasy, an uneasy Soviet-French relationship evolving in the mid-1930s as each, mistrustful of the other, but concerned about Germany, tries to, tries to find some way through uh, this thicket. Italy was another possibility for the French. Italy had initially been a uh, likely candidate to help France defend the treaty. Mussolini, one would think, ideologically certainly uh, a brethren of, 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 of Hitler, Uh, Mussolini was in many ways um, Hitler's model. Hitler was always very fond of him, respected him. Uh, But Mussolini in this period was concerned about German penetration of the Balkans. In 1934, the Nazis had attempted to overthrow the Austrian government. The Austrian Nazis had. Whether Berlin was involved directly, one doesn't know, but certainly the Germans weren't unhappy with this. It had led to the assassination of the Austrian dictator Dolphus. Uh, It was a fiasco. The Austrian Nazis were put down. But the French, 
the Italians and the British all rallied to Austria's support, that is, to, to, to support them against the possibility of German encroachment here. Um, so there was some real possibility that Italy could be seen as a counterweight. The Italians didn't want to see German influence extend down into the Balkans. But in late 1935, Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. Uh, and when he did, England and France condemned his move. And in the following year, their opposition to his involvement in the Spanish Civil War, Mussolini came to the aid of Francisco Franco. When this occurred, it simply drove a wedge between fascist Italy and the Western democracies. By 1936, Mussolini was already talking about a Rome-Berlin axis and in 1937, Italy would actually sign the anti-Comintern pact uh, with Nazi Germany. So by the mid-30s, Italy has already removed itself as a possible counterweight to the Germans. The Soviets are a possibility, but still problematic. The Germans, meanwhile, were hardly standing still. In November of 1937, Hitler called a top-secret meeting of his top foreign policy advisors and military men. It was a discussion about general aims and objectives of the regime in foreign policy. During what was a typical sort of Hitler rambling discussion that went on for some time, Hitler talked about the need for Lebensraum. He talked about uh, the need for expansion to the east, that what his job would be would be to isolate his opponents diplomatically and that Germany should be prepared in the future to deal with a situation in the East, uh, an attack on Poland, and also to face the possibility of a French attack in the West. In other words, what Hitler told his, his diplomats and his generals is we're, at some point in the future, it was not clear exactly when, uh, Germany ought to be prepared for a move into Eastern Europe, which would probably bring it into conflict with France. Hopefully not with Great Britain, but certainly with France. No notes were allowed to be taken at this meeting. It was top secret. But one colonel did keep notes, uh, a man by the name of Friedrich Hosbach. And this has gone down into uh, the record as the Hosbach Memorandum. It's important because, on the one hand, it looks like in 1937, before the great turmoil of 1938 and 1939, that Hitler was already thinking very consistently about precise moves in foreign policy. The debate is whether or not this was sort of typical Hitlerian rhetoric where he's talking about taking a sort of tour of the horizon of possibilities or whether this really does represent a blueprint for action. But I think what's interesting about it is that within months, in fact within weeks, the Minister of War, General Blumberg, was removed. The chief the commander-in-chief of the army, General Fritsch, was removed, and the foreign minister, Baron von Neurath, was removed. All three men had voiced their, not opposition to Hitler's plans, this would have been too much, one simply didn't do this, even in, in 1937, but had raised concerns, in effect saying, Mein Fuhrer, do you really mean to suggest that we're going to enter into the possibility of a two-front war? Uh, isn't, or are you really talking about war against Poland 
and then possibly war with France, possibly Britain. What about the Soviet Union? They raised all sorts of perfectly reasonable, legitimate sorts of concerns that you would expect foreign policy and military advisors to do. And within two months, they were all gone. Removed. Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, a Nazi uh, with no real background in foreign policy, was named foreign minister. Uh, Hitler himself would move to consolidate the position, military positions in his own hands. And so in er, as 1938 began, Hitler was in exactly the position that he hoped to be in. The horizon seemed relatively clear. He had a potential friend in Mussolini. The West seemed to be in disarray. And then in February of 1938, a situation fell into his lap which was ideal for an opportunist like Hitler uh, to deal with. The Austrian government, since 1934, had been very nervous about Nazi intentions. This attempt to overthrow the Austrian government by Austrian Nazis, as we've seen, had been, had been squashed by the Austrian government. But there was still concern that the Germans were funneling money to these Austrian Nazis, that they were fomenting trouble within Austria, and that the Germans had uh, designs on uh, the Austrian state. In early 1938, the Austrian chancellor by the name of Schuschnigg began taking feelers with the British and with the Italians about possibly guaranteeing Austrian sovereignty. This Hitler interpreted, this was leaked. Hitler interpreted this as a breach of any sort of relationship between Germany and Austria, inconsistent with their attempts to rebuild their relationship after the 1934 fiasco. And a crisis seemed to be in the offing. Now, the German ambassador in Austria at this time was a man by the name of Franz von Papen. Ironically enough, he'd been the last pre-Nazi chancellor of Germany. Hitler had earmarked him for assassination in 1934, but the guy had more lives than a cat and survived that. Surfaces in 1938 as the ambassador to Austria and suggests something that was quite rare, indeed almost unheard of at the time. We now take it for granted. It was, what about a little summit diplomacy? Why not have Chancellor Schuschnigg from Austria come up from Vienna while the Fuhrer is down at his home in the Bavarian Alps, close to Salzburg, have a face-to-face meeting, iron out these difficulties, and so on. Schuschnigg departed from Vienna, Traveling, it's remarkable thinking about this, with a very small entourage, arrives in Munich where he thinks he's going to meet with Hitler, and instead is then taken in a large motorcade uh, out through Bavaria, out to Berchtesgaden, and then taken up to Hitler's house on this Alp that overlooks this extraordinary scene uh, in Bavaria, close to Salzburg. But they don't stop at the so-called Berghof, which was Hitler's actual residence, but began winding their way around this very tiny, uh, typical alpine road, uh, all the way into a, a parking lot right beside just the side of a mountain. Schuschnigg and his just a handful of advisors climb out of the cars, look over, and are being escorted over to these two enormous doors that open into the side of the mountain, and they see stretching in front of them a long corridor um, with torches about every 10 yards or so beneath each torch, a uniformed SS man, a Schutzstaffel man, white gloves, black uniform, helmet, bayonet out. They walk down this long corridor into the mountain 
uh, climb into a small room. Actually, the room is, well, it's, a, it's, it's about like this area here. Gold-plated. Shushnig is standing there not knowing what's going on. He hears a sort of odd humming noise in the background and then suddenly realizes that the room is moving. The room was, in fact, an elevator, and it was taking Shushnig, Ribbentrop, and company up. Uh, the doors swing open, and there is Hitler uh, standing in front of the uh, elevator doorway, and behind him is the entire general staff of the German army. It is, uh, one can actually retrace these steps. All of this, these things are still there. The road, uh, this, this uh, eagle's nest, as it was called at the top of this Alp, that literally is perched right on a peak of the Alps. One could not feel more isolated. It, I, I go into this detail, not simply for the sort of local color of it, but because it was a way that Hitler liked to do things. It put Schuschnigg in this position of vulnerability. He thought he was going for a discussion, a typical sort of diplomatic discussion that would take place in, in offices in Munich, suddenly discover he's going to Hitler's uh, residence in Berchtesgaden, only it's not really that. And there he winds up on top of this mountain with Hitler and the German general staff. Hitler didn't waste much time. He demanded, absolutely insisted upon, uh, Austrian uh, acquiescence in freeing all the, the Austrian Nazis, uh, coordination of German foreign policy, military policy with Austria, and so on. In effect, what Hitler was talking about was the absorption of Austria by Germany. Schuschnigg managed to collect himself to get off the Alp without uh, committing himself to anything. So they had to go back to Vienna, obviously. Went back, and then, to Hitler's great astonishment, Schuschnigg announced plans for a plebiscite to be held on March 13th. This was too much. At this point, Germany demanded that Schuschnigg call off the plebiscite or face war. Schuschnigg did call off the plebiscite. The German, German troops poured across the frontier uh, into Austria, and Hitler returned to the country of his birth, uh, passing through uh, Braunau, where he was born, Linz, where he grew up, uh, and then into Vienna, where he had spent the unhappiest years uh, of his life, to a cheering throng and announced the annexation of Austria. The international response was mild, to say the least. One of the th- what did, how did Hitler justify what he had done with Austria? It was clear. This was perfectly consistent with the principles espoused by Woodrow Wilson and the Allies at Versailles. National self-determination of peoples. In 1918, 1919, the Austrians, the rump Austrian state, populated by ethnic Germans, had wanted to be part of the new German state. Only the Allies had said, no, this can't happen. France and Britain had not fought for four years in order to make Germany larger than it had been in 1914. And so that linkage, this union of Germany and Austria, had been forbidden. So what, what does Hitler do in 1938 in March? National self-determination of peoples. This is not an aggressive act. It is not a demand of German foreign policy run rampant. It is simply um, a justified act of national self-determination. Hitler was not through in 1938. The summer would pass with a mounting crisis over Czechoslovakia. The Allies had been hamstrung in their response to the Austrian case, and now it seemed as if Austria was resolved, but now Czechoslovakia had been moved onto the front burner. The mountainous area around Bohemia, 
this part of Czechoslovakia that extends into Germany in the east. Uh, the Sudetenland, it was called, was populated to a very large extent by ethnic Germans. And in 1938, in the spring and summer of 1938, encouraged by the Nazis in Germany, Konrad Hinlein and the Sudeten Germans began demanding autonomy for the ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia, arguing that they, had been, they were being repressed by the Czech state, uh, that all they wanted was national self-determination of peoples. They wanted to come, as the term was, Heim ins Reich, to return to the Reich. Um, this term, this policy, was clearly supported by the National Socialist regime. The Czechs, fearful of a replay of the Anschluss, this linkage of union of Germany and Austria, the Czech government mobilized its forces. They're going to fight. Czechoslovakia, certainly Bohemia with its mountainous terrain, was a very tough uh, area for an invasion. The German military was not keen on the possibility of an invasion at all. And the Czech army was well-trained and well-equipped. So Hitler was furious. He, he, he'd been shown up now by the Czechs. He wasn't ready to push the situation. And so the summer lapsed without any sort of solution to this mounting, what was now being called the, the Sudeten, crisis of the Sudetenland. But in the fall, early, late summer, early fall, Hitler told his military people, prepare for an invasion of Czechoslovakia by October 1st while publicly stating all he wanted was to defend the rights of ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia. At this point, in the fall of 1938, two people stepped in to save the day, to save the peace. One was Mussolini, who was nervous as a cat at this point, having rattled his saber. I suppose more appropriately for Mussolini would be to pound his chest uh, since he was fond of ripping off his shirt uh, there at the Palazzo there in, in, in Rome. Uh, despite all of this, despite his invasion of Ethiopia's involvement in the Spanish Civil War, Mussolini was not at all keen on being dragged into war, possibly with France, maybe with the Soviet Union, maybe with Britain, over what? The Sudetenland? No way. So he found an ally in the British Prime Minister by the name of Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain had, come, had become prime minister in May of 1937, and he was a, would become the foremost exponent of a policy that we've come to know as appeasement. It was not his policy. He was not the originator of the term or of the policy. It had been, in fact, British policy almost since the end of the First World War to meet reasonable German demands for revision of the treaty to deal with the Germans from a position of strength, yes, but to realize that the treaty had probably been too harsh and to therefore meet what could be argued were reasonable demands. As far as Chamberlain was concerned, this was the only alternative. The French, he viewed, were weak, unreliable. The French army might be huge, but he had no confidence whatsoever in its ability to actually pull off uh, a defense of Czechoslovakia. The Americans were worse. The Americans were unreliable. We were wallowing in isolationism. And the other thing for Chamberlain, this is an important point that we'll come back to, Chamberlain was mistrustful of, of American interests in the long haul. 
this angle, this special relationship between the United States and Britain is largely a creation of Churchill and Roosevelt. It certainly was not Chamberlain's policy. In 1938, Chamberlain was afraid that if, the United, if a war came, any war, that it would lead to a decline of the British Empire and an emergence of real American power. So Britain would be reduced to the status of a second-class citizen behind the United States. And then finally, Chamberlain was all, had also learned his lessons from the, the summer of 1914. What would be worth another war? What issue, what problem would justify throwing Europe once again into this great cataclysm where millions of young men and women would die? The Sudetenland in Germany, in Czechoslovakia, you couldn't probably have found a room full of people in Britain who could have found it on a map, maybe even in the foreign office. And so, for Chamberlain, the point was meet reasonable demands, deal with the Germans honestly, Deal with Hitler from a position of strength, certainly, but be ready to compromise. The result, as we all know, was the conference held on September 30th of 1938 in Munich, in which Chamberlain, Deladier of France, Mussolini, and Hitler presided over the annexation of the Sudetenland by Germany. That conference was a major turning point in the prelude to the Second World War, and the implications of which we will take up in our next lecture. Lecture 4, The Coming of War. Hello and welcome to the fourth in our series of lectures on the Second World War. We had concluded the third lecture with an examination of the Anschluss, German Anschluss with Austria, the Union with Austria in the spring of 1938, and then the evolving crisis over the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia in the fall of that same year. In this lecture, we will focus on the implications of the Munich Conference for Hitler's evaluation of the international situation. We'll examine his calculations about the Anglo-French responses to a possible invasion of Czechoslovakia and Stalin's assessment of the Western powers in the last months of the war. We'll also describe the impact of the Munich Conference on the German military conspiracy uh, against Hitler, which had been... Uh, gaining some momentum uh, in the, the prelude to the conference. And the lecture will conclude by tracing the evolution of the Polish crisis in the summer of 1939 and especially the stunning ramifications of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August of that year. It's hard to talk about the Munich conference or Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. Uh, it, it simply... One thinks if, if you want to discredit anyone politically at any time after 1938, all you have to do is say appeasement. If you want to suggest that a political opponent has sold out something, all you have to do is say Munich. Uh, and the two things come together as uh, an obvious condemnation of the myopic policies of Neville Chamberlain. Some would argue the criminally myopic policies of Chamberlain. But I think it's an important point to remember that in in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of the crisis in the fall of 1938, Neville Chamberlain was an international hero, wildly popular in Britain for having saved the peace. A huge sigh of relief passed across uh, Europe. 
that war had been averted, and Chamberlain enjoyed a brief period uh, of great acclaim. Uh, I'd like to come back and talk a bit about the actual conference itself. We saw in the previous lecture that at the last moment, as Hitler seemed intent on taking military action against the Czechoslovakian state, that Chamberlain, Mussolini, uh, and Deladier of France had agreed to meet with Hitler in late September, September 30th as it turned out, to see if war might indeed be forestalled. If one looks at the photographs of that conference uh, and the negotiations, it all happens in an afternoon into the evening, there is this photograph of Chamberlain, Deladier, uh, Hitler and Mussolini all extraordinarily pleased with himself, Goering, uh, the, the rotund uh, second-in-command of the Third Reich, head of the German Air Force, head of the four-year plan, bouncing around in the background, all terrifically pleased with their work that afternoon. Um, notable by their absence in that photograph are two people. One is there is no representative of the Czechs at all. No Czechoslovakian representative was present at the actual discussions in Munich. The Czech delegation was standing outside the Führerbau, the, uh, an administrative building for the Nazi party in Munich, waiting to discover the fate of their country. There was another absence, miss, a person missing from those discussions in Munich, and that, of course, was any sort of representative of the Soviet Union. Stalin was not present. No representative of the Soviet government uh, had been a party to these negotiations. What drove Neville Chamberlain to, to undertake this policy? He, we've talked about the fact that Chamberlain was determined to, to appease. It's hard to say the word without it's just dripping with, with, uh, with judgment. But appeasement at this point meant not caving in, not some sort of craven, weak, uh, giving in to the National Socialist regime or to Hitler, but to make timely concessions on those points that could legitimately be granted to the Germans. It was a widespread feeling that Hitler might not have come to power had it not been for the vindictiveness of the Allies at the conclusion of the First World War. If one looks at Chamberlain's options in 1938, he was really determined to, av to avoid war, not at all costs, but the breakout of war would be a real defeat for him. He wanted he believed, certainly, that the United States was unreliable. The United States had retreated behind this veil of isolationism. Roosevelt would be reduced to being that of a, spe to a spectator in 1938 and indeed into 1939 for reasons that we will certainly talk about. France, he believed, was weak. So what were the real options for British policy? The British army was virtually non-existent in 1938. The navy certainly was strong. The British had been uh, funneling a great deal of resources into the construction of an air force, but the British army was certainly in no position to undertake military operations on the continent, and France seemed not to be terribly inclined to do it. Chamberlain, therefore, undertook this mission to Munich in an effort to save the peace. He had learned the lessons of the Great War, he believed. And this, is, uh, this was a view that he shared with a great many other people in Europe, pundits, diplomats, politicians, as well as the proverbial man in the street. If only the leaders of Europe in that fateful summer of 1914 
had been willing to walk the last mile, to leave, to leave no leaf unturned, or whatever image one wants to use in that regard, to preserve the peace, then maybe Europe would not have slithered into the morass of war in the summer of 1914. So for Chamberlain, this going to, going to Germany, first when Chamberlain flew to Germany to meet Hitler in Munich, he was treated to the same treatment as Schuschnigg, that is taken up to the, up to the uh, eagle's nest, the German general staff was not present, so it wasn't quite the browbeating that uh, that uh, Schuschnigg had received. Indeed, in his first encounter with Hitler, Hitler was as he could frequently be when he wanted to. He turned on the charm. He was he was sweetness and light itself, agreeable, ready to compromise, and so on. Chamberlain left that meeting believing that this was a man, certainly someone not to his taste, but a man that one with whom one could deal. So. He flew, he took his first airplane trip, goes to Germany, uh, begins the process of negotiation, returns back to Britain, negotiates with the French, brings the British cabinet into line so that everyone is in agreement. They will back this, this uh, sort of agreement that uh, Germany would ultimately basically receive the Sudetenland. Uh, he hoped that there would be some sort of plebiscite held in the future to, to ratify that decision. But he was convinced that these were the sorts of necessary steps. And he also believed that he didn't have very many options. It was important, it was absolutely essential to maintain the peace. Britain would be a loser, Chamberlain believed, by any sort of new outbreak of war. Even if Britain should win the war, if Britain had, become, had gone from being a creditor nation to a debtor nation between 1914 and 1918, another major conflict would really put Britain and the British Empire on the skids, uh, make Britain a second-class citizen, as we talked about previously, to the United States. And then there is the other, having said all of this, trying to give the rationale for Chamberlain's thinking, it is also apparent that he came away from his first encounter with Hitler, and even a second one. He went back to Godesberg um, before the Munich conference to try to, to, to negotiate a second time with Hitler. He actually seems to have trusted Hitler. He believed that he, 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 he came away thinking, well, this is, here's a man, I understand him, he's a nationalist, uh, he's conservative, he's, uh, he's someone with whom we can, we can deal. And if only Britain, France, and the other victorious allies had treated Germany in a more um, equitable way after the first war, then uh, maybe we wouldn't be in this position at the present time. We all know from the newsreels uh, the performance of Chamberlain upon his return uh, to Britain the standing out beside the wing of the aircraft uh, on that landing field holding up. It's actually not the Munich Agreement, but uh, an auxiliary, an annex to that agreement in which Germany and Great Britain promised not to go to war with one another, not to use force in, in settling. It's, it's holding up that sheet of paper saying, I believe this means peace in our time. I think that probably stands at the top of the list for famous last words um, in Western history. Again, it's extremely important to remember that Neville Chamberlain at that moment was probably the most popular man in Europe. He was seen as a real hero. The troublemakers, the warmongers, Churchill, for example, 
and others in the British government, in the parliament, uh, other pundits who were saying no good will come of this. One can't make a deal with Hitler with this national socialist regime. These men were largely isolated. Their voices could be heard. But in general, the, the popular view was these people are troublemakers. They're warmongers. There is really a chance to save the peace. And Neville Chamberlain has been, made her, a, an heroic attempt to do just that. Chamberlain came back, indeed believing, that the basis for peace in his time had been achieved. Adolf Hitler drew rather different conclusions from his encounter with Chamberlain, Deladier, and company at Munich. He drew the conclusion that the West was weak, that it would not fight, that when push came to shove, Britain would not intervene on the continent to undo German actions. He would later say, uh, I, I, I know how they will respond. I've met them, uh, our opponents. I met them at Munich. They're worms. Interestingly enough, someone else drew a similar conclusion to the Munich conference, and that person was Joseph Stalin. Watching events from Moscow in isolation, Stalin was furious furious that the Soviet Union had not been included all the way through the crisis, the run-up to the Munich Agreement, the Munich Conference. The Soviet Union hammered away in all of its public statements, we stand prepared to come to the aid of the Czechoslovakian state. We will honor our obligations to Czechoslovakia according to our treaty. But of course, if you'll recall, the, the, uh, the French would have to do so first. And the French showed no inclination to do that. As a consequence, Stalin believed that all Chamberlain wanted, all he was interested in, indeed all that the West was interested in, was funneling German aggression to the East to give, to point the Germans in the direction of the Soviet Union. Behind the scenes, there was also another reaction, and an extremely important one. The relationship between the National Socialist Party, this new Nazi regime, and the German army was a problematic one from the beginning. German military men were certainly very happy about Hitler's determination to restore the German army, to rebuild the German military machine, to restore German power and influence in the world. They had been very nervous, very worried in 1933-34 about the SA, the stormtroopers, in 1933-34, with the German army uh, limited to 100,000 troops, the SA had between 400 and 500,000 men at its disposal. The German army was, leaders of the German army, even those that were quite pro-Nazi, were worried that Hitler, when push came to shove, would side with the SA, that the SA would simply absorb the army, uh, and that the old traditions of the German, Prusso-German army would be lost to this radical National Socialist group. So, and then, of course, in 1934, the army swears allegiance. Why does it swear allegiance to Hitler? Because in 1934, Hitler had purged the SA, executed its leader. He seemed to have made peace with the army and to have said, given the choice now, what I need is the army, not the SA, even though the SA had been so instrumental in his rise to power and his, and his consolidation of power in 33-34. 
all the way through the dramatic events that we've been describing, Hitler's revision of the treaty, the German army, rather than encouraging Hitler, had acted as a restraint, had constantly said, well, are we really up to this? In 1936, as you'll recall, they had been uh, nervous about, indeed opposed, the remilitarization of the Rhineland, fearing any sort of French reaction would lead to an ignominious defeat on the part of Germany. They were tried to convince Hitler in 1938 that, that the army was not even prepared to move unopposed into Austria. And, in 19, and as the Czech crisis began to develop, there was real concern in the army. The Czechs were well-armed, well-trained. They had good defensive positions. And within the high command of the army, the voices were raised quite secretly, of course, to say, if we are given the order, if Hitler sends us on a suicidal mission to attack Czechoslovakia, then I think the time has come to put him under house arrest, to depose him, uh, and to create uh, a different sort of state. General Ludwig Beck was one of the leaders of this conspiracy. Discussions had taken place as the crisis mounted. And then, of course, comes Munich. The German army, the leaders of this conspiracy, were absolutely flummoxed by this. They didn't believe that the West would cave in. Here they had been once again arguing, no, 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 this is suicidal, we can't do it, this will lead to disaster, and once again, Hitler had been proved correct. At the critical moment, they weren't going to have to fight for the Sudetenland, the West had caved in. With that, with this uh, Munich conference, this conspiracy, military conspiracy against Hitler began to dissolve. We'll see it resurface again. It would be many of the very same people in the summer of 1944, on July 20th, 1944, who would attempt to assassinate Hitler and to overthrow the National Socialist regime. But in 1938, the calling of the Munich Conference, Hitler's success at Munich, undercut this emerging military conspiracy against his regime. At the end of this crisis, Hitler now felt that the horizon was open to him. In March of 1939, Hitler used ethnic conflicts between Czechs and Slovaks as a pretext to send German troops into what was left of Czechoslovakia. Robbed of the Sudetenland and the mountainous regions that guarded the entry into Czechoslovakia, there was very little that the Czech army now felt that it could do to defend itself against the Germans. German troops marched in in the spring of 1939 on March 15th. And now with that invasion, although Hitler tried to dress it up saying, we're going in just to maintain order. The Czechoslovakian state was an illegitimate state. It was inherently unstable. And with ethnic violence there, we're going to step in simply to preserve order. He sent troops in in March of 1939. And... This invasion of Czechoslovakia was unopposed. German troops marched in unopposed. This is the real turning point for the West. Whereas the Anschluss could be with Austria could be justified on the basis of national self-determination of peoples. The Sudeten crisis could be in some ways justified that way. Uh, one could talk about just demands on the part of the Germans. One could talk about legitimate compromise, but not this invasion of Czechoslovakia. 
move into the, this rump Czechoslovakian state in March of 1939 was pure naked aggression, and that's the way it was perceived. Everyone knew it. It marks also, I might say, a major turning point in public opinion in Great Britain. Now those voices in the wilderness, people like Ch- Churchill, who had been arguing that, it was, that Hitler was inherently untrustworthy, uh, that one couldn't deal with him, now took on greater credibility, and Chamberlain's policy seemed to be, um, if not discredited, it was certainly in deep trouble. At this point, Great Britain extended a guarantee to Poland, and France joined with the English in this guarantee. In March, also in March of 1939, the Germans seized Mamel, this territory along the Baltic, which had been lost to Germany as a result of the Treaty of Versailles uh, to Lithuania. So Czechoslovakia, now Mamel, the Germans were moving over into a new phase of their foreign policy. The veil had dropped Although Hitler continued to make the usual sorts of, of introductions to his policies about just uh, justice for Germany, equal equality, and so on, uh, this was a tune that now uh, had been played once too often. The extension of a guarantee to Poland by Great Britain was a startling reversal of British policy. But it didn't mean that Chamberlain had given completely up on the policy of appeasement. Chamberlain hangs on to this, to the, literally to the very last moment. Because in some ways for Chamberlain, even when the evidence began to come in that this policy had been misguided, there were too many chips on the table for him. Any war now was going to be a complete repudiation of all of his policies, all of the assumptions that he based his foreign policy on. He was so invested in this that he would continue, as we will see, to try to find some way to maintain the peace. The key to peace in Europe in the summer of 1939, however, was not in London, nor was it in Paris, nor it certainly wasn't in Washington across the ocean. It was in Moscow. The guarantees to Poland, the Franco-British guarantees to Poland, could only be effective... Chamberlain understood this. De Ladier understood this. Could only be effective within the context of some sort of overall collective security structure, one which had eluded them really since 1919. And that included in that collective security structure had to be the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was really, now there was the sense that, well, Poland is now going to be moved to the front burner of Nazi policy. So the Soviets have to be enlisted in this. The Soviets have to join in order to create a credible counterweight to the Germans in the East. Knowing this, as every policymaker, every newspaper reader in Europe understood in the summer of 1939, the British and French governments proceed in the most casual sort of way. They don't, they're supposed to send off representatives to talk to the Soviet Union. How do they do it? Do they fly them out to Moscow? No, they send them on a ship across uh, the Baltic Sea in this kind of leisurely, uh, almost Scandinavian tour arrangement. This didn't impress the Soviets very much at all. There was a sense, I think, on the part of certainly the Chamberlain government that time was on their side. They didn't believe, Chamberlain just absolutely, and one can understand why I would think this, thought it inconceivable that Stalin and Hitler could ever come to any sort of arrangement. 
Stalin had to know, didn't he, that he, that Hitler was his sworn enemy, that the, much of, of Nazi foreign policy was based on the destruction of the Soviet Union, the anti-communist propaganda of the National Socialist regime. It was obvious. So as Chamberlain is reputed to have said, the Bolshevs and the Nazis will never be able to make a deal. Um, in addition, Chamberlain and the policymaking circles in Great Britain at this point were very mistrustful of the communist regime. Uh, there's no way around this. Stalin was certainly mistrustful of them. They didn't trust his intentions. And so there was no real community of interest here. Certainly the threat of the Germans, of the Nazis, um, but, but no real community of, of, of interest here, of, of trust. Also, th- there's another factor here that I think should be brought out. We'll talk about this again when we talk about the German calculations for an invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, the Red Army in the summer of 1939 was the largest army in Europe by a long shot. But its status internationally was very low. In 1938, Stalin had begun a massive purge of the Red Army. We'll talk about this, as I said, in more detail a bit down the road. But we're not talking about just a purge at the very top levels of the Red Army. We're talking about a purge that goes all the way through the the command down to company level. Thousands of Soviet officers and uh, NCOs were purged in the course of 1938. There was a general sense in the West that the Soviet Union was weak that it was this huge, a huge army certainly, but one that was riddled with uh, political corruption, uh, with this ideological sort of, of action on the part of Stalin, and that the purges simply had, had, had torn out the heart and soul of the Red Army. Meanwhile, the Poles found themselves in an incredibly difficult position. The Germans... Between the end, between the Munich Pact and uh, the fall of 1939, had tendered a series of offers to the Poles, asking them to join in uh, the anti-Comintern Pact aimed at the Soviet Union. The Poles, over and over again, reiterated their willingness to discuss a revision of the Treaty of Versailles. They would talk about Danzig. They would talk about the Polish corridor. Nothing would be off the table. They were willing to compromise on these sort of territorial issues with the Germans. But the Poles absolutely refused to be reduced to the status of a puppet state. They didn't want to become simply a puppet of the Nazis, and they also didn't want Soviet troops on Polish territory. The Germans made... A number of offers to Poland in October of 1938, in January of 1939, in April of 1939, in the aftermath of the the British and French guarantee. In each instance, the Germans saying, we can cooperate, we can do things. The Poles chose not to buy this offer. Poland refused each of these overtures, and with the last refusal, the Poles set the stage for the conflict. There was a growing sense in Europe as the last days of summer arrived, that a real crisis was imminent. And then in late August, the thunderbolt that sent shock waves throughout the diplomatic community. On August 23, 1939, the Germans 
and the Soviets announced that they had signed a non-aggression pact. In fact, the Germans had begun talks with the Russians in May of 1939, economic talks with them, and instead of putting this on uh, the more casual route that the British and the French had done, the Germans made a great deal of this. Uh, they sent high-ranking officials off to the Soviet Union. The, they emphasized the importance of these talks. And so they were taken seriously. On the one hand, the, what came to be known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, Molotov was the Soviet foreign minister, had replaced Litvinov, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact made no ideological sense whatsoever. Here were these two sworn ideological enemies of one another. They had spent most of their propaganda lives attacking one another. But in the context of international politics in the summer of 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact made a great deal of sense. For Hitler, a pact with the Soviet Union in the summer of 1939 ended the prospect of a two-front war. Hitler was determined by this point to attack Poland. He was not going to be denied his war. As he said at one point during this in August, I was cheated out of that war at Munich. Not again. He was determined. He was going to take what he wanted in Poland. He believed that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact would have a deterrent effect. That as he counted on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to to restrain the British. The French he was not worried about. The French would do what the British wanted to do. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Soviet, the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, would, he believed, deter Britain from honoring its obligation to Poland. For Stalin, whose intelligence people certainly knew all there was to know about Hitler's large ideological intentions, they'd been able to read Mein Kampf, listen to the speeches, followed Nazi foreign policy. For Stalin, of course, the war, the, this agreement made very little sense in an ideological way either. But again, within the context of the circumstances of 1939, it was extremely important. For one thing, it would allow Stalin to buy time. If the Germans were determined to attack in the East, and if the West was unreliable, would not come to his aid, then at least some sort of agreement with Hitler would allow him to buy time, to rebuild the Red Army, to, to reduce the effects of the purges. And not, there were secret annexes to this non-aggression pact. The Soviet Union and Nazi Germany had divided Eastern Europe into spheres of influences. They agreed, it was clear the Germans were going to attack Poland in the immediate future, and they agreed that the Soviets would move in to the eastern part of Poland, that there would be a partition of Poland. Germany was to get Lithuania and Vilna. Russia was to get Latvia, Estonia, and Finland. Both sides had interest in Romania and its oil fields. They couldn't come to any agreement about this. This didn't bode well for the long run. But for Stalin, what these secret clauses did was to secure territorial and strategic advantages for the Soviet Union and Poland. Now, if the Germans were to attack, the Soviet border had been now moved hundreds of miles west an attack against Poland, an attack against the Soviet Union, would now encounter Soviet troops in Poland. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact made war in Europe inevitable. Hitler, as we said, counted on the pact to deter Britain and France from intervening. He did not believe Great Britain would honor its guarantee. 
He expected Mussolini to sign on. In May of 1939, Hitler and Mussolini had signed what was called a Pact of Steel, in which they both pledged full assistance to each other in the event of war, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation. But in the last days before Hitler's planned attack on Poland, when he informed Mussolini, there had been no coordination of policy between the two, it was an alliance largely in name only, when he informed Mussolini of his plans at the last moment, he was astonished when the Duce told him that Italy would not be able to help him out uh, in the event of war, that in fact Italy was not prepared, would not be prepared for war until 1943. Hitler proceeded without him. Hitler, and this is an extremely important point, did not anticipate or intend a war with the West in the fall of 1939. Germany was not prepared for a war, a big war, in the fall of 1939. It had not made the economic preparations for a war, uh, an extended or a protracted conflict in 1939. The four-year plan had fallen far short of its goals. Germany was hardly economically independent. And when German troops marched into Poland, Hitler was convinced that Britain would see the light and that some sort of agreement would be made with Chamberlain. In fact, Chamberlain reluctantly issued an ultimatum that Germany had to withdraw from Poland, and then they would talk. Hitler let that deadline lapse, And when it did, Europe was at war. We will take up the strategy employed by the Germans in September of 1939, the responses of the Allies uh, in our next lecture. Lecture 5, Blitzkrieg. Hello and welcome back to our series of discussions on the Second World War. We are going to be dealing in this lecture with the actual outbreak of hostilities, with the German assault on Poland in September of 1939, and with the Blitzkrieg this new way of warfare that the Germans introduced to the world in Poland in September of 1939. We'll look at Blitzkrieg not simply as a military policy, a military strategy, but also as a political and economic policy. It was all three. We'll look at what the components of that strategy were, why they were revolutionary. We'll talk about why Blitzkrieg was of a political and economic advantage to Hitler. And then we will trace the campaign itself in Poland, what lessons were learned from it, and then also look at the conclusion of the lecture at the Russian invasion of Finland in uh, the winter of 1939-1940. So let's begin with the Blitzkrieg. We certainly tend to think of the Blitzkrieg. It's a word that has now gone into the, into the, the political lexicon of Blitz, Blitzkrieg. Lightning war is obviously what it means. We all know this, I think. What I think is less frequently known about Blitzkrieg was the extent to which it was not simply a military policy, but was part of a general approach of the Nazis, especially Hitler, to political and economic problems. 
The idea of lightning wars, quick wars, to be fought against diplomatically isolated states was key to Hitler's thinking. Hitler, the idea of knocking out an opponent to destroy the opponent uh, before it really had time to get itself mobilized uh, was important because Hitler wanted to be able to conduct business as usual. He had been tremendously impressed by his experiences during the First World War. At the end of the First World War, as you'll recall, the old regime, the imperial German state, was overthrown by revolution at home. All the way through the war, and particularly after 1916, Germany was under, Germany was under tremendous pressure, economic pressure, uh, pressure to provide food, housing, and so on for its citizens. Germans were forced to live with great privations in the last two years of the first war. And this had made a tremendous impression on Hitler. He believed that the regime had toppled in November of 1918 precisely because the old imperial regime had been unable to deal with the demands of its population, had not been able to feed it, to clothe it, to, to provide fuel for warmth during those last two grisly years of the war. Hitler was, a, it sounds ironic in a sense, or almost counterintuitive, but Hitler was very much attuned to public opinion. One think here's this totalitarian dictator who, who certainly by 1939 can snap his fingers and get what he wants. But in fact, Hitler was very, very sensitive to public opinion. The Gestapo, the secret police in Germany, had to, to submit reports every two weeks on what was called Stimmung in der Bevölkerung. It's not public opinion, but opinion. They would go off and listen to, overhear discussions in bars, uh, on street corners, in the bakeries, and so on, and then write up reports. How did this policy play? How did that policy play? And these things were taken quite seriously at home. What Hitler wanted to be able to do was to, certainly to go to war, but against an opponent that he had carefully picked. They would be diplomatically isolated, so that that opponent could be knocked out in rapid fashion. What this would do would be to allow him to conduct military operations without a total mobilization of the economy, without the privations of the First World War, without the dislocations of moving from a peacetime to a wartime economy. And it allowed him to pursue a very rapid military buildup. We're talking about a country that in 1935 had basically no armed forces. By 1939, Germany had extraordinarily well-trained and well-equipped armed forces. They did this by pursuing what was called a policy of armaments in breadth, but not in depth. That is, rather than mobilize the economy for full wartime production, rationing, allocation of scarce resources, and so on, armaments in breadth meant build armor, build aircraft, equip your infantry, but you don't do this as if you're planning to go to war for a year, two years, three years, four years, five years. These were to be lightning campaigns. You could do this uh, not on a shoestring, but certainly would not require the kind of full commitment of the society, the total mobilization of society that the First World War had required. It was evident in 1939 that this is precisely the policy that Germany had uh, pursued. Despite the increasing awesome displays of military hardware and the four-year plan, certainly in, in Nazi Germany by 1937, 1938, 39, 
Hitler would review at the grandstand there on Unter den Linden, just across from the chancellery. Every year there would be the enormous display of military hardware, the German tanks, the new equipment, the heavy artillery all rolled by, the soldiers goose-stepping proudly by. Despite all of this, despite all of the talk in the four-year plan about putting Germany on a footing to be economically independent by uh, 1940, Germany was certainly not prepared for any sort of protracted conflict in September of 1939. Much of the four-year plan had been devoted to to developing synthetic materials, especially oil and rubber, but only 20% of Germany's oil needs were actually produced domestically and less than 15% of its rubber uh, could be produced by these synthetic methods. Germany also still imported about 20% of its food in 1939. So Germany was hardly prepared to launch a major war against powerful enemies in the fall of 1939. What it could do was to launch, Hitler believed, a surgical attack against an opponent like Poland. I said diplomatically isolated. Now, it's obvious that Poland has agreements with both Britain and France. But as you'll recall, Hitler was absolutely convinced that his agreement with the Soviet Union would act to deter British intervention, that France would fall into line, and so he would have his war against Poland. It would be over. No mobilization of the economy, no big international repercussions. The regime would move on. This would obviously not be the case. But the Blitzkrieg strategy that had been developed in Germany was ideal in a military sense for this type of thinking. Well, what was that that Blitzkrieg strategy? And how did it come about? First of all, it began with an emphasis on offensive operations. The great lesson of the first war had been that these massive battles, the first battle of the Somme in which the British lost 40,000 troops in a single morning, of charges across no man's land, the pulverizing of, of positions at Verdun, uh, also in the course of 1916, where heavy artillery, machine guns, automatic weapons of all sorts could be brought to bear against charging infantrymen, that this static war, in which all the advantages seemed to lie with those on the defense, could be avoided. How did one get around having another a replay of the same kind of trench warfare, a war of attrition, which Germany could not win? The point was movement, was offensive operations. How to do this? Well, it was to take advantage of powerful armored forces, tanks, to smash border defenses and encircle large concentrations of enemy troops. Following the panzers, the German term for tanks, would come motorized infantry, traveling in trucks and tracked personnel carriers. These highly mobile infantry forces would consolidate the gains made by armor, while the tanks would then move on to move on deeper into enemy territory. Next on the scene would come the mass of traditional infantry who would free the motorized units to pursue the advancing armor. So you had this big encircling movements by the armor, motorized infantry following it in, and then the traditional infantry uh, following it. In the meantime, the panzers would then be off and running again on another great pincer movement, uh, moving deeper and deeper into enemy territory. All the while, these maneuvers would be supported by a massive application of tactical air power. The Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was to be employed 
to for close support of ground operations. Its first responsibilities in a blitzkrieg operation would be to destroy the enemy air force so that it would not be able to play a role, to disrupt enemy communications on the battlefield, and, of course, to provide close air support for the attacking units themselves. Massed armor, motorized infantry, and air power would deal a devastating blow to any sort of enemy it was felt. The emphasis would be on movement, on speed, on flexibility, all of the things that one does not associate with the terrible uh, operations of the First World War. The man most responsible for developing the Blitzkrieg strategy in Germany was a general by the name of Heinz Guderian. He had become a general quite late, only in 1938. He was a veteran of the First War, an intelligence officer in that conflict, where he had witnessed firsthand the unbelievable slaughter at at Verdun, the battle where uh, the Germans had maintained, well, if we can't break through French lines, we'll simply bleed them white. Uh, so that this year-long battle was one of enormous attrition, unbelievable bloodshed. Guderian was so powerfully affected by this that he was determined to avoid static warfare at all costs. Movement had to be the key. How did one break out of this, uh, this dilemma? During the 1920s, Guderian was influenced by a number of British military thinkers. Guderian was himself not an original military mind, but he certainly picked up ideas from others and was able to develop them to, to, to give them uh, additional life. He was particularly influenced by uh, General J.F.C. Fuller, who had been the commander of the Royal Tank Corps in 1918, a British officer, who had made these very same arguments, basically movement, use of armor, uh, close air support, all of the sorts of basic elements of the Blitzkrieg. He'd also been influenced by Captain B.H. Little Hart, uh, who also forcefully advocated aggressive armored warfare and an offensive strategy using massed concentrations of tanks. Hart, Little Hart and uh, Fuller had been largely ignored by the British high command, but Guderian had taken these ideas on, as had a number of others within the German high command. The general staff in Germany, although it certainly had taken... Uh, taken Guderian's ideas on board to a certain extent, remained dubious. Dubious uh, about what they saw as a revolutionary move in uh, strategic thinking. But Hitler was quite impressed. It was exactly the sort of thing that would appeal to him for for any number of reasons. For the political and economic reasons that I've already mentioned, but also I think just the sense of daring, uh, the sense of the unpredictable, the sense of uh, the aggressive, uh, the dynamic... Uh, All of these elements uh, were present in Guderian's thinking, and all of them appealed, certainly, to Hitler. In 1937, Guderian published a book outlining what would amount to a blueprint for Blitzkrieg. Guderian would not only be a theoretical thinker, a military strategist in that sense, he would also become uh, an operational commander of considerable skill, uh, executing the Blitzkrieg, in Poland, particularly uh, in the campaign against France and then also later in the Soviet Union. So, as the war began, 
Germany had was operating with this blitzkrieg strategy at these different levels, political level, economic level, and military level, all based on the presumption, quick war, no full mobilization, uh, and then one would move on to the next diplomatically isolated opponent, one after the other after the other. The problem, of course, was that the British and the French had not played ball. They had not behaved uh, the way Hitler anticipated that they would, and as a result, Hitler found himself dealing with potentially a two-front war. We're going to talk in the next lecture about the attack in the West. Uh, of course, one of the things that, that one discovers instantly about the war in September of 1939 was that although Britain and France surprised Hitler by honoring their obligations to Poland, there was nothing practical that Britain or France really was in a position, in a position to do to, to help Poland in the fall of 1939. British and French strategic thinking, as we will see, was still very much mired in defensive conceptions. There were no real plans for an attack on Germany which would relieve the pressure on Poland, and so the Poles were left to fend off the Germans by themselves. The period during which Germany is technically at war with Britain and France in September of 1939 all the way to the spring of 1940, of course, would be known as the Phony War, uh, the Drôle de Guerre in French, or the Germans call it the Zitzkrieg, not the, the Blitzkrieg. Um, Hitler, aside from being astonished at the British response, he has supposedly turned to Ribbentrop, who had assured him that Britain would not honor its obligation to Poland, and when the announcement came in that they had, Hitler supposedly turned to Ribbentrop and said, what now? Uh, completely uh, caught off guard. Another reaction surprised him on that morning of September 1st, 1939. Germans awoke that morning to uh, a radio news bulletin in which they discovered, uh, as their, their radio announcer told them, that Polish forces had attacked a radio station on the German-Polish frontier and that since daybreak, German forces had been responding with force. I don't think very many people in Germany thought that Poland had attacked Germany on September 1st, 1939, but there was considerable disappointment in Germany at this news. It, on that day, in the morning of September 39, September 1st, 1939, great convoys of troops began moving through the center of Berlin, tanks, trucks, and so on. Crowds gathered along Unterdain Linden to watch the troops moving eastward. It was not a replay of the summer of 1914 when cheering throngs had tossed flowers uh, at the departing troops. There was a sense of enormous depression. Hitler's popularity was, had been based to a very large extent on the fact that he had made great foreign policy uh, victories, had great foreign policy victories, and he'd done it cheaply. No war. He'd managed to not only revise but destroy the Treaty of Versailles with not one drop of blood being uh, spilled. The Gestapo reports are very clear about this. There was disappointment uh, in, with the German people about this outbreak of hostilities. And Hitler himself commented later in the day how disappointed he was that as these, this convoy of German military vehicles moved eastward through the center of Berlin, that the crowd had stood not applauding, not cheering, but in stony silence watching uh, the troops move east. 
the days of easy victory were apparently, diplomatic victory were apparently over. The campaign in Poland, on the other hand, was a terrific success. It was the first blitzkrieg and it worked according to the blueprint, the game plan. It was called Case White, and from the very beginning, of course, the Poles were, were frightfully overmatched. The Germans committed 52 divisions, 1 million men, to the, into the assault uh, on Poland. This from a, a military establishment that had, had 100,000 troops uh, five years before. The Germans possessed a great advantage in armor, 1,500 tanks to only 310 possessed by the Poles. Aircraft, the Germans had 850 bombers, 400 fighters versus 400 Polish aircraft, most of them the old World War I vintage uh, double-winged planes, all ob- almost all of them obsolete. The German plan called for a two-pronged attack from Army Group North and then uh, one from the South. The one from the South was headed by a general who would play a very important role in the course of the Second World War. He was 64 years old at the time. His name was Gefren Rundstedt, uh, among the most distinguished and important of the German military commanders of the Second World War. The plan was to smash into Poland, into two, in two great pincers, trap the Polish army west of Warsaw, and annihilate it. It wasn't to take territory. It was to destroy the Polish army in western Poland before Warsaw. The plan had been drawn up by the German high command, and it worked with even greater speed and fewer problems than its most wildly optimistic planners had believed it could. Warsaw was reached by September 8th, a week after hostilities began. The city resisted, although there were calls the Germans had hoped that the Poles would surrender Warsaw. The Poles refused, and in what was to be an ominous preview of the conduct of the Second World War, and one of the things that would certainly distinguish it from its predecessors, the Germans launched a massive air attack against the civilian center of Warsaw. The Polish army fought tenaciously, but was, of course, overwhelmed. I'm sure that uh, we've all seen still photographs or even some of this footage of at one point, Polish troops on horseback, the old cavalry units, charging across an open field, uh, in some cases almost with lances, certainly with flags flying into the teeth of these German armored units, uh, cut down and annihilated. The Polish Poles fought and fought uh, very tenaciously. But then on September 17th, the other shoe dropped. The Soviet Union moved across the eastern frontier of Poland to occupy its slice of territory. Attacking from the east, this Soviet onslaught sealed Poland's doom. In this confusion uh, that prevailed on the battlefield in these weeks, about 90,000 Poles managed to escape from Poland, going through Romania, through Lithuania and Hungary. Many ultimately reached Great Britain, where the Poles... I think this is also one of those things that one doesn't uh, often hear very much about. The Poles would represent the largest army in exile of the Allied forces during the Second World War, far larger, for example, than the Free French units that would go ashore and participate in the Normandy invasion. There was something else, the contribution that the Poles made in 1939. 
As the conflict broke out, the Poles had been working on something called the Enigma machine to break the German military code. It was a highly complicated piece of machinery, and the Poles thought they'd done it. One of those Enigma machines made, itself, made its way out of Poland and wound up in a place where it would not be used very effectively, unfortunately, and that was into the hands of the French high command in the West. But, another, uh, but that would be shared with the British. And this, although it had played no role in the operations in 1939, the Allies would take from that Enigma machine, the beginning of the breaking of the German military coach, which would allow us over the course of the Second World War, as we worked these things out, the British primarily, uh, to anticipate German moves, to understand what the Germans were up to. Uh, And that, I think, has to be seen as a contribution of the Poles to the war effort. Well, by the end of September, the Blitzkrieg had done its, its job. Poland had been devastated forced out of the war, Britain and France, as we've seen, were were unable to do much of anything. Calls by the Poles for some sort of help, for the British, the French to launch some sort of offensive into Western Germany, at least to pull the Germans back. They left the frontier virtually unguarded, went unheeded. The French were simply, their entire strategic concept was defensive. It did not call for operations in Germany. And although there were a few exchanges, uh, a few air attacks along the frontier, there were no operations launched by the British or the French to save Poland. By the end of September then, Germany and the Soviet Union had completed yet another partition of Poland. The war in the East was over. In the West, then, a strange lull would follow. Hitler would use this period from the end of the war in Poland in October, really down to the spring of 1940, to launch one peace initiative after another, over and over again, over the course of uh, December, January, December of 1939, January 40. February 1940, Hitler over and over again keeps trying to bring the British to their senses. He keeps believing if there's, that if he, can just, if he can just make the British understand that they have a place in his worldview, they have a place, he doesn't have any real issue with them, he doesn't want a war in the West. He's, he's succeeded in what, he, in what he wanted. He doesn't want to go to war in the West. He's not prepared for a war in the West. But, of course, the the starting point, the Ausgangspunkt, as the Germans say, for any discussion with the British or the French was that Germany keeps what it's gotten in the East. And this the British were absolutely um, unwilling to do. And so they waited. In the East, the war, however, didn't come to a complete standstill. Poland had fallen, but now came um, an odd interlude, in a way. The Russo-Finnish War in November of 1939 that would go on to March, middle of March 1940. Stalin was concerned that Finland would fall under German influence so much for the cooperation between Germany and the the Soviet Union. Finland was too close. It was too dangerous. He was afraid that the Finns would fall under German influence. Leningrad, the Soviet Union's second largest city, was only 20 miles from the Finnish frontier. The Soviets demanded that the Finns cede territory on the Karelian Isthmus, which would put Leningrad out of range of potential attack 
uh, from the north. A number of possibilities were open, exchanges of territory and so on, but ultimately the Finns refused all of these overtures from the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union finally launched military operations on November 30th, 1939 against Finland. In all of the history of overmatched opponents uh, in warfare, you probably could not find a a better example than the Russo-Finnish War. The Soviet, the Red Army outnumbered the Finns by 50 to 1. Enormous advantages in equipment. The Finns, everyone believed, would be utterly unprepared, certainly not be able to deal with uh, the Red Army. But the Finns under Field Marshal von Mannerstein, Mannerheim rather, fought with great skill and tenacity. One always thinks about the winter being the, the ally of the Russians. In this instance, it was the Finns who made use of it, wearing white uniforms, uh, outmaneuvering the Russians, fighting very well in very heavy, bad weather. One thinks one of the things the Russians probably should have learned from this is that you don't launch military operations in this part of the world in the wintertime. They would do it against the Germans later on with equally uh, dubious results. They found themselves really surprised with uh, the situation in Finland. The Red Army very quickly bogged down. The Finns fought with great tenacity. The, the Soviets were bogged down in the snow and the swamps and the dense forests of the area. They suffered humiliating defeats and heavy casualties all the way through this campaign, which was covered with great delight uh, in the West. In the end, of course, the Soviets would prevail. But one of the upshots of the, and one of the most important ramifications of the Russo-Finnish War was that it seemed to seal the bad reputation of the Red Army internationally. Everyone looking at this said, well, if the Soviets can't defeat the Finns, if it takes them this much time, this much energy, with these advantages, then the purges of the Red Army have really been even more devastating than we thought. This was a lesson that was certainly not lost on Hitler in Berlin. The Germans, when they approached the Soviets uh, in 1941, would have this as a background to their thinking about Soviet military preparations and the status of of the Red Army. One of the most astonishing aspects of of this um, at the time is that the French and the British, particularly the British, actually considered sending aid or even troops across Scandinavia to help the Finns. Churchill was very keen on this idea. This was one of those one of those ideas. He was he was not yet prime minister in Britain, but it was one of the it was one of the ideas which also gave him the reputation of being a kind of loose cannon floating around. One can only think of how the war might have looked different if, for example, the British had been able to project power across Norway, uh, Sweden, and into Finland. It was only really because the Swedes maintained their neutrality, refused to allow any sort of overflight or passage. And because getting troops uh, across through the Baltic with the German Navy patrolling there was difficult, that the British were dissuaded from this. But Churchill was very enthusiastic about this prospect. This, I think, along with his idea of attacking through the, quote, soft underbelly of Europe, close quote, uh, were military ideas whose time still has not come. At the conclusion of this campaign in the middle of March 1940, Soviet standing in the West was at an all-time low. 
The assessment of the, of the Red Army was low, and anti-Soviet sentiment uh, was rampant in Britain and France and in the United States. Here was this bully nation, this bully state, this communist state, which had now attacked small Finland, uh, and the heroic Finns had fought with great skill uh, to, to fend them off. The great question, as March turned to April of 1940, was not what was going to happen, though, in Finland or in the East. The question was what was going to happen in the West. Would there be a campaign in Western Europe? Hitler still had not given up reaching some sort of accommodation with the British, with Chamberlain. And so one waited. Would the phony war become a real war, a shooting war? Would the Droll de Guerre be over? Would the Zitzkrieg turn into Blitzkrieg in the West? That answer would come in May of 1940. We'll take that up next time. Lecture 6, The German Offensive in the West. Hello. Welcome to our sixth lecture in the Teaching Company series on the Second World War. In this sixth lecture, we're going to be dealing with the German offensive in the West in the summer of 1940. The stunning attack of the Germans into Norway and Denmark the Blitzkrieg through Holland, Belgium, and into France. We'll be examining the conduct of the war in, uh, on the Western Front, the, what one French historian has called the strange defeat of France, this rapid collapse of, of the French army and the French state in the spring of 1940 in a matter of 35 days. We'll try to examine the reasons for the failure of France in uh, this great moment, this traumatic moment, and the two visions of France that would emerge from these troubled days in the summer of 1940, a collaborationist France associated with the policies of the old Marshal Pétain and uh, the young lion, the colonel now General uh, de Gaulle. We had stopped in our last lecture with the observation that as the war came to a close against Poland and then uh, the Russians launched their attack on Finland in November of 1939, a, a, a campaign that bogged down and would carry on into March. The question was still unresolved about whether or not there would be a war in the West. Hitler had gambled, desperately hoping that there would be no campaign in Western Europe, had not counted on it, not wanted it. This was not the war he had planned, not the war he anticipated. But his numerous overtures to Britain in particular had fallen on deaf ears, the British showed no inclination to bargain now with Hitler in 1940. And so as the weather began to improve in the West, campaigning weather made its appearance and the anticipation was of a possible new German offensive in the West. That would come in April of 1940 as the Germans launched an attack in Scandinavia. The Germans had become convinced through their intelligence uh, reading that Great Britain and France were preparing to seize Norway, to seize ports in Norway to forbid them to the Germans, and Hitler ordered a preemptive strike and an invasion of Denmark. The Germans launched their attack on April 9, 1940. They quickly overran Denmark with virtually no opposition, and then despite some trouble, 
an invasion force of only 10,000 German troops seized Norway, the major ports of Norway. British and French troops arrived only to suffer defeat, humiliation, and were evacuated in May of 1940. So now Hitler had, with very little effort, secured his northern flank, prevented what he was convinced was going to be a British attack there, and now attention was focused on northwestern Europe, on the Low Countries and France. Would there be an attack? On paper, France seemed to be prepared. On paper, the French position was, in fact, quite strong. The French army was able to match the Germans in terms of number of divisions in the field. In fact, on the eve of the German assault, the French and British together employed 81 divisions ready to confront the 75 German divisions that would be sent into battle. The French also possessed parity in armor. It is not true that the Germans had more tanks. The French were on virtually equal footing with the Germans in this regard. Nor was it a matter of technology. The great German tanks, which would be the terror of the Western Front during the Battle of the Bulge and uh, to match the Russian T-34 tanks in the east, the uh, Panther and Tiger tanks of a later day, were not available to the Germans at this time. And technologically, these German tanks were not particularly superior to their uh, British and French counterparts. In many ways, the British Matilda tank was actually superior to the tanks available to, to the Germans. One could say, could say the same thing about air power, available air power. In May of 1940, the French actually possessed a numerical edge in aircraft, 4,360 to about 3,200 for the Germans. And the latest French models, especially of fighter aircraft, were not inferior to the best German planes, the ME-109, which would be, in the early days of the war, the best German fighter plane, uh, was matched by French counterparts. So, as one thinks about the fall of France that would come in rapid order in May and into June of 1940, it wasn't a matter of simply being overwhelmed by superior numbers or greater tanks, aircraft, and so on. The real key, I think, to the fall of France in 1940 was to, to lay in its military and political leadership. There were failures of military strategy, tactics, and organization on the part of the French that were key to understanding uh, their failure to deal with the Germans. British and French military thinking during the interwar years continued, and we've talked about this briefly, continued to be dominated by defensive considerations drawn largely from their experiences in the First World War. During that war, the French had been enthusiastic advocates of offensive warfare all through the First World War, in fact, even when all the evidence was in and these charges across no man's land had been seen to be quite suicidal. The French continued to hold to the view that an army infused with fighting spirit could defeat any defensive force. The élan vital, as the French called it, was the key to success. The effects, of course, during the Great War uh, were a little short of devastation. Suicidal charges, vast carnage uh, in all of the major encounters during the war. So after the war was over, the lessons had been drawn. French military planners, for the most part, were convinced that the emphasis in all future planning should be on defensive operations. How does one create a defensive position capable of withstanding a German onslaught? Pétain himself, the great hero of Verdun, 
1916, certainly emphasized this point. He would dominate military thinking after 1918, and his view was that the emphasis had to be on defense. There was another problem for the French, another factor in French thinking. With a population of 42 million, France had suffered the highest per capita losses in the First World War. There was no French family, no French village that did not have its grisly uh, lists of fallen heroes from that conflict. France could not afford casualties on the scale of the Great War. This had led in part to the construction of the Maginot Line, defensive positions, defensive fortifications, which would allow the French uh, to maintain the defense of their country without the kind of mass slaughter uh, they had suffered during the First War. Certainly there had been voices in the French military. General Etienne, for example, had believed that the tank would revolutionize warfare and advocated offensive thinking in planning for a new conflict. He had found enthusiastic support from a young colonel, Charles de Gaulle, who would in the course of 1940 be promoted to the position of general and then enter the French cabinet during the crisis days of 1940, both of whom believed in mobile offensive warfare. But the dominant strategic view of the interwar years in France had been on static defense and fortifications. Now, the British had a slightly different set of emphases we talked about General Fuller, about Little Hart, both men who had were really pioneers in, in developing what would become the Blitzkrieg strategy, emphasizing the importance of offensive operations, of massed armor. Um, but during the interwar years, Fuller and Little Hart were really voices in the wilderness. The, the army was the, was the stepchild of, of British military policy. The navy was still the centerpiece of British strategic thinking. Britain, obviously, as an island nation, had to maintain high levels of exports and services, shipping, insurance, and so on, overseas investment. And so the Navy was, as it had been literally for centuries, the centerpiece of, of British strategic thinking. All of those, the sea lanes and so on, had been disrupted by the First World War. Britain had suffered financially as well as in human terms during the war, and a new war Chamberlain and others thought uh, would only make matters worse. As a result, Great Britain during the interwar years was reluctant to launch any ambitious rearmament program. There was very little commitment, and certainly during the Great Depression in Britain, it was not as intense as it was in the United States or in Germany, but it had the same effect of sapping the desire to, to undertake any ambitious rearmament program. On the other hand, if the Navy was the centerpiece, the Army uh, the stepchild, the British were quite innovative in the interwar years in their emphasis on the Air Force. The RAF, the Royal Air Force, had become an independent service during the First World War. It was not uh, simply a part of the Army. And the Air Force seemed to hold out the promise of a less painful solution to Britain's security needs. The British would be among the first to develop the idea of strategic bombing. The Germans, the Russians, the Japanese, the Italians, all certainly had talked about the use of air power in the interwar years. There was, through the 1920s and 1930s, 
as one t- in military strategic thinking, a great deal of discussion about the role of air power in a coming conflict. There were nightmare scenarios painted. The next war would be a war of the massed bombers raiding civilian centers, panic among the civilian population uh, that would lead a civilian government to sue for peace. But despite the emphasis on this sort of discussion in strategic circles, none of the great powers actually undertook to construct a strategic air force. The Germans, with their blitzkrieg concept, had used air power as in, ta- in a tactical way for close support of ground operations. The Germans possessed two-engine bombers, nothing larger. The Soviets were the same. But Britain, in the 1930s, had begun, along with the United States, we'll talk about the Americans a bit later on, but in the 1930s, the British had really begun to think quite systematically about strategic bombing. That is, the use of air power not for close support of military operations, but to strike at the capacity, the industrial capacity of adversaries to make war, to attack their energy sources, to attack their transportation systems, to attack their industrial structures and their industrial workers. And it had begun to develop in the interwar years the plans to construct big four-engine bombers that would come to be the Lancasters and others during the, during the war, they would be able to fly long distances and to deliver, for the time, very large payloads against these sorts of targets. So for the British in the interwar years, the Air Force allowed them to be able to think about, well, this is a way to project British power. There's the Navy, that's the traditional way to do it. But now with the Air Force, we will be able to project our power around the globe using, uh, using the, these large strategic bombers. The British also, in the interwar years, began to develop fighter defense, new kinds of fighter planes, high-tech fighter aircraft, the Hurricane, the Spitfire, planes that would certainly make their presence felt during the Battle of Britain in the late summer of 1940. These planes were developed as pursuit planes, planes to defend the British Isles, to to defend the uh, kingdom against attack from the continent. And they had begun to think very creatively about this. We'll talk more next time when we talk about the Battle of Britain and the possible German invasion of of Great Britain in 1940 about the development of radar, uh, which was certainly very important, tied to fighter command within the British Armed Forces. But, having said this, the land army of Great Britain was very weak, despite the introduction of Britain's first peacetime conscription in the course of 1939. The British would send off to France the British Expeditionary Force, a relatively small contingent of British troops, to support the French in their defensive positions against a German attack. And in 1940, British troops had already departed for the continent to take up their positions in northwestern France, anticipating a possible German attack. Well, numerically then, the British and French position was not so bad. Technologically, it was not so bad. But once one gets to looking at command and control, begins to look at organization, then one sees all sorts of problems for the Allies. For one thing, there was a lack of unified command within the French army, which was particularly damaging. The commander-in-chief of French forces was a man by the name of Maurice Gamelin. He 
was commander-in-chief, but he delegated operational control in northeastern France to another general. Alphonse Georges was his name. So if you think about what this means, you've got a commander-in-chief of the French forces, but he has a separate command for the northeast of France in exactly the area that virtually everyone anticipates a German onslaught to come. This made, uh, to the British, made very little sense, but there were reasons, political reasons, within the French army for this. The division of authority created confusion within the French rank and file, within the French command structure. It was exacerbated by the fact that the two men disliked one another, uh, indeed disliked one another a great deal. Communication between their headquarters was poor, and Gamelin often lacked real knowledge of conditions at the front. Th- this is actually one of the most surprising things about uh, the war at this point. I don't think it's so much tanks and aircraft. It's the telephone that is, that is, is something, a technological advance that the French don't seem to be on to at this point. Messages passed back and forth between Georges uh, and Gamelin in the early stages of the war in the West by motorbike, by courier rather than by telephone. There is no sense, and you see this over and over again at French headquarters as the crisis breaks on them uh, on May 10th, 1940. They constantly underestimate the impact of speed. They just don't have any sense of, they think they're still working in 1914, 1918. The Germans attack. There's a breakthrough. Okay, so we have time. We pull back a little bit, send our mobile reserves up to the front. We have some time to get this done. But this is not the way the Blitzkrieg operates. They are, it, it's speed. They don't under, understand how speed had revolutionized the nature of warfare, don't understand the nature of the Blitzkrieg and with disastrous consequences. This lack of command control and unity of command was also reflected in a lack of political cohesion within the Third Republic of France. We've already alluded to the fact that French politics during the 1930s had been fractious, had been uh, confrontational, polarized, and certainly one sees this in the course of 1940 as well. De Ladier had resigned in March of 1940, succeeded by Paul Renault, who, like Churchill, in England had been a critic of appeasement and an advocate of serious military preparations for war for years uh, on end. Renault had been one of the only French political figures to be an enthusiastic supporter of the idea of concentrated armor units, armored divisions, which would be the key to the, to the Blitzkrieg. De Ladier, he kept on as Minister of War for political reasons. Renault detested uh, his, his predecessor, De Ladier, and that feeling was reciprocated. The two men didn't trust one another and communication was bad there. So political consensus was also uh, lacking. Renault held Gamelin in contempt, the, the general uh, in charge of operations in France. He was too old, Renault believed. He was unimaginative. Renault was furious with the general over the inept conduct of, of French operations in Norway. But Gamelin still was the most influential military figure in France, and he was in charge of the planning of the defense of France, for the Allied defense of France, really, and Belgium as well. He was certain that when the German attack came, it would come, as it had during the First War, through Belgium. He had developed what was called the Gamelin Plan to deal with this. 
On the one hand, there was the Maginot Line along the German frontier, which would protect that front from the Germans. There, were the, there was the Ardennes Forest, uh, which would act as a block to German armored operations. And so the real key was the defense of the approaches through Belgium. The plan called then for the Allies to send troops rushing into Belgium when the Germans launched their anticipated attack in the West. So the plan was the Germans will attack, we will send troops rushing into Belgium, catch them before they are able to get very far. The Maginot Line will hold the Ardennes as an anchor of our defense uh, to the east. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, and we will take up our positions on the Meuse and Dial rivers in Belgium. A complicating factor for this was Belgium itself. Belgium, and we've alluded to this in a previous lecture, Belgium had received from Britain and France guarantees of Belgian sovereignty, but Belgium was not a military ally of either country. And what this meant was that Belgium, in the, in the months leading up to the actual invasion in the West, Belgium had been at pains not to provoke the Germans. So British and French military units had not been allowed to move into Belgium in 1939 to take up positions. The French and the, the British were going to have to wait for the Germans to strike first, and then they would rush their troops into Belgium. King Leopold of Belgium did not want Belgium to be occupied again as it had been during the First War, didn't want the Germans coming in, didn't completely trust the Allies. And what this meant was that the Western Allies, Britain and France, had to anticipate positions without actually having been there before, without having staked out their positions, um, and this was, this was certainly a difficulty. Now, by this point, the Enigma machine was paying dividends. France was receiving information that suggested that there was going to be a German attack, that it was imminent. The information they received certainly suggested there was going to be an attack, as Gamelin thought there would be, through Belgium. But there was other information, too. Germans, the Germans seemed to be massing troops, not simply uh, along the Dutch and Belgian frontier, but also around the Ardennes. Gamelin simply ignored the intelligence and moved on with his plan. On May 9th, Renault, the, the premier of France, was so fed up with his high command that he fired Gamelin, tried to fire him at any rate. He was blocked in the cabinet. You can't fire the commanding officer of, of, the, of the French army, they said. And so Renault himself resigned. So now here you've got a situation with the Germans literally massing along the frontier. The French premier tries to fire his commander-in-chief. The cabinet tells him he can't do it. The French, the, the French premier resigns in a protest. Gamelin did as well. So at the very top, on, on May 10th, France has no premier, has no commander-in-chief. And on May 10th, the Germans launched their attack. The attack came just as Gamelin thought it would. The Germans sent troops, not exactly the way they had done it during the First War, where they had gone through Belgium, but not Holland. In this instance, the Germans launch an att a simultaneous attack on both countries. German infantry units move into the northern part of Holland, and German armored units move into Belgium with great, great speed. This was exactly as Gamelin had expected. The French and British then rushed northward into Belgium to take up their prearranged position, positions on the Dial and Meuse rivers. But 
This is exactly, of course, what the Germans wanted them to do. One of the troubling aspects, you talk about, French, about intelligence and the problems of intelligence. The troops, the French and British troops moving into Belgium reported an odd thing. The Germans seemed to have virtually total air superiority, but they were not attacking British and French troops as they moved northward into Belgium. Why were they not attacking? What were they doing? What was the point? Well, the point, of course, was that this is exactly what the Germans wanted them to do. They wanted them to rush to these positions in, in Belgium because then the second shoe would fall. A three, three panzer corps slammed through the Ardennes forest into Luxembourg and Belgium behind the British and French troops that had gone into Belgium and began a drive westward across Belgium and northern France, dashing toward the English Channel. They cut off the Allied armies that had rushed to the north. By May 20th, the Germans had reached the coast near the mouth of the Somme River. The general in charge of leading the panzer, there were two really, that distinguished themselves in this race across northern France and southern Belgium in 1940. One was Heinz Guderian, the father of the Blitzkrieg, and the other was a, a commander by the name of Erwin Rommel, who also would play a, a very important role in subsequent days in the war. At this point, Guderian now wheeled north. The, Fr the French and British didn't quite know what the Germans were up to. As the Germans moved more and more toward the coast, would the Germans turn south, wheel around and head toward Paris? Would they go north? What would they do? Well, Guderian now wheeled north toward the French Channel ports of Boulogne, Calais, and Dunkirk. He quickly seized the first two objectives and was less than 15 miles from Dunkirk when his commanding officer, General von Rundstedt, ordered him to halt on May 24th. Guderian and others within the high command all protested directly to Hitler. Guderian was itching. The British expeditionary force was caught. They were sealed off uh, with the channel. The German forces had them basically surrounded. Guderian was absolutely adamant that he had to be given the authority to, to charge on uh, to the beaches with his tanks and destroy the British who were trapped. Hitler, on the other hand, showing a rare burst of caution, sided with Rundstedt rather than Guderian, and gave the mission of seizing Dunkirk to the German infantry units who were moving down from the north from Holland. It was a, a prophetic decision. Why? Well, there were military reasons that Hitler and Rundstedt could certainly cite. The terrain around Dunkirk was marshy, uh, it was not good terrain for armored operations. There was concern, Rundstedt certainly had concern that the armor would get bogged down, that they'd be sitting ducks for British aircraft. There was another problem that they, he also raised, which is that these armored units had dashed across northern France and Belgium without really stopping, and they, there were maintenance problems. They needed to be able to stop, regroup, tend to the tanks, and so on. Anyway, they felt the British, were, the British were finished. They were caught. There was no way for them to get off. So it was just a matter of who was going to do it. And they were also afraid of a counterattack from the south. There's also another possibility that's often raised about this decision to stop the Panzers short of Dunkirk. And this is a political reason. An argument is frequently made that Hitler 
stopped the Panzers. In fact, Hitler later indicated something of this sort. He stopped the Panzers because he wanted the British to be able to evacuate from the continent, to show the British that this was not a war to the finish with them. He had no quarrel with them. He was going to defeat France. This is not the war he wanted. He had no quarrel ultimately with Great Britain, and so he would allow British troops uh, to escape uh, this trap on the continent. I always find that giving Hitler credit for a kind heart, even with political calculation, is probably a big mistake, uh, and I wouldn't put a great deal of faith in this. He certainly indicated it later on, but I think this is, is, is not a very serious consideration. The other possibility, and one that he certainly, that was important to him, was that Hermann Goering of the Luftwaffe argued very forcefully that he and his, his pilots could destroy the British Army without there having to be close combat along the beaches at Dunkirk. The British Army was trapped. The Luftwaffe would establish air superiority over the beaches, cut the British to pieces, and there would ha- there would be there wouldn't have to be um, a military operation on the ground. And so Hitler decided, in fact, to halt the tanks. While this was going on, the British commander of the expeditionary forces, General Lord Gort, began the evacuation of the beaches at Dunkirk. It really was, if Hitler's decision is often referred to as the riddle of Dunkirk, the evacuation of British troops off those beaches was really a miracle. It was an an incredible logistical feat. The British began evacuating troops off the beaches on May 26th. That evacuation went on until June 4th. They saved over 338,000 troops, overwhelmingly British, though there were some French as well who were caught and evacuated. The British used all sorts of ships, everything from pleasure boats to tugboats, anything that would float that could get across the channel to, to pull the troops off of the beaches. Meanwhile, the RAF, the Royal Air Force, the fighters distinguished themselves in protecting the, the embarking troops and the naval craft. It was a momentous, momentous development. Meanwhile, the Germans turned south. After the disaster at Dunkirk, the French had hoped to regroup. Renault hoped to rally the French people. Churchill made the extraordinary offer, knowing how little the, the, the British and French really care for one another in many respects, made an offer, an extraordinary offer, which was common Franco-British citizenship trying to keep the French in the war, that the French would have all the rights of of British citizens and so on, subjects, I suppose one would say. Um, Renault pledged to Churchill that he would make no separate peace. He brought Philippe-Henri Pétain, the old hero of the First World War, into the government as vice premier to buck up French resistance. Pétain was 85 years old at the time. He replaced Gamelin with Maxime Végon, another general. He was in his 70s. Vigan hoped to hold a line just north of Paris, but he didn't have his heart in this operation much either. Then on June 10th, Mussolini roused himself in Rome and declared war on France. With the French army collapsing everywhere, the roads of northern France absolutely choked with disintegrating army units, evacuees of all sorts, Mussolini uh, declared war, though he didn't immediately open military operations against France. The so-called Vigan line north of Paris collapsed, and on June 14, 1940, German troops marched into Paris. Renault and his followers wanted to continue the fight from French colonial Africa, 
But Pétain, who had, whom he had brought into the government to buck up resistance, urged an armistice. And on June 16, 1940, in the same railroad car in which the Germans had surrendered in, had signed the armistice in 1918, Adolf Hitler accepted the surrender of France. France was allowed to keep its colonial empire and its fleet. The Germans occupied two-thirds of France, the coastal areas in northern France. A new French regime was set up in Vichy with Marshal Pétain uh, as the head of state. And Charles de Gaulle, now a general, refused to recognize the surrender or the collaborationist Vichy regime, escaped to London, set up his own government, and began to organize free French military forces for a hopefully, a liberation of France somewhere down the road. At the end of June 1940, Adolf Hitler was the master of the European continent. The British had escaped with this miracle of Dunkirk, but there was no disguising the fact that Hitler and his allies completely dominated all of Europe. It was a victory on a scale that that Hitler in his wildest dreams could not have anticipated. It was the high-water mark of his popularity, the scene of German troops in Paris, something they had been denied for four years during the first war. They had now done in 35 days. The scene, and we'll close with this, of Hitler accepting the surrender at the armistice where he, and you've probably seen the film, where he slaps his thigh in jubilation. British propaganda people got hold of this, ran it backward and forward, so Hitler looks like he's doing a, a little jig over the, uh, the body of dis- recently deceased France. But it was a dark, dark day for Europe, for France, and for Western civilization. Lecture 7, Their Finest Hour, Britain Alone. Hello. Welcome to our seventh lecture in this history of the Second World War. With this lecture, we're going to begin a set really of two to deal with the situation, the very perilous situation of Britain in the summer of 1940 after the fall of France. It is the period when Britain stood alone against a Germany which had become easily the dominant power in Europe, the masters of the continent, when Britain now faced the very real prospect of a German invasion of the British Isles. In this first hour, devoted this, of this two-hour, uh, first lecture devoted to this uh, set of topics, we're going to deal with the German plans for the invasion of England, uh, Operation Sea Lion, as it was called. What did the Germans think they were doing? How are they going to go about planning this invasion? We're going to look at the British situation. Certainly there was a sense that this was a dire uh, and very, very dangerous uh, set of circumstances in which the British found themselves. But they also had some assets, uh, strategic assets, with which to confront the Germans. So we want to examine uh, Britain in this period, which Winston Churchill uh, would refer to as their finest hour. With the fall of France, suddenly, in the summer of 1944, uh, summer of 1940, The shock of this was just overwhelming. Probably no other surprise was greater in the entire history of the Second World War than this sudden collapse of France uh, between May and June of 1940. 
it had been anticipated that France would be able to maintain its defenses against the Germans. The French had the largest army in Western Europe. Certainly, there was a sense that, well, France would be able to defend itself with British help. It might be something of a replay of the First War, which would certainly drag out for some time. No sense at all. No one was prepared for the utter collapse of France after 35 days of combat. Churchill, addressing the British public, in the summer of 1940, after the fall of France, would say the following words, words which uh, were, would become hallmarks of this period of British resistance. And I quote, What General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I suspect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life, in the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. For the British in June, July... August of 1940, there was no aid to be expected. They were without allies. The United States still on the sideline with the Roosevelt administration chafing to find ways to send material aid to Britain. But Britain, indeed, as Churchill suggested, now stood alone to confront the German menace. The British chiefs of staff in this situation were in utter agreement that Britain could not win the war, indeed could not even continue the war, without considerable support from the United States. It was too much to expect that the United States would actually enter the conflict, but certainly material support, which was already flowing to some degree to Great Britain. Still, they believed victory could be attained by a combination of certain factors. On the one hand, the British believed in the policy of strategic bombing that we talked about in a previous lecture. So a bombing offensive against Germany, a naval blockade of Germany was something that was still considered a possibility. And Churchill was very keen on this option, was the support of resistance movements in occupied Europe, leading to insurrection all over the continent. The first of these uh, instruments weapons to be used against Germany, strategic bombing. We talk, we've already talked about the systematic destruction of Germany's capacity to make war, attacks on its industries, on its transportation system, on its sources of energy. This policy of strategic bombing was recognized as the only practical way for the British in 1940 to hit the Germans and indeed for the foreseeable future. The British army was still extraordinarily weak and no position, especially after Dunkirk, to think about any sort of offensive operations. But the bomber, strategic air power, was one way to bring the war home to the Germans. The RAF, as we've seen, had been independent since 1918 
and had begun already to plan for such a campaign. Churchill would give great impetus to Bomber Command, as it was called, in 1940. The construction of heavy bombers, large four-engine planes capable of, of taking significant bomb loads as far as Berlin were already under construction and some already operational, the Stirlings, the Blenheims, and then finally, uh, as we will see a bit later on, the gigantic Lancasters, which would wreak so much havoc over occupied Europe in the coming years. So strategic bombing was the one offensive option uh, that Britain had, this offensive uh, arrow in the quiver of the British government at this point. Another element was what Churchill had called insurrection, setting Europe ablaze. In 1940, he would organize what was called SOE, Special Operations Executive, Special Operations Executive was to be a covert operation. It was to send agents into all of occupied Europe. It was organized according to national sections. It was an F section for France, um, a section for each of the occupied countries, including Germany. Agents would be sent into these individual countries. Arms would be delivered to these these agents and resistance forces which they would organize, and then these resistance forces would carry out sabotage, espionage, anything to cause trouble for the Germans. These operations began very early on. Really, by 1941, they were in full swing. They would continue on very effectively all the way through the war. The important thing about SOE, this was not an intelligence-gathering organization. This was an organization for sabotage. This was to conduct covert operations against the Germans everywhere, to cause them trouble, to recruit resistance fighters in all of occupied Europe, to organize them, and then to provide them uh, with the weapons necessary to carry out their operations. And already in 1940, the British had begun to plan uh, sending small aircraft to deliver these agents. They were delivered by submarine. They were delivered by parachute dropping into occupied Europe. Uh, to cause trouble for the Germans. Now, at this point, of course, SOE, this is a pinprick. This is uh, something that will cause the Germans irritation at this point. In the long run, of course, Churchill had far greater hopes for this organization. The last option for the British, one more element of their policy at this point, was naval blockade. This had been extremely effective during the Great War from 1916 onward, Britain had slowly starved Germany uh, to death in the Great War, and this was still seen as an option for Britain. The British Navy was still very strong, and Germany was was quite weak. There were some worries about what would happen if the Italian and French navies were to be brought under German control, particularly the French Navy. So this was of some concern, and indeed in July 1940, the British took the extraordinary step of issuing the French. There was a call for the French to send their ships to British ports or to French North Africa, out away from the Germans. Churchill did not want the, Brit- the French fleet to fall into German hands. When the French, at, in July, uh, wavered on this a bit, an ultimatum was issued to the French fleet at Mirs al-Kabir in North Africa. The British saying, sail these ships out or scuttle them yourselves or we're going to have to take drastic action. And indeed, in July 1940, British planes attacked the French fleet uh, outside Oran and Mirs al-Kabir. 
uh, killing over 1,500 French sailors. What had begun two allies fighting the Germans, now by July of 1940, the British had launched an air attack against the French fleet. It was the low point of Anglo-French relations, obviously, uh, in this troubled period. The problem about this for uh, Churchill was that the effects of a naval blockade would be negligible as long as the Soviet Union and Germany continued to cooperate economically. Part of the deal that that Hitler had struck with Stalin, the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, was an economic agreement that the Soviet Union would provide Germany with raw materials and other necessities needed for the German war effort. And indeed, Stalin was very, very scrupulous about this. Regular supply trains arrived across the frontier into Germany. It was considered essential. So the idea that somehow that, that Britain would be able to blockade Germany, uh, this, this was a long shot, I think. Uh, it, was not, it could not be a replay of the First War. The German position was far stronger economically in this instance. They had now, really, in 1940, the Germans had the resources of all of continental Europe at their disposal. So a naval blockade... That didn't strike anyone as really particularly effective, but the British Navy was Churchill's strongest weapon, uh, and he needed to be able to find a way to use it. In fact, in 1940, the Royal Navy had to devote considerable energy simply to preserve, to maintain the sea lanes to Britain so that Britain would not be uh, blockaded or starved by German U-boat activity. More pressing than ways that Britain might win the war in 1940 was the stark problem of how was Britain going to survive. Uh, It's one thing to talk about war-winning strategies, another in the summer of 1940 to talk about survival, because now, as Churchill had said in the address that I quoted at the outset, a German invasion of Britain seemed, seemed imminent. In July of 1940... The Germans seemed poised for a cross-channel invasion, and Britain was woefully unprepared. The army was small, and it was still reeling from the disaster on the continent. 300,000 British troops had managed to escape from Dunkirk, but all of the heavy equipment, all the heavy artillery, the tanks, vehicles, had all been left behind, so that the British army, certainly the soldiers had survived, but the, the army was the British Expeditionary Force had come back in complete disarray. In the summer of 1940, there was no real fighting force, organized fighting force, uh, that would be capable of dealing with the uh, triumphant Wehrmacht. Local defense volunteers organi- were organized, but they were under-equipped. Uh, weapons from the First War, uh, muskets, all sorts of things drawn out, pitchforks issued uh, to British farmers to, to be prepared for a parachute invasion and so on. Um, the government publicly exhorted the population to stand firm. Pri- Churchill talking about we will fight on the beaches, we will fight in the streets, we will fight, we will never surrender. Uh, defiant language, certainly. But at the same time, privately, the British government began shipping Britain's gold, foreign exchange reserves, and negotiable foreign securities to Canada. In June and July 1940, over five billion in gold bonds and securities crossed the Atlantic, and the British war effort could now be financed from North America if necessary. In other words, the British government had already begun dealing with the very real prospect 
that Britain, the, the Germans could launch a successful invasion and the war would have to be continued from abroad. Indeed, evacuation of the government to Canada was already discussed and plans were made secretly to organize guerrilla resistance uh, inside Britain in the event of a successful German invasion. Meanwhile, feverish work was done along the coast. Beaches were mined, tank traps set, all sorts of civil defense arrangements made, uh, paramilitary training conducted. Uh, The British government, at this point, the British cabinet, secretly, um, entertained plans for the use of poison gas, if necessary, uh, to thwart the German invasion. That decision was okayed by the cabinet. The British were prepared to use poison gas, if necessary, in an extreme situation to prevent a successful invasion. It was clear to everyone in the summer of 1940 that the future of Britain would be decided in the next few weeks, possibly months, and it would largely be decided in the air. It was the ability of the RAF, the Royal Air Force, to deny German superiority over the channel and the invasion beaches that was going to be the key, and everyone certainly recognized it. In order for the Germans to launch this cross-channel invasion, they were going to have to maintain air superiority, establish and maintain air superiority, something they had been unable to do at Dunkirk. The Germans, for their part, now looking at the prospect of a cross-channel invasion, on the one hand were enormously confident. The Wehrmacht was at the high, high point, the highest, uh, uh, the apex of its reputation. Uh, there is hardly any way to describe the euphoria in Germany as a result of the victory over France. It was the high watermark of Hitler's popularity for Germans who had spent four years during the First War attempting to subdue the French, to take French territory, to reach Paris, and had been denied. This was finally the complete reversal of fortunes that the Germans in the interwar years had sought. The plan, the invasion of France, had succeeded beyond the high command's greatest hopes, And now they had to confront the possibility of a cross-channel invasion of Great Britain. Hitler had largely assured his high command that after the fall of France, that Britain would finally see the light and make a deal. That even Churchill, that great warmonger, as Hitler liked to call him, would have to be brought to his senses and realize that there was no point in Britain continuing the struggle. When this did not happen, however, the high command was given the responsibility of planning uh, to think about an invasion of Great Britain. And for the first time, the Germans confronted the realities of what that would mean, what an invasion across this body of water would actually entail. Unlike the German operational plans for the invasion of France or the invasion of Poland, both of which had been the result of months of staff planning, very careful planning, logistical calculations, and so on, Operation Sea Lion, as the German plan for the invasion of Great Britain would be called, was from the very beginning an improvisation. Not even the most rudimentary plan for an invasion of Britain had been drafted when France fell in June of 1940. High Command had no uh, contingency plans for this. And then on July 16, after numerous peace feelers to Britain had been rejected, Hitler authorized the high command of the army to begin plans for a cross-channel invasion. He gave them a target date. That target date was August 15th. 
One month. One month for an operation whose success would require extraordinary coordination between the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, which would require logistical uh, planning, uh, logistical feats that the Germans had as yet uh, not accomplished. These were the problems confronted then by the German high command. Their original draft, the Army's high, uh, original draft, and it was the Army that did the planning. What's interesting about this one sees what thinks about the Germans as being terrifically organized. But the way Hitler approached this was he gave the, the chief of staff of the army, Halder, the plans, uh, the, the order to begin planning. The army did this without consultation with the navy, without consultation with the air force. They simply began to plan. How would we, looking at the, looking at the map of, of Britain, how would we like to proceed? So the plan was drawn up in the original plan by the army and called for 500,000 German troops to land along a 200-mile coastal front in the south and southeastern parts of England. This plan, you think about this, a 200-mile wide invasion beach, in effect, front, uh, revealed that the army completely lacked faith in the German Luftwaffe. They'd seen Dunkirk. They had no real desire for a more compact landing area because they were afraid that uh, Goering's Air Force would not be able to achieve the necessary uh, air superiority there. And so by di dis uh, dispersal of forces uh, would, would protect them a bit more from the RAF. When this plan was presented to Admiral Rader, the head of the German Navy, he was mortified, absolutely mortified. First of all, he pointed out that he lacked the ships necessary to transport troops. There were not adequate naval forces to deal with the Royal Navy. Uh, how was he going to protect a cross-channel invasion force against the largest navy uh, in Europe? And he, the question of transporting troops, how are these 500,000 troops going to get across the channel? The Germans had no real landing craft, no amphibious craft had been developed, nothing like the Higgins boats that the United States would develop and employ uh, in the war against the Japanese in 1942. Um, they'd be given no thought to this whatsoever, no logistical planning, no technological planning for this. Raiders initially came up with the idea, well, they would, they would try to transport troops across. Well, they obviously weren't going to take ports. The British weren't going to allow them to sail into ports and unload. So without amphibious craft, what were they going to do? Raider came up with the idea of using tugboats to tow barges that had been used on the Rhine and uh, Mosul uh, and mine canals in Germany, literally to, t to pull uh, German troops across the channel. This, of course, was not something that, uh, that the German army was very happy about. I think anybody who's had uh, any adventure, any experience at all with going across the English Channel realizes that this is not a terribly calm or tranquil body of water. So one can only imagine what it would be like to tow barges, these long Rhine barges, uh, across the, the, uh, the Channel. General Halder of the army when confronted with Raider's objections, believed that an invasion on a more concentrated area would simply be suicidal. And although he never con directly confronted Goering, uh, it was perfectly obvious that he believed that the Air Force simply couldn't do its job. But 
the army could not budge Admiral Rader. He said, it can't be done. It simply can't. We don't have the ships. We don't have the landing craft. If you want an invasion front over 200 miles, this is beyond our capacity to do this. Rader convinced Hitler then to postpone the invasion to September 15th, to give him a little more time, another, another month. By which time, Raider hoped somehow to scrape together enough landing craft to ferry the army across the channel. When one considers the amount of planning, minute planning, that went on for months and months and months by the uh, Allied forces for the cross-channel invasion going in the other direction in 1943-44, one sees just exactly how slapdash this whole this thing was. This was an improvisation. This was something that Hitler never had intended to be confronted with. He didn't want an invasion of Britain. If Churchill would come, come to his senses, well, then, all right, there was this belief... I think a general belief that the, the momentum of German arms would simply carry them across the channel until, of course, they actually stopped and began looking at what this meant operationally. All agreed that the key to success was the Luftwaffe. Hermann Goering's forces would have to establish air superiority over the channel. Raider and Halder both agreed about this. The Luftwaffe would be charged with driving the Royal Navy from the scene and destroying the RAF. It was also called on to break the initial resistance of British land forces and annihilate reserves behind the lines. This was a fairly tall order. Goering believed, however, that the Luftwaffe would be able to subdue the RAF, as he confidently told Hitler, within five weeks. This after his failure at Dunkirk. Indeed, I think his failure at Dunkirk spurred Goering to, to probably promise more than he could deliver. Goering, with his usual bluster, was quite confident, but the Luftwaffe was going to confront some very daunting problems. Problems every bit as, as daunting as that confronted by the Navy and the Army. We talked about this a, a bit briefly in a previous lecture, but it's important to underscore it again at this juncture. The German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was essentially a tactical air force. It was built, it was constructed, its planes were there for tactical ground support. It had built a fleet of fighters, dive bombers, and medium bombers that were very well designed for that mission, but not for strategic bombing, not for long-range operations, not to attack industrial centers, not for a sustained campaign of bombing. Its pilots, their training, their equipment, were all geared for close support of ground operations and not for the sort of of task that it was now being asked to do. The German bombers were two-engine planes. They had limited range, limited bomb loads, and I think the, the Luftwaffe personnel who were actually charged with thinking of how to come up, how to deal with this, believed that they, this was going to be a difficult job for them. The Stuka, used with such terrifying effect in Poland and in France, this German dive bomber, which roared out of the skies it's, with its uh, landing gear down. There was an air vent underneath it so that as it dove down toward uh, the ground, wind howled through that vent, shrieking, so that as one after the other after the other came down, it had a terrifying effect on ground troops. It had worked remarkably well 
In the Polish campaign, where it didn't have to confront an air force, on the Western Front against France, the Stuka still sounded terrifying, but they were shot out of the air by faster British planes with terrifying regularity for the Germans. So now the Stuka was slow, it had little armament, uh, and would be terrifically vulnerable in the skies over Great Britain. The top German fighter aircraft, the Messerschmitt 109, a very good aircraft indeed, had an effective range of about 125 miles. So for the Germans, thinking about this cross-channel invasion, there were very real problems to confront. Hitler still, at this point, hoped that it would be possible to bring the British to their senses. This would not be this invasion would not be necessary. One sees, I think, in his thinking, his operational planning, if one can call it that, for the invasion of Britain, that this was, this, we see the fruit of this improvisation. We see the Germans had not planned for this war in the West. This had come as a shock. The fall of France, which had a, tr- a terrific psychological effect, terrifying psychological effect, it's the fall of France that finally jumpstarts the United States, for example, into uh, drastic production schedules and so on. Everybody had thought that France would hold out uh, for a long time. There would be time to, to gear up and so on. But now this, this was not going to be the case. The Germans stood at the channel. And yet, I think as one reads through the British documents and through the German documents in the summer of 1940, it's, it's a fascinating thing to see. It really is this duel, as the historian John Lukash has called it, between Churchill and, and Hitler. As you begin to read through the British documents, there's a real sense of panic. Panic. They've been, the French have let them down. They've signed a separate peace with the Germans. Uh, the, the Germans seem absolutely unstoppable. The Wehrmacht was at the height of its prestige, and Britain seemed absolutely vulnerable. Its army basically destroyed, largely defenseless. And this is when one begins to get the British beginning to send their, their gold reserves and so on abroad to Canada. And yet, as Churchill begins to look at, at the situation more closely, they begin to think about the prospects of how to defend Britain against a German invasion, and they think about it in reverse. What would the Germans do? How are they going to approach this? Then suddenly you, you begin to see, it's almost a day-to-day thing. After about two, three weeks, even in this desperate situation, there's a growing confidence coming out of, of Downing Street, a growing confidence from the British government that even with this, this unbelievable juggernaut that the Germans have created, that that channel is a very big barrier indeed. And that Britain did enjoy certain great assets of geography uh, and of training and technology that could be used against the Germans. The flip side of that is with the Germans, who after the fall of France, in this euphoria of thinking the world is, Europe is at our feet, as it certainly was, they now have to confront the operational realities of this cross-channel invasion. And the initial enthusiasm, there's a song that was sung in the, in the German military in the summer of 1940. I don't think it was heard very often after that. It's called Wir fahren gegen England. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Um, but it was filled with this confidence, this jaunty, uh, goodbye, my dear, uh, we're, f- today, we're, f- we, we're fahren gegen England, we're, f- we're, f- uh, going against England. 
But then when one looks at Admiral Rader, when one looks at Franz Haller, the chief of staff of the army, when one looks at Goering, it's only Goering who's talking very confidently at this point, and no one was taking him terribly seriously. For the Germans, the operational realities of an invasion of Britain were daunting and, as we will see, would prove to be uh, impossible to overcome. We'll take this up in the next section, in the next uh, lecture, when we look uh, at the Battle of Britain, one of the major turning points of the Second World War. Lecture 8, The Battle of Britain. In our last lecture, we dealt with the German preparations for the invasion of Great Britain. Germany, Britain, everyone understood that an invasion was being planned, that the Germans were attempting to, would be attempting to launch a cross-channel invasion of the British Isles. The prerequisite the point of departure for this was air superiority over the channel, over the landing beaches in southern England. Anticipated then by everyone was an air battle. That battle would come in the summer and early fall of 1940. It came to be known as the Battle of Britain, and that is what we will take up in this, our eighth lecture. We'll examine the course of the air war over Britain from July to October of 1940, the period that is usually referred to officially as the Battle of Britain. Look at the objectives of the German air campaign, the Luftwaffe's plan to establish air superiority. We'll look at the British countermeasures, some of the British advantages, uh, technological advantages, planning advantages they had. And then we will conclude with uh, a description of life in Britain under the bombs, living through the Blitz. The Blitz is the period, not so much in reference to the Battle of Britain itself, but to this longer phase of bombing uh, that Britain was forced to endure through the fall and winter of 1940 and into 1941, when the Germans shifted their bombing objectives from airfields to the civilian population and to uh, major urban centers. As the Germans and British both confronted the problems involved with a cross-channel invasion, the British held some significant advantages. We've talked about some of those in the, in the last lecture. I'd like to emphasize in this lecture the role of fighter command, the RAF. Fighter command was led by Air Marshal Hugh Dowding, who had led this element of the Royal Air Force for some time. The fighter command possessed two excellent fighters, both of which Dowding uh, had helped to develop, the Spitfire and the Hurricane, which flew at speeds in excess of 300 miles per hour. Uh, they were well-armed. They were highly effective operational aircraft, certainly the match for anything the Germans had at their disposal. Aircraft production for fighters had jumped dramatically in the summer of 1940, under the leadership of Lord Beaverbrook, appointed by Churchill to a new post, created during the war, the post of for air, the Ministry for Aircraft Production. 
Beaverbrook assumed that position on May 14 and began an extraordinary campaign for aircraft construction. Indeed, throughout the crucial months of 1940, when aircraft would be at such a premium, the British would actually produce more fighters than would Germany. In fact, by a ratio of almost four to one in the course of this crucial battle of Britain. Throughout the battle, the RAF was able to put up approximately 600 fighters daily to the Germans' 800. This part of the production issue here, and I I will say this parenthetically, Hitler constantly, even during the Battle of Britain, certainly after the fall of France, desperately wanted to shift the German economy back to a complete peacetime footing. He was always talking about this. This was always on his mind. We will see this come into play later on in more extraordinary circumstances in October of 1941 with the Germans deep inside the Soviet Union. He was eager to move back to a peacetime economic uh, schedule of production. As a consequence, the British, who were desperate in the summer of 1940, are producing like mad, factories going at 24 hours a day, something the Germans, incidentally, never got around to doing during the entire course of the Second World War, running factories on a a uh, 24-hour basis. So the British were, I think, driven, obviously, by desperation, driven by fear of this imminent German invasion, producing uh, at a quite extraordinary rate in the summer of 1940. Britain also possessed a technological asset of inestimable value, and that was radar. It had been developed in Great Britain by Robert Watson Watt, a team of and a team of government scientists. Its use for air defense was quickly perceived before the war, and by 1937, a series of some 50 radar installations the so-called home chain, covered the British East Coast and uh, to the north, providing early warning against approaching aircraft from the continent. Reports from these radar stations or from the Ground Observer Corps were flashed to fighter command headquarters outside London at Uxbridge. The country was divided into four defense sectors with its own, each with its own fighter group, Using the early warning provided by radar, fighter command could vector squadrons to the anticipated target area to intercept the enemy planes or to reinforce the sector under attack. The way the system worked was radar was effective in picking up the approaching German formations. That information would then be flashed back to Uxbridge, but at the same time, uh, this extraordinary network of, of civilian observers was also employed. They would then follow the approach, the, the, the communication between these ground observers and fighter command was also extremely important. The Germans never quite, I think, appreciated the role of radar when it mattered during the Battle of Britain. We'll see this uh, in just a moment. Uh, and extraordinarily never, I think with one exception, actually launched a systematic attack on the radar installations. Also of some value to the British was ULTRA, the ability to read German-coded communications uh, that we've talked about in the past. Reports from ULTRA indicated certainly that Germany was having some logistical problems. British High Command was informed about difficulties with the tugs, with the barges, the movement of troops to the coast. This sort of discussion we talked about in the last lecture about the problems of transporting troops across uh, the channel, uh, 
Ultra was also important in that it was a, the British were able to determine the location of German airfields in France and in Holland, uh, and also had some sense of Luftwaffe strength. What Ultra could not do was to help really to be very useful in determining targets or operational objectives of the German Air Force. In other words, it didn't, the British weren't able to follow literally orders coming down from above uh, to, to projected targets for a particular day or, or night. Nonetheless, with radar and with ultra in place, these were advantages, assets that the British uh, had and were certainly very thankful for as they prepared for this Battle of Britain. The first phase of the long-anticipated German air offensive against England would come in July. German bombers began to appear over coastal England on July 10th, attacking several port cities, Plymouth, Dover, Portsmouth, and others. For almost three weeks, German planes attacked coastal defenses and shipping, sinking over 40,000 tons, but never really denting Royal Navy strength in the channel. Uh, the British, of course, tried to disperse the fleet to keep it at the periphery. It didn't want to be caught in the, in the channel, uh, where it would be really vulnerable to German attack. Uh, but it was always lurking just off scene, as it were. Um, attacks on RAF airfields began on August 8th, but there was surprisingly little contact between the Luftwaffe and the RAF in this initial phase of the Battle of Britain. The great air battles uh, that one sees so much about were still uh, waiting to occur. Still, by the, by the beginning of August, even after these initial raids, which were nowhere nearly as intense as what was about to fall on Britain, the Germans had already lost over 100 bombers. With the invasion of Britain set for September 15th, the Germans launched Operation Eagle on August 13th with the objective of breaking English, the English Air Force in, as the order read, the shortest possible time. The targets were airfields, flying units, and supply, as well as the aircraft industry. It is, it, I'd indicated this a moment ago, but it's remarkable as the Germans, even after their first experience flying over these British radar installations, which were quite substantial edifices along the coast, as the Germans planned their attack on the Royal Air Force and all of the installations associated with it, they never actually targeted these, these radar stations. There was no plan to destroy them. So I think we see right away the, the, the underestimation, the lack of understanding of exactly how important these radar installations were at this point. The Germans inflicted terrific casualties on the British, shooting down over 100 British planes, but they also absorbed great casualties themselves. Moreover, British pilots were able to bail out fly again, uh, whereas the, a German pilot lost, uh, shot down over Britain, was lost. And one sees already beginning in this phase of the Battle of Britain uh, that, I think, romantic stereotype that one has from the Battle of Britain of the RAF pilots sitting slumped in their, their leather chairs, uh, looking like sort of a Cambridge or Oxford, Oxford College, their silk scarves. Uh, they're alerted. They race out to their to their to their hurricanes or to their Spitfires with the grass airfields, zoom off to confront the wave of German bombers coming in. Fight are shot down, bail out, are back in time for tea, 
another alert comes later in the afternoon. Uh, they're up in the plane and off again. This is a stereotype. It was the, bit, the, the sort of the stuff of Errol Flynn films in the, in the Second World War, the dashing RAF pilots during the Battle of Britain. It's one of those cases where the stereotype actually, I think, uh, is quite true. British pilots did. There were any, over and over again, one saw, in, if one reads through the RAF reports, from the Battle of Britain, of British pilots who were shot down, bailed out, uh, came down, were transported back to their units in the afternoon, and then were up uh, in uh, operations again later on in the same day, or certainly the next day. Um, So Germans uh, found themselves confronting English farmers' pitchforks uh, when they came down if they bailed out, uh, and so therefore were lost to the Luftwaffe. On August 24th, with losses mounting on both sides, the Luftwaffe shifted its objective to the airfields themselves, to concentrate on the airfields, the RAF airfields. It would be the crucial phase of the battle. During the last week of August, the RAF lost so many planes and pilots that replacements could not keep pace. Concentrated German attacks for the first time, left fighter command in a desperate position, and alarm swept the government. At this point, in the last part of August, there was, for the, for the first time, I think, in British ruling circles, government circles, a real fear, and certainly within the RAF, that if the, Germ- the Germans had now found the key, if they continued, if these systematic attacks in the airfields continued, the RAF was not going to be able to rebound. Uh, no matter how much Elan Vital the, the RAF pilots possessed, no matter how many planes were being produced by Lord Beaverbrook, if the Germans continued this uh, pointed attack, the Battle of Britain would be lost. Fighter Command lost almost 300 aircraft between August 24th and September 6th, far more than German fighter losses in the same period. But on September 7th, the Luftwaffe miraculously from the British point of view, shifted its priorities once again, redirecting its attacks away from airfields to focus on the city of London. It was a drastic change in targets, and its timing was absolutely critical. This shift in priorities, this is probably the, the, the critical element in the, in the Battle of Britain, was favored by Goering and approved by Hitler. It's often seen as uh, a reflection of the sort of Hitlerian uh, obsession for vengeance. The RAF had launched a surprise attack. It was a real surprise on the level virtually of, of Jimmy Doolittle's surprise attack on Tokyo in early 1942. The British, when they seemed to be down, out, the war lost and so on, launched an air raid on Berlin. The Germans, uh, Goering at one point had said, if an, if a, if a, an allied bomb falls on, on a German city, you can call me Meyer. Uh, there were jokes already by the end of 1940 that uh, Field Marshal, uh, Air Marshal Meyer has made a mistake once again. Um, the first British raid on Berlin coincided with a visit to the German capital by the Soviet foreign minister Molotov. Uh, and as Molotov and Ribbentrop were discussing matters in the foreign ministry, air raid sirens began to peel the wail uh, over the city, 
and uh, Ribbentrop and Molotov and company head to adjourn to the bomb shelters down beneath the, the foreign ministry. It was a somewhat embarrassing moment for, for the Germans. According to Molotov's recollections of this, Ribbentrop had just been saying, well, the British are finished. We need to, you know, we need to be making plans about uh, how the world is going to look after the fall of, of Great Britain. Uh, and having said, Britain, Britain is, is finished, Molotov responded, well, if they're finished, what, who's that up there and why are we down, why are we down here in the, in the air raid shelter? It was not vengeance for this attack on Berlin. I'm sure that may have played a role. Uh, I'm sure it gave Hitler a great deal of, of satisfaction to be able to then bomb the capital of, of, of Britain, to move away from this strictly military uh, target to, to extract some vengeance for this raid on Berlin. But more important in German calculations than this was a belief that the attacks in the airfields had succeeded, were going well, but now what the Germans wanted to do was to lure the RAF up into the sky that an attack on London, that a series of attacks on London would bring, would concentrate British fighters in this one area, and that they could be shot down. This would work to be to Germany's double advantage. They would be able to bomb the capital city, cause damage, perhaps damage British morale seriously, and at the same time, shoot down large numbers of RAF planes. That shift, however, was of decisive importance. London was heavily defended, and for 10 days in mid-September, bright, clear days, the skies over southeastern England were filled with formations of black German bombers droning toward London, where 2,000 anti-aircraft guns awaited them. Vectoring fighters to intercept, the RAF relentlessly attacked these formations of German fighters, and losses were astronomically high for both. But by mid-September, the result was clear. The Germans had failed to attain their strategic objectives. The RAF had not been broken. British morale had not cracked. And the Luftwaffe had been unable to secure the necessary air superiority for a cross-channel invasion. On September 17th, Hitler ordered the postponement of Operation Sea Line. It was a postponement technically, but everyone understood that this was it. This was, this was not going to be revived. Hitler was quite e- actually quite eager to do it. One, one senses almost relief on his part. This had never been part of the plan, this war with Britain. He still hoped that there might be some way out of it. He'd largely given up on Churchill. The idea that they could break British morale with bombing would still linger. It's one of the great un- unlearned lessons, I think, of, of the Second World War and bombing in the Second World War is you don't break civilian morale uh, with bombing. The British morale was not broken during the Battle of Britain or during the Blitz, which followed, nor would German or Japanese morale be uh, broken by Allied bombing during the war either. At the conclusion, then, in this period, uh, the Battle of Britain usually is is seen as lasting from July 10th till the end of October, because the raids continued on into the end of October. German losses during this period were 1,882 aircraft. A disproportionate number of those were bombers. RAF losses were 1,265. 
So huge losses on both sides. During the war itself and even in Churchill's otherwise, I think, really remarkably good and useful history of the Second World War, there's enormously inflated numbers on both sides. The Germans claim this, well, this is just sort of standard operating procedure for wartime claims. What is clear is that both sides had suffered terrifically. Up to this point, all of these air operations had taken place in the daytime. The availability of any sort of sophisticated aiming devices for aircraft, uh, well, there really was no availability. It was crude. Bombing techniques were crude. Air crews had to be able to see what they were aiming at. There was no sort of radar bombing and this sort of thing at this point in the war, obviously. Um, And daylight operations were enormously costly. Both the British and the Germans would draw this conclusion. And it was that you could not conduct major air operations, certainly strategic operations, in date in the daylight. You were simply asking for trouble. It was at this point, at the conclusion of the Battle of Britain, when it was obvious that the RAF had done its job. September had come and gone. The German invasion had not come. Operation Sea Lion was clearly on hold or ultimately uh, abandoned. The British had made it. They had survived through this summer of 1940, and as fall approached and the bad weather over the channel approached, the British had what they needed, which was breathing space. They had indeed survived, and they had survived alone. It was at this juncture that Churchill would say, uh, utter those famous lines, and I think it's in this period when Churchill delivers virtually all of these great speeches that he is so well known for during the Second World War. Uh, the we'll fight on the beaches, fight on the streets speech, uh, the their, their finest hour speech, but also the line, never in the field of human conflict, was so much owed by so many to so few, his reference to the RAF pilots who had done such a remarkable job in defending Britain during uh, the German onslaught. I have to say at this point that this was this this comment the never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few was paraphrased a bit later on in North Africa when hundreds of thousands literally hundreds of thousands of Italian troops surrendered to a very small British garrison uh, in the east. Uh, I believe it was Anthony Eden who said, "Never in the field of human endeavor have so have so many surrendered so much to so few." Um, <laughs> The Battle of Britain was over, but the German attacks continued. There was no longer a danger of a German invasion, but this didn't mean that Britain was was out of trouble. In September, the Germans shifted to nighttime raids. Nighttime meant uh, this was a reflection of their own mounting losses, and they're concerned about those losses. And it also indicated that they had largely given up on any sort of precision bombing. This was not, they were not after airfields bombing in the dark. They now shifted not only to nighttime, but also to attack London and other major urban centers in Britain. Indeed, the raids now became largely terror raids, either to break British morale or simply to continue pressure on, on Britain. In November, Germany expanded the raids to other cities. The Coventry raid, uh, which destroyed, it was an industrial town, but destroyed the old 14th century Gothic cathedral in Coventry, uh, which was 
I think for British morale, the sense of, the, the, you know, the Germans are barbarians. How can they be bombing? Uh, how can they be bombing these great cultural treasures and so on? Life in London during this period, this was, this was the period after the Battle of Britain when the nighttime raids began that is usually referred to as the Blitz. I'd like to read you a, a lengthy report uh, of life as Londoners began to live it in the fall of 1940. It would be a life that would continue on uh, with different levels of intensity off and on for the remainder of the war as the raids would, would continue, but certainly nothing like the intensity of these nighttime terror raids in the fall of 1940 as Londoners uh, were sent to bomb shelters, basements, the tubes, the, the undergrounds, the subways of London to escape the bombardment. This is from a, a public record of a report on the activities in the Smithy Street uh, shelter uh, in East London in uh, September of 1940. This record begins at 8 15 p.m. September 7th inside a street shelter at Smithy Street, Stepney, East London. Already about 35 people have crowded in. Some are sitting on stools or deck chairs, some standing. At 8.15, a colossal crash, as if the whole street was collapsing, the shelter itself shaking. Immediately, an ARP, air raid patrol helper, a nurse, begins singing lustily in an attempt to drown out the noise. Roll out the barrel... While Mrs. Smith, wife of a dyer and cleaner, screams, My house! It's come on my house! My house is blown to bits! Her daughter, 25, begins to cry. Is it true? Is it true? Is our house really down? There are three more tremendous crashes. Women scream, and there is a drawing together physically. Two sisters clasp one another. Women huddle together. There is a feeling of, of breath being held. Everyone waiting for more. No more. People stir, shift their positions, make themselves more comfortable. Then suddenly a woman of 25 shouts at a younger girl, Stop leaning against that wall, you bloody fool, like a bleeding lot of children. Get off it, you bastard, do you hear? Come off it. My God, we're all going mad. People begin shouting at one another. Sophie, 30, screams at her mother, You get on my nerves, you do. You get on my nerves. Shut up, shut up, you get on my nerves. Here, the ARP helper, the air raid patrol helper, tries once again to start some singing. Roll out the barrel, she begins. Shut up your bleeding row, shouts a man of 50. That's enough noise out of you. Outside, the gunfire bursts forth again. It grows louder, and now the ARP girl begins walking up and down the shelter between the rows of people, singing and waggling her shoulders. A fine-looking girl, tall and handsome, with a lovely husky voice. There's a good time a-coming, though it's ever so far away. An older woman to a young girl sitting beside her says, Why don't you sing? I can't. I don't want to. I can't, cries the girl. I can't. Oh, God. The singer tries to get people to join in, but they won't. She gives up and sits down. Around midnight, a few people in this shelter are asleep, but every time a bomb goes off, it wakes them up. Several women are crying. At each explosion, there is a burst of singing from the next shelter. Two men are arguing about the whereabouts of the last bomb. Suddenly, a girl cries out, I wish they'd bloody well stop talking and let me sleep. They talk such a lot of rot. It's such rot. That man, just listen to him. He's got such a horrible voice. Tell him to stop. Tell him I said he's got to stop. He's got a horrible voice. The girl's neighbor tries to calm her, urges her to try to sleep. 
No, she screams. It's no good. I'm ill. I think I'm going to die. By now, the women with the deck chairs are lying back in them, wearily rocking and groaning. A woman of 60 says, if we ever live through this night, we have the good God to thank for that. A friend says to her, I don't know if there is a God or he shouldn't let us suffer like this. When the all clear goes at about 4.30 a.m., there's a groan of relief. But soon, as the first people go outside the shelter, there are screams of horror at the side of the damage. Smashed windows and roofs everywhere. Smoke streaming across the sky from the direction of the docks. People push and scramble out of the shelter doorway, and there's a wild clamor of shouting, weeping, and calling for absent relatives. Where, where'd she go? Oh, we never should have, shrieks a woman, incoherent with anxiety. Others sob and cry and cling to one another. One man throws a fit. Another is sick. Later that day, in the windowless front room of one of the shattered Smithy Street houses, a young woman sits among the remains of her possessions, crying her heart out. It's her birthday. I'm 26, she sobbed. I'm more than halfway to 30, and I wish I was dead. London would endure these attacks for 57 consecutive nights, running from the beginning of September on deeper into the fall. Nor did they stop then. After a lull in the winter, they were resumed in March and April of 1941, as the Germans again began a series of terror attacks on the center of London and other cities. It was to become a regular feature of British life. And it was a preview, a dreadful preview, of what the air war would bring, not simply to England, but with far greater impact to the cities of Germany and later on to Japan as well. In late April of 1941 and into early May, the the air attacks on Britain began to subside. And then at the end of May, they stopped altogether. The planes, the German planes that had been such a, and made such regular appearances in the skies over Britain were simply no longer there. Where were they? Well, they had begun to move across the continent and were massing in what had previously been Poland. Hitler had given up on any sort of sustained attack on Great Britain and was preparing now for what was to be the main event the largest military operation in human history was being planned by the Germans. It was not Operation Sea Lion, but Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union. And this is where the aircraft had gone. At the end of this period then, of the Battle of Britain, and then the blitz through the fall and winter of 1940 and into 1941, Britain had stood alone, and Britain had survived. It was a major turning point in the Second World War. Lecture 9, Hitler Moves East. In the fall of 1940, with Great Britain still unsubdued, Hitler began to shift his attention away from this campaign against Great Britain, which he'd never intended, never wanted, and to focus on what for him had always been, throughout his political career, 
the primary objective, and that was to be a crusade against the Soviet Union. In this, our ninth lecture in the series on the Second World War, uh, this ninth, ninth lecture, we will now follow the planning of what came to be known as Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union, his, the factors that he weighed uh, as he made this momentous decision, and the planning for what was to be the largest military operation in human history. We also were going to look at the ways in which this was not to be a traditional military campaign. This was not simply going to be a campaign for geopolitical reasons to establish Lebensraum for the Germans in the East. This was an ideological campaign, a war to the death between ideological systems, a crusade against Judeo-Bolshevism, as Hitler frequently put it. So let's begin by looking at the background to what came to be known as Operation Barbarossa. We've talked about Hitler's ideological orientation. Certainly the Soviet Union played a major role in Hitler's thinking, his ideological thinking. He had, in his earliest speeches, and certainly in Mein Kampf and later uh, public uh, addresses, talked about the, what he saw as an inevitable confrontation between the forces of civilization, which he saw as National Socialist Germany, and Asiatic Bolshevism or Judeo-Bolshevism. Hitler used these terms interchangeably. We've seen how Hitler was determined to establish Lebensraum, living space, for the Germans. That meant expansion to the east. He had originally hoped that this could be done uh, by a blitzkrieg against diplomatically isolated opponents, Poland. It certainly meant expansion toward the successor states of Eastern Europe and ultimately toward Russia, the Ukraine and the, with its great breadbasket of Russia and the great mineral resources offered by the Soviet Union. These ideas were rep- represented the very core of National Socialist ideology and for Hitler the war against the Soviet Union was the main event toward which the regime had been pointing from the very beginning. A war in Eastern Europe was a virtual inevitability from the time that Hitler came to power. It was what his policies were aimed toward. And now, having secured, he believed, his position in Western Europe, he was impatient to turn to the East. And yet, there's something of an irony involved in this. Hitler, in Mein Kampf, had written extensively and certainly spoken extensively about the failures, the mistakes of the old imperial regime, Germany, that it had lost the first war because it had engaged in a two-front war. It had allowed itself to be bogged down in this two-front war, that this was the great error of the Kaiser and his advisors, his military, and that a national socialist regime would avoid this situation. So why now? Why, with Great Britain still unsubdued, turned to the Soviet Union in the fall of 1940 and began to give an order for his generals to begin planning an invasion for the spring of 1941. In the fall of 1940, Hitler was increasingly impatient. One sees this in a lot of his utterances to to advisors, to close confidants within the National Socialist Party, to his military men. 
Hitler had a, there was a growing concern. He had a growing concern about his own health. One sees this in his, uh, the so-called table talk, the Tischgespräche. He had sort of sycophantic uh, followers who were close to him. And as he would uh, go on in these long monologues over dinner, over lunch, would take down religiously what the Fuhrer had to say. We have these now uh, in a series of things called Hitler's, Hitler's table talk. And in this one sees that in 1940, Hitler was was afraid and talked about, well, what happens if I die before my life's work is completed? He'd originally thought about a war, the war that he now was enmeshed in, was a war that he had thought would probably come at some point in 1942, maybe 1943, but now here it was in 1940. He wanted to get this this life's work accomplished and believe in the attack on the Soviet Union. The destruction of the Soviet Union was much of what that life's work was about. And he could actually argue that the time was ripe. It is true that Great Britain was not defeated, but it was certainly eliminated as a factor on the continent. Despite Germany's setback in the Battle of Britain, England was extremely weak. It had survived, but it was certainly unable to intervene on the continent in any meaningful way. It certainly could not reverse the great tide of events that had swept across Europe in 1939-1940. It was hanging on and hanging on by its fingernails. So in this sense, Hitler could convince himself, and with some plausibility, that an attack on the Soviet Union would not mean enmeshing Germany in a two-front war. There was no real front uh, in the West. And he believed that the Soviet Union was particularly vulnerable at just this juncture that the longer he waited for an attack on the Soviet Union, the stronger the Soviets would become. Part of the reason for this calculation was the effect of the purges of 1937 and 1938, the purges of the Red Army that we've, we've talked about. We've alluded to those purges, but I think one really needs to understand the scale, the scope of these purges, to, to have some uh, sense of how they might affect military operations. The numbers, the extent of Stalin's purges, this is staggering. Of the 80 members of the military Soviet in 1934, only five were still alive in 1940. All 11 deputy commissars uh, were eliminated. Every commander of a military district, including their replacements for the first wave of victims, had been executed by the summer of 1938. 13 of the 15 army commanders, 57 of the 85 corps commanders, 220 of the 446 brigade commanders had been executed by 1940. But the losses didn't stop there. In fact, the greatest number of victims were among uh, the officers from the rank of colonel down, extending all the way to the uh, level of company commander. The army, the Red Army, was now under the thumb of the political commissars of the Bolshevik Party. The Soviet Union possessed an army of 200 effective divisions, German intelligence estimated, organized around infantry divisions. Although the Soviets had begun to reorganize and to create armored units, armored divisions like the Germans, learning their lessons from the German blitzkrieg against Poland and in the West, the process was only just beginning in 1941. The equipment of the Red Army was lavish. The Soviets possessed more tanks and as many aircraft as the rest of the world put together. And its manpower reserves seemed virtually uh, inexhaustible. 
But Hitler and the German military doubted the quality of the Red Army and its equipment. Mass, which the Russians had in excess, Hitler thought, was useless without leadership and without the proper sort of technology. It, it had been a truism of the old Tsarist uh, armies that the uh, Tsarist armies arrived too late with too much. Uh, the sense about the Red Army in 1940-41 was that it, it was true that it was enormous, and in that sense it was a, a terrifying prospect to think about this enormous military organization. On the other hand, Hitler viewed the Red Army as disorganized, its morale destroyed by the purges, and riddled with communism. The winter war against Finland hadn't done anything to to restore or change his faith in the strength of the Red Army. Indeed, uh, the Winter War reflected that just exactly how far the disintegration of the Red Army had become, how weak it actually was, having been bogged down in this campaign against Finland. You only have to kick in the door, Hitler told General Rundstedt, and the whole rotten structure will come crashing down, close quote. Hitler would say variation, would, would, would dilate on variations of this theme uh, over the course of the spring of 1941 and into 1942, that the Soviet regime was unpopular at home, it was corrupt, it was hated by its own subjects, and that all one had to do was to smash into the Soviet Union and the whole political structure would come uh, apart at the seams. General Halder who had been masterminded the campaigns in Poland and in Western Europe, was put in charge of Barbarossa. He estimated that the Soviets would be unable to resist a German invasion for more than eight to ten weeks. The military planning for this operation began in the summer of 1940. And by the end of July the decision had been made to attack the Soviet Union in the spring of 1941. The operation was codenamed Barbarossa, named for the medieval German empire, an emperor who had driven to the east, famous for his Drang nach Osten, this drive to the east. In December, in December 18, 1940, Hitler had issued a general directive with more specific orders, and then followed those up again in January. There was some debate within the high command and with Hitler over objectives. Hitler originally had favored an attack which would focus on Leningrad in the north and another uh, prong of the attack moving into the Ukraine toward Kiev. Most of the military men favored some sort of more concentrated drive toward Moscow, seize the political nerve center of the Soviet empire uh, and destroy it that way. All agreed that the destruction of the Red Army in Western Russia was key to either one of these objectives. Finally, as planning reached its final stages, agreement was reached that the objective of the operation should not be cities, specific geographic points, not necessarily Moscow or Leningrad or uh, Kiev in the Ukraine, but rather the key objective, the central objective, the mission stated for the German army with its invasion of the Soviet Union was the destruction of the Red Army in Western Russia. This, both Halder and Hitler were convinced, could be accomplished within two months, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less, if things broke their way. In one sense, 
the Germans, there was a geographic notion to this. The Germans didn't have any intention of, of occupying all of the Soviet Union or driving to the Urals and so on. A, a general line, a line running from Archangel on the Arctic Ocean in the north to Astrakhan on the Caspian Sea in the south. This is a, geographically speaking, this is a, this is a line of, of extraordinary length and, oper- and require a military operation of extraordinary proportions to achieve. It would, in short, be the most ambitious military operation in human history. Three army groups were assembled for this operation. Army Group North, now I said these groups don't necessarily have geographic objectives. It is to destroy the Red Army in in Western Russia. But for general purposes, Army Group North was was directed through the Baltic states with a general direction toward Leningrad. Army Group Center would be focused on uh, a drive headed largely toward Moscow. And Army Group South was aimed toward Kiev and into the agriculture-rich Ukraine. The Germans assembled 145 divisions. 102 of those were infantry units. 19 were armored divisions. 14 motorized infantry units were all assembled. 2,500 tanks, 2,700 airplanes, and over a million troops assembled for this operation. It was an extraordinary logistical feat. These troops were moved from Western Europe uh, to the east, assembled, and prepared to launch this invasion in May of 1941. There was one other aspect of the logistical organization for the invasion, uh, which, as the invasion began, didn't so much strike Europeans, but when American military people got a hold of the information and the, the data from the invasion, there was one striking aspect of it, of German preparations, that General Marshall and others uh, in Washington saw as more striking than the 2,700 tanks, more striking than the million troops, the 2,700 airplanes. The German army moving to the Soviet Union requisitioned 10,000 horses. For American military thing, there was a sense of, well, where are the trucks? How, how, what are these horses for? How, what are the horses to be used for? And we'll come back to this uh, in uh, a bit. The original invasion date was set for May 15, 1941. At that time, the high command calculated that the spring rains would have subsided and that the turf on the terrain in in the Soviet Union would be firm enough to support the blitzkrieg operation that the Germans planned to unleash. But in October of 1940, Mussolini, against Hitler's fervent pleas to the contrary, had invaded Greece. It was one more ill-advised military operation on the part of the Italians. Hitler had tried to convince Mussolini not to do this. He thought it would be a terrific blunder. He didn't need his southern flank in the Balkans to be uh, in question and didn't want British involvement in the Balkans at this sensitive moment when Germany was preparing for this enormous, colossal attack on the Soviet Union. The Italian operations in Greece were a fiasco from the word go. The Italians had jumped off from Italian-occupied Albania, attacked into Greece. The Greeks, like the Finns before them in the Russo-Finnish War, fought uh, with great tenacity 
uh, not only defeated the Italians in Greece, but drove them back into Albania and then followed them into Albania. The Greeks had became, in the spring of 1941, the same sort of heroes around the world that the Finns had become, uh, had been uh, a bit earlier. Finally, Hitler decided that the situation in the Balkans was, had become so unstable that he needed to send troops in to stabilize it. Therefore, in April of 1941, the Germans launched an invasion of both Greece and Yugoslavia. This is usually cited as a key variable in explaining subsequent events, particularly the postponement of Operation Barbarossa. Hitler postpones it until late June in order to bail Mussolini out in the Balkans. Since, as we know, the snows would come in the late fall in the Soviet Union uh, and German troops would become bogged down in the snow west of Moscow, this lost month of campaigning in the spring is often seen as being really crucial. And so this diversion of German troops into the Balkans, a key explanatory variable in the failure of, of the Germans to take Moscow uh, or to drive the Soviet Union out of the war in 1941. But I don't think this holds up uh, very well. It is true that that involvement in the Balkans did divert German attention. There was a postponement of Operation Barbarossa, but I think probably more than Mussolini's misadventures in Greece. The weather in Eastern Europe uh, was far more important. The spring of 1941 was unusually wet. In fact, I think, uh, um, just looking at w the... Uh, weather in Eastern Europe over the past uh, last spring, where there was enormous flooding in Poland and in Eastern Europe. It was the wettest spring since 1941. Uh, it was unusually wet, and the rivers in Poland were flooded until early June. So tanks needed hard terrain, the roads in the Soviet Union were primitive, uh, and Hitler decided to postpone the attack until June. The new date for the invasion uh, was June 22nd, 1941. It was 129 years to the day after Napoleon had launched his disastrous invasion of Imperial Russia in 1812. It's interesting that as the Germans began to mass troops along their frontier, now remember the German-Russian frontier is in Poland now. Poland has, has basically vanished. So Russian troops have moved west. Soviet intelligence was very good. The Soviets possessed the best spy system uh, in the world at this point. And Stalin had been receiving intelligence reports from a spy ring in Japan, uh, Soviet spy ring in Japan, which indicated that the Germans were moving troops to the east were, uh, and planning an attack. Churchill's information from the breaking of the German code, the, the, the British and the United States were providing the Soviets with information to suggest that the, the Germans were up to no good. In fact, they were planning an invasion of the Soviet Union. And Stalin steadfastly refused to heed these warnings. Among other things, Stalin was quite concerned that what Churchill, in his desperation, was trying to do was simply stir up trouble between the Soviet Union and its ally, Germany. He didn't want, he was afraid that this was, that Churchill was simply being wily uh, and shrewd uh, and trying to provoke some sort of incident between Germany and the Soviet Union uh, to break that alliance uh, to save Britain. Uh, and as a consequence, he 
did not inform his military commanders in western Poland about German troop movements. Even they, uh, the local commanders, began receiving reports, uh, indications of German flyovers uh, that were clearly unusual. There was a case of a German deserter who had gone across the lines and, and uh, reported to the local Soviet commanders that, the, that a huge military operation was in the offing, but to no, to no avail. As the Germans began their preparations, the, the huge logistical preparations for this invasion, they also began preparations of another sort, preparations to indoctrinate their troops for the campaign against the Red Army. This was to be a war unlike the war against Poland. It was going to be a war radically different from the war that had just been conducted in Western Europe. This was going to be an ideological conflict, a war to the finish. A decree had been issued by Hitler in the late days of May, indicating to the high command that they should prepare the troops for the sort of war they were about to embark upon. And in the last days before the invasion, a series of directives were drafted by the high command and National Socialist officials to be read to German troops, all German troops going into the Soviet Union. I'd like to quote from them. They give us a chilling preview of what this war in the East would be. In the struggle against Bolshevism, one of these directives read, we must not assume that the enemy's conduct will be based on principles of humanity or of international law. In particular, hateful, cruel, and inhuman treatment of our prisoners is to be expected from political commissars of all kinds as the real carriers of resistance. The troops must be advised, number one, in this struggle, consideration and respect for international law with regard to these elements are wrong. They are a danger for our own security and for the rapid pacification of the conquered territory. Two, the originators of barbaric Asiatic methods of warfare are the political commissars of the Bolshevik party. Accordingly, measures must be taken against them immediately and with full severity. Accordingly, whether captured in battle or offering resistance, they are in principle to be disposed of by arms. This was the infamous commissar order issued to the high, by the high command, by Hitler actually in the high command of the troops. On June 4th, those were elaborated, that order was elaborated in another fashion for troops going into the Soviet Union. It stated, Bolshevism is the mortal enemy of the National Socialist German people. Germany's struggle is directed against this destructive ideology and its carriers. This struggle demands ruthless and energetic measures against Bolshevik agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, Jews, and the complete elimination of every active or passive resistance. The wording of that is very important. Troops going into the Soviet Union were told, therefore, you're going to encounter, in addition to the Red Army, for other sources of resistance. Bolshevik agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, 
and Jews. Well, Bolshevik agitators didn't exactly show up and register themselves with the oncoming German army. Saboteurs obviously don't. Guerrillas don't. But the one group in that list that proved to be extraordinarily vulnerable was the Jewish community of eastern Poland and the Soviet Union. And they now become targets. A few days after the invasion began, these directives were followed up by a series of others. General Marshal, Field Marshal Walter von Reichenau, commander of the 6th Army, issued another statement to elaborate on this, uh, which Hitler saw as being uh, capturing particularly the essence of combat against the Soviets. With respect to the conduct of troops toward the Bolshevik system, vague ideas are still widely prevalent, Reichenau wrote. The most essential aim of this campaign against the Jewish Bolshevist system is the complete crushing of its means of power and the extermination of Asiatic influence in the European region. This poses tasks for the troops that go beyond the one-sided routine of conventional soldiering. In the eastern region, the soldier is not merely a fighter according to the rules of the art of war, but also the bearer of an inexorable national idea and the avenger of all bestialities inflicted upon the German people and its racial kin. Therefore, the soldier must have full understanding for the necessity of a severe but just atonement on Jewish subhumanity. An additional aim in this is to nip in the bud any revolts in the rear of the army, which, as experience proves, have always been instigated by Jews. Now these, what I've just quoted, these are not internal National Socialist documents. These are directives issued by the German army for the conduct of its troops in the Soviet Union, acting on what they thought were, was the will of the Fuhrer. The Soviet Union had not signed the Geneva Accords. And so, in one sense, the rules of war, the, of international law, were not going to apply. But what the German army was being told heading into the Soviet Union was this is basically going to be a war without rules. That this is a fight to the finish, an utter, complete, ideological conflict in which no quarter will be given. Don't anticipate one and don't give one yourself. Just a little after daybreak on June 22, 1941, a train traveling west from Soviet-occupied territory crossed uh, a bridge. It was, the la it was a delivery of raw materials to the Germans. The German troops that were crouching on the other side of the river watched as the train came across the bridge, making sure that this last delivery of raw materials was made. It crossed the bridge, and just after sunup, the Germans launched Operation Barbarossa. They caught the Russians utterly by surprise, utterly unprepared. By pushing the frontier to the west, the Ru Stalin may have bought time, but he exposed those units to exactly the sort of large-scale pincer movements that the Germans had perfected. Within the first 24 hours, the Germans would inflict tens of thousands of casualties on the Russians, would take close to 100,000 prisoners, and the, the Red Air Force, the Soviet Air Force, which was the largest in the world, was caught almost entirely on the ground. 1,200 Soviet aircraft were destroyed in less than 24 hours, the, almost all of them on the ground. 
when on the following day the Soviet Air Force ordered a, a, a counterattack with Soviet bombers. They took off from positions that the Germans already knew, and they were annihilated in the air. The Soviets would now confront a German army with terrific material, with a plan that they believed was, uh, they were convinced would work, now without air cover uh, and without the sort of political support they believed was necessary, without the intelligence that was crucial. Within 24 hours, the German army had inflicted upon the Soviets a bigger defeat uh, than the Germans had inflicted upon any of their opponents in the West. Everything had gone exactly as Hitler had anticipated. The Red Army appeared to be exactly the sort of weak, politically corrupt, inefficient organization that his military had suggested that it would be. You only have to kick in the door, Hitler had said, and the whole rotten structure will come crumbling down. There was one other thing that Hitler had said, though, that was also uh, very prophetic. Convinced as he was of victory, he also added, in war, anytime when you launch an operation, you go to war, it's like opening the door into a dark room. You think you know what's there. You think you know where the furniture is arranged, but you never really know until you step inside. The Germans had just stepped inside Soviet-occupied territory on June 22nd, and the Soviets were not to be the only ones who were surprised. We'll take this up in our next lecture. Lecture 10, The Germans Before Moscow. On June 22, 1941, the Germans launched Operation Barbarossa against the Soviet Union. It was the largest military operation in human history. It was, without question, Hitler's greatest gamble of the Second World War. For 24 hours, the National Socialist Plan, the Nazi Plan, worked to perfection, capturing over tens of thousands of Russian prisoners, inflicting terrific casualties on the Soviets, and the operation, this great three-pronged attack in the Soviet Union, was off to a tremendous start. In this, our tenth lecture of the series on the Second World War, we're going to examine the German campaign in the Soviet Union in the summer and fall of 1941 to try to determine whether or not the Nazis could have won in the Soviet Union in this initial phase of the campaign, whether their failure to take Moscow in this summer and fall campaign would prove to be fatal for the regime, whether it marks a terrific turning point in the war. Certainly, in those first days, the campaign went spectacularly for the Germans. Army Group North drove 155 miles through Lithuania and into Latvia in five days alone, movement on a scale unprecedented in European history. By July 10th, German armor was within 80 miles of Leningrad in the north. Army Group Center carried out two gigantic encirclements of large Russian forces, one near Minsk, the second near Smolensk, 200 miles farther east in mid-July, capturing almost 500,000 Russian prisoners and inflicting horrendous casualties. 
On August 5th, the last resistance in the city of Smolensk came to an end. The Germans in Army Group Center had covered 440 miles in 23 days and were only 200 miles from Moscow. Army Group South found the going a bit slower, encountering fierce resistance in the Ukraine, but still German units were moving steadily forward. General Franz Halder, the Army Chief of Staff and the man most responsible for the planning of the campaign, wrote on his birthday, June 30th, quote, the Russians lost this war in the first eight days, close quote. And just a few days later, on July 3rd, he noted in his diary, and I quote again, on the whole, one can say that the task of smashing the mass of the Russian army has been fulfilled. It is probably not too much to say when I assert that the campaign against Russia has been won within two weeks. But the Germans, despite their astonishing gains, were confronting some disquieting problems. The groups, army groups, particularly army group center in north, had begun to distance their supplies and were encountering mechanical difficulties, especially the armored units. The roads and the terrain in the Soviet Union are not ex- were not exactly what they had expected. Looking at the map, the Germans had, and they'd done reconnaissance, they thought they understood what they were getting themselves into, but looking at the map of the Soviet Union, they had what seemed to be major roadways, uh, modern roadways, up, in, upon encountering them, they discovered in many cases were nothing more than sort of dirt tracks, sometimes gravel, hardly su- the, the superhighways, the autobahns that the Germans had been building in Germany since the early 30s. The terrain was much more difficult, the transportation more difficult, the roads far cruder than the Germans had anticipated. Nor was the Red Army behaving quite the way the Germans thought. The Russians had been roundly defeated, routed. The Blitzkrieg was working as if by textbook. And yet, the Russians didn't seem to understand that they were defeated. They weren't playing. They hadn't read the text. Um, one, one gets, on the one hand, a sense of tremendous euphoria. I mean, the Blitzkrieg, hundreds of miles, hundreds of thousands of prisoners, terrific casualties inflicted on the Red Army, and yet... And yet, the Russians aren't behaving the way, for example, the French or the Belgians had before them, or the Poles. You can imagine the frustration back at army headquarters, Hitler's headquarters, looking as one looks as the pins move in the map, uh, and the lines are drawn in the map. Each day, the army groups move deeper and deeper into the Soviet Union. Each day, the after-action reports disclose hundreds of thousands of Russian prisoners of war, Russians surrendering in incredible numbers, terrific casualties, unbelievable casualties inflicted on the Soviets. And yet... The Russians fought tenaciously, even when there was little or no hope of, of uh, prevailing. And they were inflicting terrific casualties on the Germans as well. One of the problems that the Germans encountered was the problem of their own making. We discussed in the last lecture these extraordinary orders given to directives given to the German troops entering the Soviet Union about this was a war without, uh, without, given, without quarter, a fight to the finish. Don't expect uh, humane treatment if, if you're captured. Therefore, don't necessarily take prisoners yourself. Um, the, Russian, the German behavior in the Soviet Union was so brutal from the very outset 
that Russians, despite the fact that the Germans captured hundreds of thousands of them, the other Russians, if there was any option of fighting on, they did, even when there was very little chance of, of survival, in part because they didn't want to fall into German, into German hands. Moving along, this is not a topic for uh, this lecture's discussion, but we will certainly come to it. Moving along almost with the troops in the Soviet Union were special SS commando units called Einsatzgruppen. These SS units were given, quote, special orders, special tasks. They were to move against the saboteurs, guerrillas, and Jews in the Soviet Union. And so all across the Eastern Front, along with the military operations, which are going swimmingly for the Germans, these Einsatzgruppen, these special SS commando units, were conducting a bloodbath all over uh, the, the Soviet Union, wherever the German troops moved. We're killing, we estimate, we do not, no one knows for certain, but it is estimated these Einsatzgruppen would kill almost a million uh, Soviets within the first few months of the war, mostly Jews. Uh, but it was a distinction that for, if you were on the receiving end of this, was not an easy one to make. The, the Germans were behaving in the Soviet Union like the barbarians they maintained that the Soviets were. And as a consequence, these Russian units, if there was any hope, falling into German hands was, was, was death, they assumed. And so they fought with incredible tenacity against the Germans. There was a second reason, too. Stalin, who, as the invasion had broken uh, on his western frontier, had gone almost into seclusion for about 48 hours, afraid of assassination because he had ignored so much of the intelligence suggesting a German attack. Stalin rallied, and the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, and, and the political commissars in these army units were also instructed, given very clear instructions, if, if people break ranks and begin to run, to retreat, this is desertion, and these people are to be shot instantly. So if you're a, 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 a soldier in the Red Army, you've got the Germans in front of you behaving in one barbarous fashion. You've got the NKVD behind you acting in another. There's a particularly chilling description of this. This comes a bit later on in this this first attack into the Soviet Union, actually from the siege of, of Kiev, but I think is worth, is worth reading to get some sense of the position that these troops found themselves in. Talking about a Russian unit, as the Germans advanced in this Russian unit in around Kiev, um, a German watching this wrote, Stalin presided over their death, for specially trained electricians had rigged up apparatuses and played recordings of his speeches to the defenders of key positions. This is around Kiev. During the fighting, the words of Stalin, magnified to gigantic proportions by the loudspeakers, rained down on the men kneeling in holes behind the tripods of their machine guns. Din in the ears of the soldiers lying amid the shrubs of the, of the wounded writhing in agony upon the ground. The loudspeaker imbues that voice with a harsh, brutal, metallic quality. There is something diabolical and at the same time terribly naive about these soldiers who fight to the death, spurred on by Stalin's speech on the Soviet Constitution. By the slow, deliberate recital of the moral, social, political, and military precepts of the party. About these soldiers who never surrender. About these dead scattered all around me. About the, f the final gestures, the stubborn, violent gestures of these men who died so terribly, lonely a death on this battlefield amid the deafening roar of the cannon and the ceaseless braying of the loudspeaker.
the Russians then would expect a, a very high price from the Germans as the Germans put, moved deeper and deeper into the Soviet Union. Even the lack of coordination confused and perplexed the Germans. Communications between Moscow and top military headquarters in the front had broken down as the Germans made these great uh, advances into the Soviet Union. As a consequence, a great many military units cut off from uh, the rear by this breakdown in communication, confronting the Germans simply fought on in their own way, unco- uncoordinated military activity along the front. And this confused the Germans. They couldn't figure out what, what was going on. Was there a plan to this? Why was this unit moving here or there? Was this part of an overall plan? It wasn't, but the Germans certainly certainly did not know that. What one sees already in at the end of the first month of the campaign, that is by the end of July, is that the panzer leaders uh, in these three German army groups are still wildly enthusiastic about the campaign. This is going to them absolutely according to the book. Huge pincer movements, they break through these Russian lines, roar across this flat uh, Soviet terrain, uh, m- moving quickly, uh, Making closing the pincer movement, uh, the closing the pincers on these Germans. So the panzer leaders remain tremendously optimistic, very keen on the operation. But the infantry units that were following them in, the motorized infantry, and then behind them, at what I often refer to as the bottom of the food chain, the infantrymen who are walking their way into this, who are having to quote clean up the final resistance. The infantry officers had begun to have a very different view of what the war in the East was all about. For the panzer leaders, it was movement, close the, close the encirclement, move on for another one. For the infantry units, these were the people who were closing with and fighting with the Russians at close quarters, and this, this was a war that they hadn't anticipated. It's true that the Russians were being pushed back. They were surrendering. They were being killed, wounded in massive numbers, and yet... As one, per, as one German wrote Holmes, this is not like France. This is not, uh, which was, he suggested, um, maneuvers with live ammunition. This was, this was real combat and of a sort uh, that was, was unnerving. Especially as the Germans drove deeper into Russia, they left behind thousands of enemy troops, stragglers, partisans, who sniped at them, who made hit-and-run attacks on them, small units, platoons, companies of, of Red Army units that now became partisans, who simply lived off the land far behind German lines. When certainly the Germans didn't know where they would show up or how they would behave. One sees in the letters written home by German soldiers and also the entries into the German war diaries, uh, many instances where far, far, far behind what the Germans thought were the front lines, a company-sized Red Army unit would show up and launch an attack. This, this was something that made life behind the lines difficult for the Germans. And that the, that the Soviets were fighting with everything they had available to them. They may not have had, the Germans had maintained, believed German intelligence had led the high command to believe that Soviet military technology was crude. Um, and in these early days, it certainly seemed that, as if that were the case, the, the Russian Air Force and so on. But even the crudeness of the way with which the Russians fought proved to be unnerving to the ordinary soldier who found himself confronted with the Red Army and its remnants in the East. One instance of this, uh, which I'd like to, to read you, an, an entry from 
one German who survived an attack far behind German lines uh, on the main highway from uh, Korosten to Kiev, um, the map depot of the 6th Army. It was just taken up a bivouac in a village uh, far, as I said, behind German lines. We had no proper sentries, the man wrote. Just a few men strolling about with their rifles slung over their shoulders as the whole of the 16th motorized was meant to be between us and the Russians. There was quite a lot of fraternization with the villagers. I remember that some of them had never seen a lemon before. Then the inhabitants began to withdraw to their homes. We thought that seemed a little peculiar, and soon the village was completely empty of Russians. A short time afterward, there was the sound of horses and a dust cloud to the south. Some people said that it was a supply column from one of the Hungarian divisions. It was a Hungarian division fighting alongside the Germans in the invasion. Then they were upon us, like an American film of the Wild West, sturdy little horses riding at a gallop through our camp. Some of the Russians were using submachine guns. Others were swinging sabers. I saw two men killed by the sword less than 10 meters from me. Think of that, 80 years after the Austro-Prussian War. They had towed up a number of those heavy two-wheeled machine guns. After a few minutes, whistles began to blow and the horsemen faded away. The machine gunners started blasting it, blasting us at very close ranges with enfilade fire. Soon tents and lorries were ablaze, and through it all the screams of the wounded men caught in the flames. This kind of behind-the-lines attack was something that the Germans in their planning simply hadn't calculated. The French... The Belgians, the Dutch, all of the others that the, the combatants that the Germans had confronted, when the situation required it, simply surrendered. This was it. You made a logical choice, a rational calculation, and surrendered. One gets the sense with the Germans, even as things are going extremely well for them, there is this growing sense of what they've got. They have a tiger by the neck. They're winning. They've, they've got it down. They're holding it but they can't possibly relax even for a second. There's no way to relax because if they do, uh, then it will be upon them. In addition to the fact that the Russians seemed to be beaten but didn't know it and that we're, fi we're fighting against all odds, one begins to see in the Kriegstagebuch, the war diary of the high command, some distur other disturbing revelations. A new weapon had appeared on the front. The Germans were convinced that they had the best tanks in the world. Uh, there had been some advances since the summer of 1940, and they were also convinced that although the, the Soviets apparently had more tanks than anybody else, that these were uh, technologically crude, uh, hardly a match for uh, German technology. But the tank that they began to discover a week, two weeks, three weeks into the campaign was the T-34 tank, which was certainly uh, more than a match for anything the Germans could put in the field. In fact, it was the most technologically advanced tank of its time. This was very disturbing news to the German high command. Franz Halder, who, as you'll recall, had been writing in his diary uh, on his birthday and shortly thereafter that the Russians had lost the war within eight days, then he revised it to, say, two weeks. Now there's this sort of sense of, well, now, wait a minute. Where, where did this come from? Why didn't intelligence tell us that this was out there? And it wasn't just a prototype. The French also had had good tanks. They'd had good airplanes, but they hadn't developed them. They weren't there in numbers. The T-34 began showing up in surprising numbers already in uh, the campaign in 1941, and this was a great concern. So the war, the war was already a source of some frustration. On the whole, things were going better than they could have anticipated. 
tremendous gains. And, and again, the perspective from back at headquarters, just looking at the map, uh, and especially if one is if from a German perspective where the distances are quite small, now to be thinking in 100-mile breakthroughs and so on, this was, this was quite amazing. But these problems uh, had also begun to surface. They were only problems, disquieting problems at this point. They would come to be major problems a bit later on. At the strategic level then, as the blitzkrieg continues to work and to work according to clockwork, at the strategic level, a debate erupts. And it erupts in mid-July, about a month into the campaign. Hitler proposed at this point diverting panzer groups from Army Group Center to Army Group North for a drive on Leningrad. Hitler had always favored uh, a drive to, to the north through the Baltics with Leningrad as its, its main objective, and he revives this at this point. He also wanted to divert another armored group from Army Group, another armored division from Army Group Center to take Guderian, Heinz Guderian's division, and send it to Army Group South, where an, another great encircling uh, movement seemed to be possible. Halder, Guderian, the other German commanders, most of the other German commanders were quite unhappy with this. They wanted to keep all, they wanted to concentrate as much as possible their forces for a drive on Moscow. Moscow seemed to be there for the taking. Meanwhile, the panzers halted. The German advance into the Soviet Union halted as this debate was sorted out. Where were the Germans going to, to concentrate their forces? Not until August 20th were the panzer groups, finally, the panzer divisions finally diverted as Hitler desired, that is the weakening of army group center, and the offensive began to move again. One of the questions that has uh, certainly surfaced and continues to be debated is whether or not the Germans could have taken Moscow if they hadn't had concentrated their forces, if they hadn't wasted this time in uh, late July, early August. This was ca good campaigning weather, perfect campaigning weather for them, and in, but at this point, the operation didn't so much stall as simply stop while the Germans tried to decide exactly what their strategic uh, position ought to be. One factor that has to be considered in making up one's mind about this is, has to do with logistics. The Germans were having all sorts of problems with supply. They had outrun their supplies. The road conditions that we've described were very bad. The train connections, the, train, the rail lines in the Soviet Union were difficult for them to use. The Russians continued to harass them. Partisans were blowing up the railroad tracks behind the, the, the lines and so on. So there were strains, very serious strains in supply for the Wehrmacht at this point. The other problem for the Germans, too, was that the Germans had stretched their own manpower to the absolute limit. The Germans were operating at this point with really without reserves. They were at the end of their reserves. There hadn't been yet a total mobilization of Germany for the war, and they were they were at the largely at the end of their reserves. And and there were some troubling indications that the Russians were beginning to move troops from elsewhere toward the West, that there were Russian reserves of manpower available that were being brought to bear on the situation. 
So one of the arguments that Hitler used was if we make a spearhead directly for Moscow, we're likely to outrun our supplies, sure enough. And if these Russian reserves are in fact out there, what if they cut off cut off this spearhead? We'd, we'd be opening our flanks. This would be disastrous. Better to move in the way we're doing uh, in this broad front. Regardless of how one evaluates this, it's... The very debate within the German high command is itself symptomatic of the Germans' biggest problems. What the debate revealed is that Operation Barbarossa had already failed in its original objective. The Germans, it, it had not destroyed the Red Army in Western Russia. The Germans had attempted too much. They couldn't proceed on all of the objectives at once, and they were still 200 miles from Moscow. Their anticipation that if they inflicted devastating enough casualties on the Russians that they would surrender or just completely break down had, had failed to materialize. And as a consequence, this very debate, do we concentrate on Moscow, do we move toward Leningrad, to Kiev, already reveals that this original objective, the stated mission of Barbarossa, had not been attained. In September, the offensive resumed. The city of Leningrad was put under siege. A siege, a cruel siege indeed, in that winter of 1941-1942, 200,000 uh, inhabitants of Leningrad would die as a result of starvation and starvation-related, malnutrition-related diseases would freeze to death in the city uh, in the north. In the south, Kiev fell to a gigantic encirclement and 600,000 more Russians would go into German captivity. And Kiev finally fell on September 26th. On September 30th, Army Group Center finally moved on Moscow. The drive, once again, textbook perfect, 600,000 more Russian prisoners of war. A general panic in Moscow broke out. Uh, Stalin ordered tank traps to be dug, trenches to be dug around the city. There were rumors abroad in, in Moscow that the, that the government was moving, it was abandoning the city and moving east. Uh, panic began to break out among the civilian population. It looked as if at this point that indeed the unraveling of Soviet society, of the Soviet regime, which the Nazis had anticipated, was finally going to happen. One of the most extraordinary achievements of the entire Second World War, in fact, a miraculous achievement, also took place in this very same period. And that was the dismantling of Russian factories. About 1,500 Russian industrial facilities were dismantled bolt by bolt. As the Germans bore down upon them, the Germans with complete air superiority, attacking all across the range of the Western Soviet Union, the Russians dismantled 1,500 factories, put them on railroad cars, take them east, move over a million workers to the east, and begin to build new industrial cities beyond the Urals and uh, in Siberia, away from the Germans. It was an extraordinary achievement by any standard, an amazing achievement, something the Germans certainly hadn't anticipated. Um, at the same time that the Russians are doing this, Adolf Hitler gives an order to put the German economy back on a peacetime footing. The war in the Soviet Union was over. It had been won. Hitler did not want to strain relations at home. He wanted to keep business as usual, not a full mobilization of Germany's economic resources. And so the 
German economy was to be put back on a peacetime footing. The offensive which had been launched in, at the end of September, this final move toward Moscow, ran into trouble with weather. Not the snow that one usually thinks about with the Soviet Union, but rain. It fell steadily through much of October, and in many places the tanks and trucks mired in the mud could not move, and the offensive bogged down, in fact stopped, um, until November. When the frost finally came, when the weather began to get cold, then the Germans were able to move again and resume the offensive, the move toward Moscow, at the beginning of November. This final drive from Moscow began on November 15th, when the ground had finally frozen enough for the tanks to have the necessary uh, foundation they needed. But German forces at this point were badly weakened by losses. Their supplies were inadequate. The tanks were having mechanical troubles. And the weather, which had been a problem from the beginning, not snow up until this point, but rain, now turned genuinely ugly. The first snow in October, a dusting, had been a mere preview. In late November, the temperature simply dropped like a stone. Temperatures by late November reached 10 below zero Fahrenheit. German troops had been issued no winter clothing, not even overcoats. They were operating in the Soviet Union in cotton, uniforms, and denim. The vehicles had either little or no antifreeze available. They were supposed to be already out of this uh, theater by the time winter set in, and progress was agonizingly slow. The tank engines had to have fire, the tanks had to have fires lit under them so the engines wouldn't freeze. If you opened a can of rations, if you didn't eat it immediately, it would freeze within 30 seconds uh, at the uh, end of November. The Russians, meanwhile, were not only preparing a defense of Moscow, but planning a major counteroffensive. Georgi Chukov, who was placed in charge of the defense of Moscow, a general who had earned his stars out fighting the Japanese along the Manchurian frontier, something we'll talk about in a subsequent lecture, was put in charge of the defense of Moscow. He began moving reinforcements from the Far East, assured that the Japanese would not attack. These movements, the Germans had very little knowledge of. Troops from Siberia, from the Far East, began arriving east of Moscow, reinforcing the Red Army position. And then, on December 5th, 1941, Tsukov launched a massive counterattack north and south of Moscow, catching the Germans completely by surprise. It halted the German offensive. It not only halted it, it threatened to turn the German position into a complete rout, a catastrophe for the Germans. This counteroffensive would stall in January and February, and the Germans would resume their offensive operations in the spring of 1942. The war wasn't over. The Germans hadn't been defeated. It would be the Germans who would launch a new offensive in the spring of 1942, not the Russians. But there was no disguising the fact that the blitzkrieg phase of the war had come to an end. Germany was now in for precisely the long protracted conflict that Hitler had hoped to avoid. He had not been able to either destroy the Red Army or seize Moscow, and now, having just ordered the economy to go back on a peacetime footing, he was now forced to make the reluctant admission that this was a war with no end in sight. Not only that, events all the way across the globe at Pearl Harbor two days later would transform what until this point had been a European war 
into a genuine global conflict. And four days after that, Adolf Hitler would declare war on the United States so that a global conflict uh, was now at last a reality. That's a story that we will take up down the road. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled World War II, A Military and Social History, Part 2. Lecture 11, The War in Asia. In our first ten sessions, we focused exclusively on the background of the war and the actual combat in the European theater. In the winter of 1941, the nature of war would change from a European war into a global conflict. In this lecture, we want to shift our attention to to Asia, to the diplomatic background to the conflict in Asia, to a discussion of Japanese, the Sino-Japanese conflict, which had begun in many ways in 1931, had certainly become a major war by 1937, so in advance of events in Europe, to analyze the strategic dilemma of the Japanese leadership in this period, the late 30s, and in the final period before the decision to attack Pearl Harbor, And then, finally, the deterioration of relations between the United States and Japan in 1941. We'll begin with some background about the strategic position of Japan. The Japanese had emerged from the First War as a victor state, having helped to capture German concessions in China and having seized the Marshall, Mariana, and Caroline Islands in the Pacific, all of which had been German possessions. At the negotiations at Versailles, Japan was rewarded with the former German concessions in the Shantung area and on the Yellow Sea, despite vehement Chinese protests and expressions of disgust from the United States. At the Washington Naval Conference in 1921-1922, Japan had agreed to limits on naval construction, which left it in an inferior position to the United States and Great Britain. The Japanese had agreed to limit the size of its fleet to three-fifths the size of the British and American fleets. And the Japanese also appear to recognize Chinese territorial integrity. These concessions rankled many junior naval and army officers in Japan who were resentful of what they considered to be Western arrogance and were increasingly influenced by extreme nationalist ideas that were sweeping the country. Many were convinced that Japan's future security could be assured only through the seizure of raw materials, food and oil in particular, and that such seizures would ultimately have to come through military conquest. Japan was also experienced experiencing at this time a population explosion which uh, exacerbated problems of overcrowding, of unemployment and poverty in Japan, and a a growing disgust with the civilian government, which military leaders saw, at any rate, as racked with scandal and corruption. These military leaders believed that Japan's salvation lay in expansion 
particularly on the Asian mainland, where China, but especially Manchuria, offered a particularly enticing target. Manchuria was rich in natural resources, and since 1905, influence over this northern region of China had been split between Russia and Japan. Japan had military garrisons in the southern part of Manchuria, but the region was largely regarded as a virtual wilderness where a Chinese warlord uh, claimed control. It was seen as territory ripe for the taking by the Japanese. Then in 1931, middle-grade officers of the Kwantung Army, the Japanese military force stationed in Manchuria, manufactured what they called an incident, in quotation marks, on the South Manchurian Railway near Mukden. Within hours, a full-scale attack on Manchuria was underway. While the civilian government in Tokyo vacillated, the Kwantung Army seized Manchuria in a few months, establishing the puppet state of Manchukuo under Japanese protection in 1932. The Japanese civilian government was unable to restrain the army and was forced to defend its actions in the international community. The League of Nations, for its part, condemned Japanese actions in Manchuria and the Japanese, for their part, withdrew from the League of Nations. Condemnation of Japanese actions in Manchuria attracted uh, worldwide disapproval, but was partic- that disapproval was particularly sharp in the United States, where a strong interest in China uh, had uh, traditional roots. The nominally sovereign Nanking government, Chinese government, was unable to master the situation. Torn by battles between rival warlords, especially since 1927, and a civil war also against the communist Chinese under Mao, China seemed to be coming apart at the seams. Not only did it offer rich mineral resources, food also for the Japanese, but it, China itself at this, in this period seemed to be something of a crazy quilt of, of territories held together by warlords who fought with one another, ideal for the taking. It was a situation that the Japanese hoped to exploit. In 1937, China, the, the Japanese asked China to join a tripartite pact with Japan and Manchukuo aimed at the Soviet Union and to allow five of its northern provinces to be transformed by the Japanese into a buffer zone against potential Soviet expansion. The Japanese were quite concerned about Russian influence in Manchuria and in the Far East, uh, and this is exactly where these two great powers, the Soviet Union and Japan, would come into potential conflict. The Chinese refused to sign on to this Japanese alliance plan, and after a series of incidents, full-fledged war broke out in July of 1937. Although the Japanese government continued to refer to its actions there as the, quote, China incident, the Japanese had, in fact, embarked upon an aggressive expansionist war. In July 1937, Japanese units, army units, moved into northern China from Manchukuo. The Soviet Union signed at the same time an agreement, the Sino-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact with the Chinese, and the Chinese Communists announced in September that they would support Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek in his war now against the Japanese. So Soviet intervention, you have a Chinese civil war going on, uh, which now is put in abeyance, a situation that is verges on the chaotic, 
but with the Japanese certainly attempting uh, to exploit this. By November 1937, Japan occupied Shanghai and in December besieged the, capital city, the new capital city of Nanking. In six weeks, the city of Nanking would finally fall uh, in December, on December 12th. And in the following period, into January of 1938, Japanese troops engaged in widespread executions, rape, and the random murder of civilians. In what came to be known as the Rape of Nanking, the Japanese, uh, these Japanese atrocities, which were widely documented, widely covered in the press, marked a dramatic escalation uh, in the massacre of civilians which had accompanied the Japanese military operations in China. The totals are vague, but the conservative estimates are that about 200,000 people died, Chinese civilians died in this rape of Nanking. Some of the most famous photographs of the Second World War uh, stem from precisely this period. There's a, uh, that photograph, famous photograph of a, of a small child, almost an infant, sitting alone in the middle of a railroad track with smoldering buildings and wrecked tr- uh, railroad cars behind it. Uh, almost smo- The child almost itself uh, uh, smoking. Um, is from this period, and it attracted tremendous attention, particularly in the United States. Reports from China, photographs of burning cities, of dead children, startled the international community, but, as I said, especially here in the United States, where the China lobby was particularly strong and vocal. Outrage at Japan was widespread. At this point, Chiang Kai-shek moved the capital to Chongqing in the interior, And then in October of 1938, Canton fell. In December of 1938, the United States, in a desperate attempt to shore up Chiang Kai-shek's regime to maintain Chinese resistance to the Japanese, the United States extended a loan of $25 million to the Chinese government. This is a fairly remarkable thing at the time, actually, if you think about it, where the Europeans were very much concerned about American isolationism, that the United States seems readier to, in, to become involved in the Far East than in, in Europe itself. Japanese policy between 1936 and 1940 was dominated by a compromise agreement between the Army and the Navy and embodied in a document entitled Fundamental Principles of National Policy. This document was drafted in in August of 1936. There had been a debate within the Japanese military, and the military by this point had clearly come to dominate the civilian government in Japan. The Japanese Army saw Japan's great nemesis, its great enemy, as the Soviet Union, and constantly pressed for new appropriations to, to reinforce the position of the army, to build up the army to fight a land war against the Soviet Union in Manchuria or in the north. The Japanese Navy, on the other hand, tended to emphasize the, the ripe fruits to be taken by an expansion to the south. Through Southeast Asia, the colonial possessions of Europe, Indochina, Malaya, the Dutch East Indies, possibly the Philippines. And hence, the debate tended to focus around this notion of a northern strategy or a southern strategy. The north tended to be emphasized by the army, the southern by the navy. But 
This fundamental principles of national policy, which was drafted in August of 1936, was a compromise. It called for Japan to secure, quote, a firm diplomatic and defensive position on the East Asiatic continent. What did that mean? It meant China, to establish itself in China. And, quote, the extension of national influences to the South Seas. This is the bow to to the Navy. The document insisted that advances in the South were to be accomplished, and I quote again, gradually and by peaceful means, close quote, and that in the North, caution should be exercised to avoid confrontation with the Soviet Union. At the same time, both the Army and Navy were to be greatly strengthened to a level at which they could, and I quote again, resist the forces of the Soviet Union, and the Navy should be expanded to a level sufficient to secure command of the Western Pacific against the U.S. Navy, close quote. Although stated cautiously, this program in 1936 was quite dangerous. It saddled Japan, it committed Japan to an arms race with the Soviet Union and the United States. It called for, no matter how mildly it was stated, for an expansion into China. It was going to bring Japan into conflict with the Soviet Union if Japan moved to the north, and the southern route would certainly lead to trouble with Great Britain, France, and the United States. The German victory in the West in the summer of 1940 had a dramatic effect on Japanese strategic thinking. The moderate government, civilian government, was finally toppled and replaced by a, in July of 1940, with a far more aggressive uh, cabinet that, whose goals were, first of all, to establish some sort of alliance with the Axis powers. Japan and Germany clearly were the wave of the future, and some sort of alliance with Germany would be the key uh, foreign connection for the Japanese. This new Japanese government in July of 1940 also was determined simply to crush China. There would be no compromise on this. Now it was the question of seizing what one wanted in China, pursuing the war to its ultimate conclusion. And third was a push to the south. The collapse of France, the, the occupation of Holland by the Germans... The defeat of Britain, it was clear, wasn't it, that, that England was defeated. All of these things made this southern strategy, this move into Southeast Asia, very, very attractive to Japanese policymakers. French Indochina, British Malaya, the Dutch East Indies, uh, all the Dutch East Indies with their tremendous oil deposits, rubber in Indochina, rice, All of these things were important for the Japanese, and now with the defeat of precisely these powers in Europe, this was clearly the way to go. In addition, this new Japanese cabinet wanted to, domestically, to install, quote, a new political structure, as they called it, to silence the opposition. The leading figure in this new cabinet was the Minister of War, a military man by the name of Tojo. So, in July of 1940, the Japanese government sees opportunities and is is determined to take a more aggressive tact in its foreign policy. The most important feature of Japanese foreign policy was the situation in China. 
Despite the great victories over the Chinese since 1937, Japan, for example, held most of coastal China and the most important inland cities already by 1940, they continued, the Japanese continued to face resistance from Chiang Kai-shek, supported by Britain, France, and the United States. We were sending financial support, uh, material, and so on. And, of course, there were the, they were the Chinese communist guerrillas who, when they weren't fighting Chiang Kai-shek, decided to fight the Japanese. There was a strange situation that was already emerging. It would remain through all the way through the war, which is one was never quite sure exactly what the fronts were. I don't mean the geographical fronts, but the political fronts. We support Chiang Kai-shek so that he will fight the Japanese. But Chiang Kai-shek is just as interested in fighting the Chinese communists under Mao as he is the Japanese. The Japanese want to defeat Chiang Kai-shek, but they also have the Chinese communists to deal with. And so this was the situation, the diplomatic situation that one found oneself in in 1940. A move to the south against French, Dutch, and English colonies would help resolve the Chinese conflict for the Japanese, Tojo felt. Japan estimated that in 1940, about 41% of the outside supplies reaching China came via Haiphong Harbor in French Indochina. 31% came from India across the Burma Road. 19% by coastal waters, that is high, uh, Hong Kong, and 2% over the land route from the Soviet Union. So, the seizure of the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia today, would provide needed oil that would be lost if the United States, as anticipated, imposed economic sanctions. So, and a move to the south would not only provide new raw materials for Japan, much needed raw materials, but would also help to cut this, the Chinese knot. Uh, as they sometimes put it, that it would close off the supply routes to Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese. What this required was some sort of arrangement with the Soviet Union. The Japanese now became interested in a non-aggression pact with the Soviets, but what it really required was preparation for a conflict with the United States. The Japanese hoped to avoid it, but they were unwilling to give up a push to the south. The Japanese by this point are already very seriously contemplating and begin to plan a strategic offensive that would take them into Indochina, Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies. Of course, just to the east of those, if one visualizes the map, is the Philippines, with the American position in the Philippines. And so one option was to, be to, was to move through Southeast Asia and leave the American position alone. Don't attack the Philippines. But if you do that, you're exposing all of your operations to the potential attack from the United States from its Philippine bases. It's interesting and I think um, prophetic. Naval map exercises were held in Japan in May of 1940. War games conducted by the naval uh, chief of operations. Those map exercises revealed that for a very short time, a matter of months, possibly even a year, in a potential conflict with the United States, Japan would be tremendously successful. But if the conflict went beyond that, if the United States were not knocked out of a, a conflict within a matter of months, then over the long haul, there were grave potential difficulties for Japan. In other words, those map exercises suggested that a war with the United States was a great strategic gamble. 
Nonetheless, the decision to pursue this course was officially approved at, the, at a conference, a Japanese government conference in July of 1940, that is, to pursue this southern strategy, even if it ran the risk of conflict with the United States. The Japanese were determined to cut off supplies reaching Chiang Kai-shek. This was a major goal. And in July, the Japanese demanded for the British to close, 1940, to cl- for the British to close down the Burma Road. The British didn't want to do this. They wanted to continue to support Chiang Kai-shek. But now it's July 1940. The British have bigger worries on their mind than what's going on uh, out in Burma and on the frontier with China. And so the British looked to us, looked to the United States. Would the United States support Great Britain if Britain resisted this Japanese demand to close off the Burma Road? The Roosevelt administration reluctantly had to say, well, no, we won't support you. We can't do that. This would, call, this would run the administration into trouble with Congress. We wouldn't support Great Britain in an act of defiance, but the United States, in response to this Japanese demand, announced a limited embargo on the export of scrap iron, steel, and certain grades of aviation fuel to Japan. Then in September of 1940, the Japanese formally entered the so-called tripartite pact with Germany and Italy. This was the link to the Axis in Europe. Tojo believed that this linkage of Japan with the Axis in Europe would deter American interference, that the Americans wouldn't want to be drawn into a conflict with Japan, especially if it meant a linkage to, to the Italians and the Germans. This agreement, this tripartite pact, called on each signatory to come to the aid of any other signatory involved in war with a power not currently at war in Europe. This is clumsy diplomatic language, but what this really basically meant was the United States. It could have meant the Soviet Union when the the pact was signed, but it certainly meant the United States. If Tojo hoped that what this would do was deter the United States, it produced, he was disappointed. It produced exactly the opposite effect in Washington. The United States offered support to the Dutch if the Dutch would refuse to enter into long-term contracts to supply Japan with oil from the Dutch East Indies, and FDR pushed through additional loans to China amounting to $70 million. In October, the British reopened the Burma Road and Great Britain, the Netherlands, and Australia began talks, mutual defense talks, about possible reactions to Japanese aggression in Asia. In April, in March of 1941, rather, the United States passed the Lend-Lease Act and made provisions which would allow us to provide additional support to Chiang Kai-shek in China. In April of 1941, then, Japan entered into an agreement with the Soviet Union, the Japanese-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact. Japan and the United States, this pact, this Japanese-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact, is interesting. What it did was to show that Japan and the United States were inching toward a real military confrontation. The Japanese had clearly decided on a southern strategy, not confrontation with the Soviet Union, but a push into Southeast Asia. In 1941, Japanese-American relations continued to deteriorate. One could see the storm clouds forming. Japan felt threatened by American economic sanctions and unhappy about American aid to China. In May, 
the Japanese government made new proposals to the United States for improving relations. If the United States would halt its aid to the Chinese and resume normal American-Japanese trade, the Japanese would vacate China within 25 years. This was an offer that the Americans felt they had to refuse. But President Roosevelt kept the negotiations going. He wanted to continue to engage the Japanese in discussions, hoping to avert forcing the Japanese into aggression, to continue to talk, to continue to negotiate. While these negotiations were underway, of course, Germany launched Operation Barbarossa, its invasion of the Soviet Union, without, I might add, Japanese foreknowledge. The Japanese-German connection is just that. It's a connection. It is not a military alliance. It is not even really much of a political alliance. They acted independently, and the Japanese were certainly not privy to German calculations about an invasion of the Soviet Union. Like virtually everyone else, the Japanese assumed a quick German victory. They reinforced Japanese troops in the north, in Manchuria, but clearly had decided to move south. Still, the Japanese government hoped to acquire what it wanted by diplomatic means. But if the United States or the West could not be brought to reason, then so be it. Japan would be prepared for war. It would seize what it had to have. When the Japanese sought and received permission to send troops into Indochina from the French, who were in no position to resist at this point. The French still had their, their empire. This is something the Germans had allowed them. It put Japan within easy striking distance of the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, Singapore, and the Philippines. President Roosevelt knew also because of the American breaking of the Japanese code. This was called magic in the Pacific. The United States knew that military preparations were already underway. That is, the Japanese, while continuing to negotiate, were making military preparations for a move into Southeast Asia. If negotiations came to nothing, then Japan wanted to be ready. We, the civilian government in the United States, the American military authorities, everyone knew this. Um, we had broken the Japanese code on September 25th, 1941. It was the diplomatic code, not the military code. So, although that would come a bit later on. The United States responded by freezing all Japanese assets. Great Britain and the Netherlands followed suit, and now Japan found itself in the fall of 1941 cut off from 90% of its oil supplies. If this situation weren't reversed, Japan would be reduced to impotence. A proposed meeting between heads of state, Japan and the United States, was rebuffed by the United States. Cordell Hall, the American uh, Secretary of State, was not interested in pursuing this, neither was Franklin Roosevelt, and the drift for war, toward war began to gather momentum. In early September, Japan decided to be fully prepared for war by the end of October. Then, in October, Minister of War Tojo, the General Tojo, assumed power in Japan. Still, while Japan prepared for a drive to the south and possible war with the United States, 
the diplomatic traffic intensified. All through this, the fall of 1941, as the Japanese are pretty clear about what, what they want to do, that is, they know what their military strategy is going to be. And it's going to be to launch a major assault into Southeast Asia. It's going to bring it to, into war with France, Great Britain, um, Holland, and undoubtedly the United States. They st- there's still the hope that somehow this can be negotiated, that, there, that some sort of diplomatic solution can be achieved. The Japanese offered withdrawal from Indochina and parts of China if the United States would not interfere in Sino-Japanese peace negotiations would agree, and would agree to normalize trade relations between the United States and Japan and that the United States would support Japanese acquisition of the Dutch East Indies. This would give Japan its, its the oil that it needed. It would, uh, the Japanese framed it in such a way that this would be the maximum set of demands. This would put limits on Japanese demands in, in Asia. Secretly, the Japanese government had set a deadline of November 25th for progress in the talks. The Roosevelt administration knew this. That is, while we were negotiating with the Japanese, the Cordell Hall, Franklin Roosevelt, understood that November 25th was an important date for the Japanese. They didn't know exactly what this meant. They didn't know that this would automatically trigger an attack. It certainly didn't if it was going to trigger an attack, where that attack would come. But they understood that the diplomats, the Japanese diplomats in Washington, had been given to understand that if nothing had happened, if no substantive progress had been made by November 25th, then a new situation, a radically new situation would apply. What everyone understood was that some sort of military action would be undertaken by Imperial Japan. This made it very difficult, I think, for the Roosevelt administration to negotiate in good faith. Everything the Japanese seemed to be offering on the table was interpreted as being, well, they're not serious about this. They're, they're, they're really just setting us up. They're really planning a military attack. And, of course, what it, it, it made the United States a lot less interested, I think, in negotiation. Although the United States military position was stunningly weak in the fall of 1941, staggeringly weak, astonishingly weak. Um, The Roosevelt administration rejected the Japanese proposals on November 26th and demanded outright Japanese withdrawal from China, period. Not only was this a breakdown of the negotiation, this was telling, this was, as far as the Japanese were concerned, an absolutely irresponsible slap in the face on the part of the Americans. On that same day, November 26, 1941, a large Japanese carrier force set sail in the northern Pacific. Its objective was the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Lecture 12, The Japanese Gamble. On November 26, 1941, a Japanese carrier force, a large fleet, an attack fleet, 
set sail across the northern Pacific, headed toward Pearl Harbor. Their departure was cloaked in secrecy, their trip cloaked in radio silence. The Japanese had decided to undertake the great gamble. Just as Hitler had rolled the dice with his invasion of the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, the Japanese would take an equally enormous gamble in the fall of 1941. In this, our 12th lecture on the Second World War, we're going to examine Japanese thinking behind their assault on Pearl Harbor, the planning for war against the United States, their options, the role of Admiral Yamamoto, the man, the architect of the Japanese planning for the attack. We'll examine this daring military venture against the American installation at Pearl Harbor, examine the reasons for Japanese success and the American defeat at Pearl Harbor. The Japanese in the fall of 1941, as we've seen in the previous lecture, were increasingly convinced that the Americans had left them with no viable options. They initially, they, in this situation, felt, well, there were three possibilities that they could entertain. One was to abandon their ambitions in the Pacific, simply take a step back, abandon their ambitions in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, perhaps even China, which was the centerpiece, always the centerpiece for Japanese thinking during the war. They could attempt to compromise with the United States, uh, lead the Americans to resume trade in exchange for some sort of concession in Indochina or possibly even China. Or they could take military action. They could resolve this dilemma simply by smashing the European ally, the European allies in the South Pacific and in Southeast Asia and the United States. The military options that the Japanese high command considered as they confronted these possibilities was to strike at the European colonial possessions in Southeast Asia. This was a very attractive option in the summer and fall of 1941. Indochina, French Indochina, was, France was in no position to do anything about a Japanese attack. Malaya and Singapore, British possessions, equally Britain at this point, not in much of a position to act. The Dutch East Indies. All of these were key to, keys to Japanese strategy on largely the Asian mainland. Uh, the Dutch East Indies important because of its oil. What would the American reaction be if Japan attacked these co European colonial possessions but did not attack the American position at the Philippines? Could Franklin Roosevelt bring the United States into war against Japan if the Japanese took a gamble? They would be leaving their military flank open by ignoring the Americans in the Philippines, but would it work? Would, could they uh, attack through the Southeast Asia, avoid confrontation with the United States, uh, and emerge triumphant? Would Franklin Roosevelt be able to bring his isolationist population in the United States into the war? These options were ruled out largely because of what one could think of as the worst-case scenario. Japanese military commanders looking at the map said, well, 
If we attacked only through Southeast Asia, our supply lines would be vulnerable to an air attack from American planes stationed in the Philippines on Luzon. That there would be the Philippines sitting right in the middle of this avenue of approach, this avenue of attack through Southeast Asia. And what would happen if the United States at the last moment or in the midst of these Japanese operations simply went to war and attacked uh, Japanese forces. This would be a, a military disaster. So the worst case scenario was employed here. Perhaps the U.S. Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor almost 4,000 miles away. Um, what, what would this, what would this, could the Americans employ this? For the most part, the Japanese decided it became clear to the Japanese military leadership that the military option, if the Japanese decided to go with a military option, it was going to mean an attack on the United States. That there was no way simply to go into Southeast Asia and uh, avoid an attack on the United States. The key obviously would be the Philippines, but there was another possibility as well, and that was the Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. If the Pacific Fleet were be the American Pacific Fleet were to be attacked, the Japanese felt that they had two options on this score. One was an old plan of battle in the Western Pacific, which was to draw the Americans out, attack in the open sea, and so on. But this, this was an older plan they thought was, was really antiquated, didn't want to in, engage in that. Admiral Yamamoto, the commander-in-chief of the Japanese Combined Fleet, had come up with his own idea about the prospect of a war with the United States. Yamamoto had good reason to be familiar with the United States. He had uh, attended Harvard. He had been naval attache in Washington. He was an opponent and had long been an opponent of war with the United States. He had seen American industrial potential. He was quite clear about this, that if war were to come and it were to be a protracted war, that Japan would have a very difficult time indeed. He also was among the first to recognize the importance of air power for naval operations. He'd been instrumental in the formation of the Japanese carrier strategy. The Japanese in the 1930s would really pioneer the use of the aircraft carrier. Uh, Yamamoto had been key in that. Um, he believed that if Japan were determined to follow a military path and determined on war with the United States, then Japan would have to take bold action. The only way Japan could prevail in a war with the United States was to strike a crippling blow at the American fleet, the Pacific Fleet, stationed at Pearl Harbor. If the Pacific Fleet were neutralized, he said, Japan would, and to use his words, run wild for six months, maybe a little longer, maybe as much as a year, but certainly for six months, securing Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific. Perhaps then, the United States would be discouraged from the prospect of a long, bloody struggle and would recognize Japanese domination in East Asia. So, for Yamamoto, it's a roll of the dice. It has to be a short conflict. There has to be some devastating blow. The Pacific Fleet has to really be laid waste. And then to count on... A very common view among the Japanese leadership that the Americans were soft, that the Americans were interested in material things, that the United States, confronted with a defeated fleet and no real obvious means of reversing the situation in the Pacific or in Asia, would simply say, well, 
this is, you know, we're not going to throw bad money after good. We're not going to, to, to do more about this and simply make some sort of negotiated peace with Japan. His plan called for simultaneous attacks against the American islands, American-controlled islands of Wake and Guam, against British Malaya and Hong Kong on the Asian mainland, with additional attacks on Burma, the Dutch East Indies, and the Philippines. But the centerpiece, the centerpiece of Yamamoto's plan was to be a surprise attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. There were several keys to the plan. Japan had pioneered the aircraft carrier, especially the use of carrier fleets that would mass over 300 aircraft against enemy targets. In some ways, this is almost the equivalent of the German armored divisions, the use of armored divisions on on the ground. Not simply having aircraft carriers spread out across different naval formations, but to concentrate them, to bring to bear great air power, naval air power on uh, the situation. The United States in the 1930s had also been interested in carrier operations, had also begun to develop the aircraft carrier. Along with Japan, the United States and Japan are the two powers which do take seriously the prospect and really began to build and think in operational terms about use of the aircraft carrier. Great Britain possessed uh, an aircraft carrier, an operational aircraft carrier, as did Italy, both operational in the Mediterranean. But it was really the Japanese and the Americans who, who saw the real possibilities of naval air power. Although the Japanese had built the world's largest battleship, the Yamato, and had another under construction, the aircraft carrier had become the nucleus of Japanese naval for- forces. The Japanese fleets were really built around the aircraft carrier. In 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy had 10 aircraft carriers in operation. Um, their potential opponent, the United States, only three in the Pacific, based at Pearl Harbor. Although the combined strength of the British, Dutch, and American fleets in the Pacific and East Asia was roughly equivalent to Japan's, there was no unity of command among those uh, potential allied nations so that uh, their forces were not bound together. There was no real coordination of of planning by the British, Americans, uh, and the Dutch in in this theater. The largest of these forces was by far the Pacific Fleet. There were about 100 ships, 96 actually, present in the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, eight battleships, seven heavy cruisers, three aircraft carriers, and, of course, numerous smaller vessels. Also, in the Hawaiian Islands, the Army Air Corps and naval land-based planes at Hickam Field gave the United States not only made Pearl Harbor and the Hawaiian position a major naval uh, center, but also uh, an air center for the United States as well. So for Yamamoto, it wouldn't be the Philippines where the Americans anticipated an attack, but rather Pearl Harbor 4,000 miles away that would be the key target in his planning. The plan was an extraordinarily daring military plan. A carrier strike force of uh, of six aircraft carriers accompanied by two battleships, eight destroyers, and three cruisers would launch a surprise attack against the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. The air fleet that the Japanese would launch against these American targets consisted of 360 planes, high-level bombers, dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and fighters, 
all to be launched against the American ships at anchor at Pearl Harbor. The ships were also these, um, these Japanese planes were equipped with special torpedoes. This was a surprise to the Americans. One of the things, one of the reasons that at Pearl Harbor, the concern about security of the ships being close together, there was a, a, a conviction on the part of naval commanders there, naval intelligence, that the Japanese did not have the technological capacity to deliver torpedoes by air. They, they would need a different setting. They weren't able to do it. Uh, but the Japanese had been working on this and they were equipped with special torpedoes uh, that they could launch from aircraft. The Japanese also had available to them the best equipped, best trained naval air force in the world and an aircraft that was highly effective in these early stages of the war. This was the Mitsubishi A6M fighter, better known as the Zero. It was a very efficient, very capable aircraft, and although it would be later rendered uh, less effective by American advances in technology, in 1941 it was state-of-the-art. Surprise was essential for the success of Yamamoto's plan. When you think about what, what he was talking about, a surprise attack by Japanese naval forces traveling thousands of miles across the Pacific to attack an American installation. It required a vast armada to sail 3,500 miles without detection to catch the Americans by surprise. This meant strict radio silence would have to be enforced throughout the cruise. The fleet would then have to adhere to a precise timetable so that ships arrived exactly where they were supposed to be at the right time. He had charted a northern course across the Pacific, across a vast expanse uh, of water well off the usual sea lanes. In October of 1941, a Japanese ocean liner had tested the route to see uh, what it encountered. It did, not, it, was, it did not see another ship at all on its voyage, nor did it see another, uh, an airplane. The man, although Yamamoto was to be in charge of the operation, to be in charge of the planning for the operation, the man that was actually going to lead the attack fleet on Pearl Harbor was Admiral uh, Nagumo. He was placed in charge of the Pearl Harbor attack force. This may have been a fateful decision on the part of the Japanese. Nagumo was a very, very capable commander a man with a very strong record in the Japanese Navy, but he was a battleship man. He was not a naval aviator. Um, and although he was certainly adept at using uh, naval air power, this was not, I think, his, his natural response to things. And this has implications, as we will see. So while negotiations in Washington were grinding to an unsuccessful halt, this Japanese attack force had set sail across the northern Pacific, bearing down on Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, um, the Americans at Pearl Harbor, it was a Sunday, um, a Sunday morning, few, a few Catalina flying boats, scout boats had been sent out, um, none of the Army or Navy fighters were on alert or flying patrol that morning. At 7.02, the two radar operators uh, on duty phoned into the Army Aircraft Warning Service Information Center at Oahu and told them 
that they had picked up some aircraft about 137 miles away. This was about an hour's flying time, one estimated. Um, at the Army Aircraft Warning Service Information Center, the duty officer uh, in charge that morning told them not to worry. There were planes coming in, a flight of B-17s on their way to the Philippines. They were scheduled to come in from the west coast of the United States that morning. That's probably what these were. One can only think the worst possible job in the world, I think, in the military in peacetime is to be duty officer on a Sunday morning. Uh, one can only imagine uh, what happened to this lieutenant after telling him not to worry. Radar itself, the radar installations at Pearl Harbor were operating at a very crude level at this point. They had only been set up in August of 1941, and they were, on, they were operational from 4 to 7 a.m. This was it. So, in fact, the radar was about to be switched off when this phone call came in, alerting them that there were unidentified aircraft being picked up on the radar screen. Nonetheless, additional phone calls were made. Uh, at approximately 6.53, the harbor control post um, in the operations office of the 14th Naval District received a message from the USS Ward, the duty destroyer patrolling the entrance to Pearl Harbor. The ward had discovered and attacked a submarine operating just outside the harbor entrance. The duty officer had orders to contact higher authorities on uh, if he received a message such as this. But to give you some indication of what his responsibilities were, this is a different duty officer, fortunately, I suppose. He had to make to phone six different offices in order to make a report that something that the ward had in fact seen a submarine attack the submarine just outside the harbor. At 7 a.m., he began making calls. At 7.41, the first wave of Japanese planes roared in over the tropical hills on Oahu, and 181 dive bombers, torpedo planes, and fighters began their assault on the American positions there, on the American ships. At 12,000 feet above Oahu, Commander Fushida Mitsuo, looking down at what he saw, was absolutely astonished. He saw the American battleships moored together in groups of two. As he said later on, and I quote, I had seen all German warships assembled in Kiel Harbor. I have also seen the French battleships in Brest. And finally, I have seen our own battleships assembled for review before the emperor. But I have never seen ships, even in the deepest peace, anchored at a distance of less than 500 to 1,000 yards from each other. The picture down there was hard to comprehend. At 7.53, Fushida radioed back to the waiting Japanese task force and simply said three words, Tora, 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 the code word indicating that complete surprise had been achieved. The Japanese began their attack with devastating success. They had achieved complete surprise. Japanese planes had been launched from a point 220 miles northwest of Oahu, and their attacks were devastating. They sank four of eight battleships and inflicted severe damage on the others. They sank three destroyers, four smaller ships, damaged three cruisers. 2,400 American service personnel were killed. At Hickam Field, the Japanese air attack destroyed 160 American aircraft, disabled 120 other, 28 others. 
equally astonishing to the Japanese flyers who were on this mission, as astonishing as the position of the fleet moored at Pearl Harbor or the position of the American aircraft at Hickam Field. Because instead of being distributed around the airfield on their revetments, they found them almost wingtip to wingtip stacked in the center of the airfield away from potential Japanese saboteurs. But it was uh, like shooting fish in a barrel. The shock for the Americans was devastating, and Admiral Nagumo had reason to exult. His own losses had been absolutely minuscule. For all of the damage that the Japanese inflicted on the American forces at Pearl Harbor, 29 aircraft had been lost. One of the reasons that, uh, that more planes were not lost by the Japanese is that a great many of the anti-aircraft positions did not have live ammunition. Uh, the Americans hadn't distributed live ammunition, despite the fact that there had been an alert, a general alert called some time before. But while the attack had gone far better and certainly smoother than he had dared hope, the destruction caused by the Japanese attack was also not as complete as it might have been. His greatest disappointment was that the three American aircraft carriers, which had been the major object of the Japanese attack, were not present. They'd escaped. Seven heavy cruisers were also at sea, and only two of the battleships that were hit were really beyond repair. The Japanese attack also failed to destroy the submarine base, or the fuel storage tanks, or the repair and maintenance facilities at Pearl Harbor. In short, what the Japanese had managed to do was to achieve a major tactical victory, but not the strategic knockout punch that Yamamoto had envisioned. Nagumo's air commander, and a very competent one he was, a man by the name of Ginda, urged the admiral to launch a second wave of attacks against Hawaii and to locate the American carriers and destroy them. He was beside himself in dealing with Nagumo. They'd achieved complete surprise. The Americans were virtually defenseless, and yet Nagumo hesitated to launch the second attack. In fact, he refused. He had scored a great military victory and at minimal cost, and he did not want to endanger the carrier fleet of Japan. He ordered a return to base. As a consequence, Japan had achieved a tremendous victory, but it certainly fell far short of the stunning victory that Yamamoto needed. And on December 8, 1941, Franklin Roosevelt, addressing Congress, talking about the attack, would refer to it as a date that will live in infamy in the United States, rather than deciding that its position in the Pacific and in East Asia was untenable responded with outrage and with fury at this Japanese surprise attack. The failure of the United States at Pearl Harbor, the, the fact that we had succumbed to a surprise attack, certainly uh, has been investigated, discussed, and will continue to be investigated and, and, and discussed, one assumes. There was, of course, there is, and I'm not going to spend much time about this, this recall Roosevelt conspiracy theory that Franklin Roosevelt 
knowing and understanding that the United States sooner or later was going to be drawn into the conflict, was looking for an opportunity to do it, that he, the American intelligence had received information, especially through the breaking of the Japanese code, that an attack was coming, and that Roosevelt had suppressed this information so that we would, in fact, be attacked and drawn into the war, not anticipating the enormity of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I don't think there's very much to this. I think the evidence, the most uh, extensive evidence we have suggests that the Roosevelt administration did not, certainly knew after November 25 that the Japanese were planning some sort of, of action, but certainly not an attack on Pearl Harbor. An alert had been issued to, naval, to the American installation at Pearl Harbor, um, but um, here one can talk about failures of communication, but not about conspiracy. The breaking of the Japanese code was, was at, at this point, the, the magic intercepts, as they were called. The United States had been able to break the diplomatic, but not yet the military code. And, of course, one of the key aspects of Yamamoto's plan was that this carrier task force would maintain radio silence as it moved across the northern Pacific, and the Japanese exercised great radio discipline in this regard. Had they not, by the way, Yamamoto would have known that the carriers weren't at Pearl Harbor. It's one of the prices they paid uh, for this because there were, the Japanese uh, submarines had been able to pick up the fact that they weren't. Naval, American naval intelligence had begun to penetrate the Japanese Navy code, that's certain, but could, not yet, but could at this point really interpret only about 10% of the intercepted messages, and this was a long and complicated process. There was certainly an anticipation of an attack in Southeast Asia, probably the Philippines, but not Pearl Harbor. Here, I think one can talk about certain uh, problems in American thinking about this. In March of 1941, uh, an American aviator and a naval airman had completed a report on the defense of Hawaii, and it specifically pointed out that a surprise attack from the air was, quote, the most likely and dangerous form of attack against the fleet base at Oahu. And also said that if it came, that one of the places it might very well come would be from the northwestern route, which was, was not really guarded. Still, Hawaii, many felt, was the strong point of the American position in the Pacific and in Asia, and no less a realist than uh, Army Chief of Staff George Marshall described it to Franklin Roosevelt in May of 1941, and I quote from this report, talking about Pearl Harbor, this is the strongest fortress in the world. Enemy carriers, naval escorts, and transports will begin to come under air attack at a distance of approximately 750 miles. This attack will increase in intensity until within 200 miles of the objective. The enemy forces will then be subject to all types of bombardment closely supported by our most modern pursuit aircraft. An invader will face more than 3,500 troops backed by coast defense guns and anti-aircraft artillery. Hawaii seemed quite secure. In the aftermath, certain, well, and finally, let me say this as well, there were security breakdowns both at Pearl Harbor and in Washington. That's, 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 that's quite obvious. Washington had ordered the Pacific Fleet on alert, but there had been so many false alarms since October that one more, one more alert. This was not backed up, incidentally, by the information that... Um, that we knew from the diplomatic code that something was going to happen after November 25th. If that information had gone to the commanders at Pearl Harbor, both Army and Navy, then it might have added a little more teeth 
to to this new alert. As it was, this was seen as one more. The last had come, the last warning had come on November 27th. There had been no follow-up from this coming from Washington. So, uh, and then on December 7th, when a message was transmitted, a new alert transmitted to Pearl Harbor, it would come on December 7th, and it was it was too late to do any to do any good. There were no torpedo nets for ships at Pearl Harbor. And a general alert had not been issued after the destroyer reported sinking a Japanese ship near the entrance to Pearl on the morning of December 7th. All of these would have been too late, I think, I think anyway. General Wal- the man who paid the price for this, of course, was Admiral Husband Kimmel. His, there were long-range reconnaissance flights off of Oahu, but mostly to the west-southwest. Recon to the north was only was not done on a daily basis, and it was not done on December 7, 1941. General Walter Short, the American Army commander there, had to pay the price for having an understaffed radar uh, group. There was conflict between the Signal Corps and the Army Air Corps so that even the radar operators were not Army Air Corps operators, but Army Signal Corps. There were, there were if you'll pardon the, uh, the, the illusion, wires were crossed in the discussions between, communications between Signal Corps and Army Air Corps. Uh, and, of course, the fact that Short had lined his aircraft up in the center of the airfield at Hickam Field to, to guard against sabotage by 5th Column Japanese inhabitants of, of uh, the Hawaiian Islands all meant that severe security breaches had occurred. But the real reason, I think, for the success of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor doesn't have to do with breaches in American security or any sort of conspiracy having to do with Franklin Roosevelt. It has to do with the fact, I think, that this was an absolutely brilliant plan carried out to virtual perfection by Admiral Yamamoto and the Japanese Imperial Fleet. It was an extraordinary military accomplishment to sail across the northern Pacific in secrecy and to catch their opponents completely by surprise. The Pearl Harbor attack would mark the beginning of American entry into the war, quite obviously, and, of course, the Japanese would launch further attacks all across Southeast Asia. What had begun first as a Sino-Japanese war in the Far East had now become a war linked to the war in Europe with the United States. Since several days later, Hitler would declare war on the United States. This was now truly a world war. Lecture 13, The Height of Japanese Power. At the conclusion of our last lecture, the Japanese had just attacked Pearl Harbor. The United States had been caught by surprise, and the Japanese were on the move, not only against the Americans at Pearl Harbor, but all over Southeast Asia. In this, our 13th lecture, we're going to examine what I would call the Japanese steamroller. You'll recall that Admiral Yamamoto had said that uh, for a hundred days, maybe longer, he could run wild. That the Japanese, uh, if surprise were achieved, 
at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese forces would have an open hand for two, three, maybe four months. After that, he, he would not be willing to, to get, to say. And so what I'd like to do in this lecture is to examine the Japanese move across Southeast Asia to look at the axis at the high point of its power around the globe, uh, and then to look at Japanese strategic options in the spring of 1942, uh, concluding with uh, the first real engagement uh, between American and Japanese naval forces uh, in combat, and that would be the Battle of the Coral Sea, which marks something of a possibly, one thought at the time, a turning point. You'll recall that on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese had struck with devastating effect the American installation at Pearl Harbor. Japanese forces also attacked Guam and Wake, 1,100 miles to the east. Further, uh, the failure of the relief expedition to Wake Island was another blow to American morale. American troops were left there uh, to deal with the situation. Hong Kong had surrendered by Christmas. Malaya and Singapore at its southern tip, the Gibraltar of Asia, the English had called it, had fallen to the Japanese. British forces had, under the command of General Arthur Percival, uh, had uh, fought a long campaign, which was disastrous for the British. The two British ships, the battleship Prince of Wales and the battlecruiser Repulse, were sunk by aircraft on December 10th, and the Japanese achieved at one blow naval superiority in Southeast Asia. On February 15th, the British garrison at Singapore surrendered. A humiliating blow to the British and to Western prestige in Asia. Singapore was seen, as I said, as the Gibraltar of the East, this, this absolutely uh, impregnable fort, uh, fortress of the British. It was a symbol, not simply of British power, but of the West in Asia. The Japanese certainly would make a great deal of propaganda uh, capital out of this, seeing this as the beginning of a Japanese liberation of Asia from European colonialism. It is at this point that the Japanese begin to talk quite expansively about a greater Asian co-prosperity sphere, Asia for the Asians, and so on. For the British, of course, coming when this does, it is a, it's a double whammy in a sense with the, all of the bad news from Europe and, and now this. Burma, first attacked on December 10th, also uh, was invaded in January. Rangoon fell on March 6th. Chinese forces arrived to help hold the line south of Mandalay, but the Allies began a 1,000-mile retreat back into India. Ceylon was threatened but not attacked, but there was no way to avoid the, the terrifying truth for the British that Great Britain had been pushed out of Southeast Asia and India itself, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, was threatened. The other major target, of course, for Japanese forces in December of 1941 had been the Philippines. American forces there were commanded by General Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur had been chief of staff of the Army from 1930 to 1935. From 1935 to 1941, he had been an advisor to the Philippine government, helping to build a Philippine defense force. And since 1941, earlier in 41, he had gone back on active service as American commanding uh, general in charge of U.S. forces in the Philippines. The Philippines would prove as much a debacle as Pearl Harbor, in some ways uh, even more so. The Japanese were able to destroy 
American air power at Clark Field, despite advanced radio warning that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, um, destroy much of the American naval installation in Manila, forcing naval units to uh, evacuate to Australia. General MacArthur's strategy for dealing with the possibility of invasion was a was one that we'll see again with with Rommel thinking about uh, the German defense of Fortress Europe, which was to halt the invaders at the beaches, halt them at the beach strategy. It was called. This reversed a long-standing American plan to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula, um, which was flanked by Manila Bay on the west. MacArthur insisted on engaging the enemy at the coast. And he certainly expected to have considerable relief, reinforcements arriving from Washington. He underestimated both the strength of his own troops, anticipating that there would be a quick reinforcement of his forces. I don't know how it was possible to think in these terms under under the circumstances. But at the same time, he also drastically underestimated the quality of Japanese troops that he was going to be, be confronting. And he overestimated considerably the numerically strong allied force in the Philippines, it was largely Filipino, um, certainly overestimated their strength at this moment. The Japanese attack came from the north and south. The Americans fought a, a fighting retreat back to Bataan, but with disastrous consequences. It was a logistical nightmare. Troops with low supplies were forced back uh, to Bataan fell victim to disease, to beginnings of, of malnutrition. They couldn't hold out without relief. The situation was going to be desperate. Everything about the defense of the Philippines, insofar as we'd given it very much thought, really did was based on the idea that there would be a steady flow of reinforcements, supplies, and so on from, from Hawaii. While American and allied forces were being soundly beaten, Bataan held out. The American forces held out against tremendous odds at this point. MacArthur, who might very well have been sacked or been in considerable trouble, just as Kimmel and Short had been at Pearl Harbor, became, ironically, a national hero. Roosevelt and General Marshall, back in the United States, even thought about a Congressional Medal of Honor. There were those in the armed forces who thought that a court-martial might be more more uh, uh, in line with MacArthur's performance. But... He, MacArthur was ordered to escape from the Philippines to Australia, something that he was not keen on doing. Uh, he did in March, vowing, of course, leaving with those famous words, I shall return. American forces were left under the command of General Wainwright. Bataan fell on in April of 1942, but General Wainwright and the American garrison on the fortified island of Corregidor would hold out until May 5th. 1942, an astonishing siege, which they held up. It was in many respects seen as a kind of the, a, the Alamo in the, in the Second World War. Finally, at the conclusion, of course, of the, the siege of Corregidor came the Bataan Death March. The American garrison would be marched 55 miles to a railhead the Japanese, part of this was Japanese miscalculation. The Japanese had anticipated there being about 25,000 American POWs, prisoners of war. There turned out to be 75,000. There wasn't transportation for them, and so the Japanese, under this incredibly hot uh, sun, began marching the American garrison toward a railhead for removal. Along the way, 
there were acts of cruelty, of torture. Um, over 7,000 men died on what came to be known as the Bataan Death March, the details of which were kept from the American public until much later on in the war. 4,000 of the 700 who died were Filipino uh, soldiers. The Philippines then had fallen to the Japanese. All over Southeast Asia, the Japanese were dominant. And this really does represent the Axis at its height. Winter and spring of 1942, 41-42 seemed to bring one disaster after another. In the Pacific, there was Pearl Harbor, the Philippines, the humiliation of Singapore, and the fall of all of Southeast Asia. By the early spring of 1942, the Japanese dominated all of Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific. There was fear that they would attack West, threatening India, or move against the United States at Midway and Pearl Harbor again to seize the Hawaiian Islands, seeking a knockout blow that had eluded them at in this first attack on Pearl Harbor. Across the globe in Europe, Nazi domination of all of Central and Western Europe was utterly secure. The Germans had obviously just run into a severe setback before Moscow in December of 1941. And yet I think it would be, it would be a mistake to assume, as so many people frequently do, that somehow not taking Moscow in that winter meant that the, the, the German offensive in the east was over, that somehow the Russians had prevailed. It would be the Germans in the spring of 1942 who would launch another massive offensive on the eastern front. Hitler's new order would be set in place at this time. On the Eastern Front, the Russian counteroffensive before Moscow would run out of steam by spring. The Russians proved to be tremendously adept at defensive operations early on in the war, but had difficulty with organizing large mass offensives. Uh, attempted a winter offensive against the Germans in January, February with horrendous losses uh, for the Red Army. On the seas, it was a period known as the Second Happy Time, as German U-boats operated with near impunity off the coast of the United States and in the Gulf of Mexico. It took some time before uh, cities in the East Coast began to actually, we had blackouts. Uh, up until this time, the Germans, uh, the German U-boats were uh, active up and down the coast. This was exactly what the German naval forces had, had talked about and one of the reasons that they had pressed Hitler to declare war on the United States, which he had done on December 11th. His generals, who at this point in December were, were up to here with, in trouble in, uh, in Russia, didn't, certainly weren't happy with this news, were in shock that now they not only had to fight the Red Army, but there was the potential strength of the United States to deal with as well. But the Navy, the German Navy, Admiral Dönitz, in particular, Admiral Rader, both had, had, had repeatedly emphasized to Hitler, the Americans are already at war with us. They are shipping things to Britain. We, if, if you allow us to strike now, we can sink so much ton American tonnage, they will not be able to be a serious logistical factor for the foreseeable future. So for the German Navy, the declaration of war was exactly what uh, the doctor ordered. And in this winter of 1941-42, the German Navy would sink, uh, would sink tons upon tons of American shipping. So, 42 began with the Axis powers, including now Japan, on, on a roll. And yet the year, the year would end with stunning Allied victories on all fronts. At Midway in Guadalcanal in the Pacific, at Stalingrad in the Soviet Union, and at El Alamein in North Africa. 
The war by early 1942 had become a genuine world war, linking Bataan to Baghdad, Mandalay to Morocco. It was fought from Leningrad uh, to Basra, from the snows of Stalingrad to the sweltering jungles of Guadalcanal, fought in T-34 tanks, the height of armored technology, uh, and fought by men riding on camels in the desert. In the Pacific, the Japanese were beginning to suffer already. There was concern, both, both elation and concern. Elation because things had gone beyond, well beyond what the Japanese had hoped. They had been so successful on all fronts. There were some voices within the Japanese military that argued, well, one has to be careful and not suffer from what they began to call victory disease, that is an overconfidence. And yet the Japanese had a number of strategic options in the spring of 1942 that, that they had to evaluate. In the full flush of its victories in December, January, and February, this 100 days of relentless triumphs, the Japanese had come to dominate all of Southeast Asia, the Western Pacific, everywhere its forces had crushed its enemies on land and on the sea. It seemed to be a reinforcement of all of those Japanese notions about the, the quality of their troops, of their equipment, and so on. Now the Japanese leadership faced crucial choices. And three competing offensive strategies came to the fore. One would be a thrust into the Indian Ocean to move west, where the Japanese Navy would wrest control of the sea lanes from Great Britain, and the army might even link up with the Germans in the Middle East. The Japanese would foment revolution, rebellion in India, anti-British sentiment there on the rise, could block the Suez Canal and would bring a greatly weakened Great Britain to its knees. This was the option that most frightened the Allies in early 1943. Roosevelt and Churchill realized that there was little, in fact virtually nothing, that could be done to prevent a major Japanese assault in the Indian Ocean. And the possibility of a link-up between Nazi Germany forces coming across North Africa and the Japanese uh, coming up through the Indian Ocean was a nightmare scenario indeed. Others within the Japanese military, however, were urging instead a continued push to the south, including either an invasion of Australia or at least the seizure of the south coast of New Guinea, especially Port Moresby, and the capture of a number of islands in the South Pacific, such as Fiji and New Caledonia. Such an offensive would have the purpose, served a great purpose for the Japanese, of severing communications between the United States and Australia, making it impossible for the Americans to use Australia as a forward military base for another attack, for an attack on Japanese, the Japanese New Empire. Finally, as another option, some, especially in the Imperial Navy and especially Admiral Yamamoto, advocated a strike against the last American outposts in the Pacific, midway approximately 600 miles west of Oahu uh, would be the first target, and then subsequently an invasion of the Hawaiian Islands. A Japanese push here would force the American Pacific Fleet to come out and fight at a time when it was still weak and reeling from Pearl Harbor. Yamamoto argued very forcefully in the councils of, of government 
that what needed to be done now was to engage the American fleet, engage the Pacific fleet before it could be rebuilt. Here one also sees the tension between the army, which the Japanese army, which was very much in favor of this push south toward uh, New Guinea and Australia, and the Japanese navy. These are tensions that would remain part of a problem for the Japanese high command, the Japanese leadership throughout the war. Yamamoto argued that an attack against uh, the remaining naval positions of the United States, especially uh, Midway and the Hawaiian Islands, would deal a death blow to America's ability to act in the Pacific and probably force the Americans into some sort of negotiated settlement. What had not been achieved at Pearl Harbor, in other words, would now be made good. In fact, everything looked ripe for the taking for the Japanese in early 1942, with both the United States and Great Britain very, very much on the ropes. With these options being debated within the high military circles in Japan, no one solution was arrived at. Instead, the Japanese sampled, one might say, from each. First, they toyed with the idea of taking the French colony of Madagascar off the southeast coast of Africa. The French In fact, the French government, the Vichy government, the collaborationist government, wanted to invite the Japanese to seize the colony so that the British wouldn't take it. The British beat them to it. Uh, British troops landing in May. Those British troops encountered fierce resistance from the French. This is, I think, one sees now the the legacy of that British attack on the French fleet uh, in North Africa in 1940. It took until November, the British troops landed in May, it took until November before Madagascar was finally in British hands. The Japanese, meanwhile, had dispatched their main carrier force to the Indian Ocean off Ceylon and only recalled it in April. It was never actually used. They, they steamed the, the, the fleet out, uh, the main carrier fleet out into the Indian Ocean, threatened uh, the Middle East, threatened India, but then seemed to, to, to not know exactly where to proceed with it. And so it began to be, it was withdrawn. While considering Yamamoto's plan, thinking about the possibility of a Japanese uh, assault on the Hawaiian Islands, Japanese leaders were jolted by a very, very dramatic and unpleasant surprise. On April 18th, 1942, 16 B-25s, two-engine light bombers, took off from the aircraft carrier Hornet, commanded by Jimmy Doolittle, and attacked Tokyo. It was a daring mission. Uh, The planes took off 700 miles from Tokyo. Flying these two-engine light bombers off of a carrier deck was was an extraordinary extraordinary feat, something that I think not only the Japanese didn't think was possible, but I think most American airmen didn't think was possible either. They took off 700 miles from Tokyo, bombed the city and a number of other targets along the way. The physical damage inflicted by the so-called Doolittle Raid was inconsequential. But its psychological impact was profound. Profound both in the United States and, of course, in Japan. In its immediate aftermath, Yamamoto called for the development of plans to invade Hawaii and and Australia, creating what he called a ribbon of defense across the Pacific. If the Americans could launch an attack against the Japanese home islands in this situation, in the spring of 1942, when American power was at its absolute 
low point, what would it be like if the Japanese allowed the Americans to build up their forces? This, of course, Yamamoto is constantly emphasizing this in discussions. We must defeat the Americans now. We must defeat the Americans now. The main objective, then, was to remove the American military presence in the Pacific, and that meant an attack on the Hawaiian Islands and Midway Island, 600 miles to the west. The Japanese plan called for attacks in New Guinea and the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific in order to cut the flow of men and material to Australia. This is a, a vital uh, link in the, uh, the supply lines to Australia, where Douglas MacArthur was building up a significant military force. The Japanese first thought about putting, seizing the island of uh, Tulagi uh, without, and did so with, without opposition in May and then began operations in New Guinea. But on May 7th and May 8th, Jap- Japanese naval forces encountered American naval units in the Coral Sea. This was, for the Japanese, um, this was something of a surprise. Uh, the U.S. Navy had begun to use the intercepts. We were understanding more and more of the Japanese naval codes so that we had some indication that the Japanese were moving forces into the Solomon Islands. If they seized it, they were able to establish an, an air base in the Solomons at Tulagi or one of the other islands there. Then this was going to really imperil this uh, lifeline to Australia. And so we began to move naval forces there to contest this Japanese action. The Coral Sea, where these two great naval forces would collide, is a stunningly beautiful body of water, tranquil, strikingly beautiful, uh, more used to seeing trading schooners or Melanesian war canoes than the gray steel of modern warships. Japanese naval forces encountered the Americans on May 7th, May 8th of 1942. It would be like no other battle in naval history. For both sides possessed aircraft carriers. The Battle of the Coral Sea became the first great naval action between aircraft carriers and revolutionary in in what this meant in one sense for, for naval operations. It was the first naval battle in which no ship actually sighted one from the other side. It was all done with, with fighter aircraft, air, aircraft carrier-based planes. They would inflict all the damage in the engagement. The Japanese lost one heavy and one light carrier. The United States, a heavy carrier, the Lexington, and another suffered serious damage, the Yorktown. The battle, in, in a tactical sense was pretty much a draw. Both sides took losses, but at the end, the Japanese withdrew without attempting a landing at Port Moresby. This was extremely important. Without inflicting a devastating defeat on the Japanese, the strategic goal of blocking the Japanese at this point uh, had been achieved. May 6th represented the nadir of the American war in the Pacific. At dawn on that date, the American garrison at Corregidor had surrendered. 
and the agonies of the Bataan Death March had begun. But the Battle of the Coral Sea, as it came to be known, on May 7th, May 8th, seemed like a victory against a foe that, until this point, had seemed almost invincible. Did it signal a shift in momentum or a mere detour on Japanese's victory tour of the South Pacific? The answer to that question would come just one month later at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942. The Japanese plan was to destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet, especially the carriers that had escaped the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. Only when the Pacific Fleet had been eliminated would Japan be really secure. No more Doolittle raids, no more attacks on the home islands. Only then would the Japanese position in the South Pacific be secure. The plan then was to lure the U.S. fleet out of Pearl Harbor by launching an offensive against the island of Midway. An air fleet of six carriers under Admiral Nagumo, the general, the admiral who'd been in charge of the attack on Pearl Harbor, would be followed by the main body, an enormous Japanese fleet that would bear down first on Midway and then on Pearl Harbor and the Hawaiian Islands. Yamamoto's plan called for attacks on Midway and then uh, a major invasion front indeed. Submarines would alert the air fleet when the U.S. ships had set sail. Then the carriers would jump them, and the main body, the Japanese fleet, would then close and finish off the Americans. Two light carriers and other ships were sent as a diversion to the Aleutians in the north in, in a move that Yamamoto thought that would, would, the Americans would think, ah, oh, here here's the end run that we've been worried about. The Japanese are going to take this northern route and then come down the coast uh, from Alaska down the West Coast. This, I think, made a certain amount of sense at the time when one considers the hysteria that had, that had broken uh, like a massive wave on the West Coast of the United States after Pearl Harbor, the fear of a Japanese invasion, sightings of Japanese ships, aircraft, and so on. Um, so this force was to be sent into the Aleutians. The Americans didn't buy this at all. This was, in, in one sense, I think, Yamamoto being too clever by half. It was, and later he would say that he thought this, this sending of this diversionary group to the Aleutians was a symptom of vic- the victory disease that had inflicted the Japanese high command. Still, even with this diversionary force headed to the Aleutians, the Japanese possessed enormous superiority in ships and in aircraft. Six aircraft carriers ultimately would be brought to bear by the Japanese in this big fleet uh, against the Americans versus three for the United States. It would turn out to be one more. 272 aircraft to 180, 272 Japanese planes to about 180 American. Not to mention the battleships, destroyers, and cruisers of the accompanying force, the main body. That would mean 162 Japanese warships to 76 at the disposal of the United States. Here, however, magic came into play. Not black magic, not uh, sleight of hand, but the breaking of the Japanese naval code. Despite the very light radio traffic which had been ordered by Yamamoto, that radio traffic alerted the United States to his plans. It allowed the American carriers to leave Pearl and set up station out of Midway, undetected by Japanese submarines or by Japanese aircraft. 
still it, this was going to be a desperate battle. Even if the code had been broken and we were aware of the Japanese battle plan, this was an enormous Japanese fleet. The stakes could not be higher. If the Japanese succeeded, and even with this intelligence, this was going to be a touchy matter. If the Japanese succeeded, the American position in the Pacific uh, would be untenable indeed. On June 4th, Admiral Nagumo launched his air attack against the island of Midway. They inflicted terrific damage on American forces there. All was going very well. The Japanese fleet had maneuvered into position exactly as it should. The Japanese aircraft carriers dispersed exactly as they should. The first attack had hit poorly defended American positions uh, at Midway. There was a sense as the word came back from the attacking planes to the carrier and then flashed by code uh, to the main body that this, the attack was going just as indeed it was, it was anticipated that it would. As his bombers were returning from a second strike, which had been ordered, you'll recall that the great mistake and one of the things that Nagumo had been in trouble for with Pearl Harbor was that there had been this one great launching of the attack uh, and had not been followed up. Ginda, his air advisor, had pressed for uh, Nagumo to launch a second attack on Pearl Harbor, and he had resisted that, that temptation. On this day, he would not make the same mistake. He would launch a second strike uh, on the American positions there. So as his bombers were returning from a second strike against Midway at about 8.45 a.m., positions were picked up. Suddenly, the Japanese spotters began to see aircraft, and they weren't simply the returning aircraft uh, from the Japanese fleet, unanticipated aircraft. Those aircraft would be the, the flights from the American carriers, and the Battle of Midway was about to take a very unexpected turn. Lecture 14, Turning the Tide in the Pacific, Midway and Guadalcanal. Hello. Welcome to the 14th lecture in our series on the history of the Second World War. We had concluded our last lecture with the Japanese plans for and the launching of their attack on the American installation at Midway. It was a, the plan of Admiral Yamamoto, as usual with uh, the Admiral, a highly complex plan and a controversial one within the Japanese high command itself. Yamamoto's plan in brief to recapitulate was to draw the American fleet out of Pearl Harbor, to engage the Americans at sea, the Americans taking the, the bait of a Japanese naval assault on uh, the island of Midway, to engage the Americans and finish off the fleet, a job which had not been accomplished uh, as planned at, at the attack on Pearl Harbor. This, Yamamoto believed, would drive the Americans uh, out of the war in the Pacific, that uh, it would not be necessary. This was a debate within the Japanese high command about whether or not it was, 
it would be necessary to actually occupy uh, Midway or the Hawaiian Islands. This was not part of the plan for the operation at Midway at this time, but something to be discussed possibly for the future. The real goal was the destruction of the Pacific Fleet at this point, and then hopefully a negotiated settlement with the United States. In this hour, we will then, or this, this lecture, we will proceed to talk about this battle at Midway, and then another turning point in the Pacific War, a major one, the first great land battle between Japanese forces and American forces, and that would be the Battle of Guadalcanal. On June 4th, we had stopped with the Japanese Admiral Nagumo launching an air assault against uh, the American installation at Midway. His planes were just returning uh, from that strike and preparing for a second when, out of the blue, um, American planes were spotted, enemy planes spotted. They were not supposed to be there. Yamamoto certainly had believed that the carrier Yorktown had been sunk at the Battle of the Coral Sea. He expected at most two aircraft carriers. Although the planning had been uh, meticulous for this operation, the Japanese submarines that were supposed to monitor the movements of of the American fleet had been slow to take up their stations. The assumption on Yamamoto's part and everyone else's, Nagumo's and the others within the Japanese Admiralty, was that the American fleet would venture out of Pearl Harbor only after the attack on Midway. It was the attack on Midway that was to draw the American ships out. Certainly, the Japanese had dispatched spotter planes to search for any movement of the uh, American fleet. But by the time those planes actually saw evidence that the the Pacific fleet had left Pearl Harbor, it was hours after uh, the planes were aloft, and as we will see, it proved to be too late. This first attack on Midway... Air attack had been tremendously successful, uh, bringing devastation to the American position there. And the planes were loading up for a second assault. Out of the blue, as we said earlier, suddenly appeared a squadron of American planes. Just where they had come from was not at all obvious. They made one diving pass after another at the Japanese carriers and were simply shot out of the sky. They, it it was for the Japanese, uh, almost like target practice. The American planes were slow, they were vulnerable, they came down in, in the sort of dive bombing runs, um, and were literally shot out of the sky. There were almost no hits. The Japanese, having been surprised, heaved an enormous sigh of relief as these American planes were shot down. The carriers had not really been hit, not taken any significant damage. But the Japanese fighters that had gone after them had also dropped lower in order to follow the, the dive bombers. And then what often is referred to as the miracle of Midway occurred. The American planes had been launched earlier in the day to find the Japanese carriers. One group of uh, dive bombers had gotten lost had wandered around in the skies of uh, over the Pacific looking for the carriers, had been unable to locate them. This was a group from the Carrier Enterprise. At just this moment, 
after this first wave of American, the first wave of the attack had ended in failure, but had drawn the Japanese, what Japanese planes were aloft down lower, suddenly the group that had gotten lost suddenly broke into the clear through the clouds, and there was the Japanese naval fleet below them, the carrier fleet below them. They then began to dive onto the Japanese carriers. The decks of the Japanese carriers were cluttered at this point with bombs, gasoline, and planes stacked up one after the other preparing for takeoff. When the 37 dauntless dive bombers dropped out of the sky and began their attack, it was the absolute worst possible moment for the, for the Japanese position. The worst position to be caught in. And within five minutes, three of the four Japanese carriers were burning and in deep trouble. These planes did not miss their targets, were not shot out of the sky, and the devastation now in the Japanese carrier fleet was, was unspeakable. The fourth of the Japanese carriers would be would suffer tremendous damage and would be sunk later on during the course of the day. It was a catastrophe for the Japanese, an utter catastrophe. The American Admiral Raymond Spirance had managed his, his operation with great skill, with great daring himself. He'd taken on what was a much larger force, counting on the intelligence, the magic intercepts, and then his own uh, pilots to do their job. It was a remarkable victory. When the word was passed back to Yamamoto uh, about this disaster, he at this point decided, well, maybe the thing to do was simply to try to make the best of a terrible situation and rush the main force of the fleet forward to encounter the Americans, to, to go ahead with that part of the operation. But without the air cover, without the carriers, this would have been very, very dangerous indeed. He did press, press forward a bit. But uh, Admiral Sperance wasn't about to take the bait. Having himself suffered uh, severe damage to one of the carriers, he withdrew. There would be no follow-up. The great plan of Admiral Yamamoto had come, not as Pearl Harbor had been, to a tactical victory, but a strategic, not the strategic knockout blow. Now the situation had been reversed. At the end of the Battle of Midway, the Japanese fleet had suffered a terrible loss, the Battle of Midway would shift the naval balance in the Pacific in a single day. In fact, in a, in a five-minute period. It marked the end of Japan's initiative in the high seas. Henceforth, though there would be, the Japanese fleet was still enormously powerful, still a tremendous threat to, to the United States and its allies. Henceforth, the Japanese Navy would be largely on the defensive would be fighting major naval engagements. But at this point, the momentum begins to shift and shift in a very dramatic way, almost exactly in the kind of nightmarish scenario that Yamamoto had himself predicted. For the Americans, it was a tremendously uplifting victory. Pearl Harbor was now secure. The Japanese had lost four heavy carriers, and they had lost 253 aircraft and their pilots. It was truly a devastating victory and one in which a numerically much smaller force had defeated a much larger. If the Battle of Midway marks a major turning point in the naval war in the South Pacific, the Battle of Guadalcanal coming later 
1942 would be a major turning point of strategic significance fought on land. A battle that would be fought between August of 1942 and February of 1943. This battle would mark the first major engagement between American soldiers and Japanese soldiers. It would have strategic implications. It would have psychological uh, implications uh, as well as Japanese and American troops encountered one another at close quarters for the first time. We had discussed when we were talking about Japanese strategic options, one of the major options endorsed by the Japanese army had been a move south into New Guinea uh, and possibly toward Australia to cut off American access to Australia so that Australia could not be a forward uh, post for American operations in the Pacific. Japanese attention had turned to New Guinea, to Port Moresby in particular. The Japanese wanted airfields, particularly in the Solomon Islands, an obscure chain of islands just off to the, uh, the east, northeast of, of Australia. Tulagi had been judged by the Japanese to be unsuitable for the sort of airfield that they needed, but another island, a, a larger island in the Solomons, uh, one with the unlikely name of Guadalcanal, did seem to be uh, to offer the possibilities for a major air base. On July 5th, 1942, an American reconnaissance plane reported seeing something unusual. The Japanese were on Guadalcanal and they were beginning work on what was clearly an airfield. For Admiral King, who was following this, the Americans had been anticipating this, and in fact there was a sort of, there was a race afoot to see who could establish themselves in the Solomons first. Just looking at the map, this chain of islands, I think when one thinks about the Pacific Theater of Operations, you're really talking for the, for the United States and for the Japanese about how does one project power literally across thousands of miles of ocean? How does one do this? We've been talking about these great battles, this great conflict in Europe itself with the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Germans and this largest military operation in history with this enormous front that was to go literally from virtually the Baltic down to the Caspian Sea. But here we're talking about distance on a scale unmatched in the, in, in, in the history of warfare. How does one actually project power? How do you bring power to bear on a situation 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 miles away? Looking at the map, a whole series of islands, chains of islands, islands that I, I suspect virtually nobody could have really knew anything about, uh, very much about, except military planners in the interwar years, suddenly now would become would become key stepping stones, key strategic positions which had to be taken. The Japanese understood what these were, so did we. And as we began to jockey for position as on to, to maintain the routes or, from our point of view, maintain the routes or to block them from the Japanese to Australia, the Solomon Islands now become loom very, very large. Admiral King, looking at the map, was convinced that we had to do everything possible to prevent the Japanese from establishing this foothold and, and creating an airfield in the Solomons. He had already begun plans for an assault on Tulagi, uh, but now, with the reports from Guadalcanal coming in, all preparations had to be speeded up 
an invasion had to be to take place before the Japanese could complete the airfield. If the, air, if the airfield on Guadalcanal became operational, then the situation was going to could become desperate. The planning then for the attack, it was not an improvisation, but this was done in a much uh, more um, speeded up in a speeded up way than had been anticipated. The attack was set for August seventh, nineteen forty-two. When the Marines went ashore then. It would begin a six-month-long struggle that comprised seven major naval engagements, at least ten pitched land battles, skirmishes, and air attacks that seemed never to stop. When American troops stormed ashore on August 7, 1942, it was the first amphibious assault uh, since 1898 for American forces. The Battle of Guadalcanal turned into an epic struggle, fought alongside the great battles of Stalingrad in the east and, and the battles in North Africa. It marked a major turning point in the war. It was the longest battle in the Pacific conflict, one that would not only have enormous strategic implications, but one that shaped the nature, the nature of combat and offered a grisly preview of what war in these islands would be like. It would be a struggle of such sheer brutality and viciousness that it rivaled the Russo-German War on the Eastern Front. A war from the American point of view, a war against an enemy already demonized by coverage of Japanese atrocities in China, a view of uh, sort of word of mouth, the the... The Bataan Death March did not, as we, had, we indicated in an earlier lecture, had not become common knowledge. The, the details of it were certainly repressed by the American government, but things had come out. The American troops embarking on that invasion of Guadalcanal were already primed, already believed that they were going to face an enemy that was vicious, an enemy that had, of course, brought on Pearl Harbor, uh, an enemy that was adept in jungle fighting. The Japanese had been fighting in Southeast Asia and so on. These were the evil Japanese, the butchers of Nanking, the masters of jungle warfare, an enemy infamous for atrocities. And American troops would confront this terrifying enemy in the strange alien environment of steamy jungles all across the South Pacific. I want to read you a description of that terrain in the Solomons. The jungle of the Solomons is the type known as rainforest. Indigenous to the larger islands of that general area of the Pacific, notably New Guinea and the Bismarck Archipelago, it is characterized by giant hardwoods which tower well over 100 feet into the sky, with bowls six and eight feet in diameter flared out at the base by great buttress of buttress roots. Among and beneath the trees thrives a fantastic tangle of vines, creepers, ferns, and brush, impenetrable even to the eye for more than a few feet. Exotic birds inhabit its upper regions. The insect world permeates the whole in extraordinary sizes and varieties. Ants whose bite feels like a live cigarette against the flesh, improbable spiders, wasps three inches long, scorpions and centipedes, the animal kingdom is less numerous, represented by species of rats, some distant relatives of the possum, lizards ranging in length from three inches to three feet, a few snakes, mostly of the constrictor type, and some voracious leeches 
peculiar in that they live in trees and drop onto the unwary passerby from above. No air stirs here, and the hot humidity is beyond the imagining of anyone who has not lived in it. Rot lies everywhere just underneath the exotic lushness. The ground is porous with decaying vegetation, emitting a sour, unpleasant odor. Substantial-looking trees, rotten to the core, likely to topple over when leaned against, and great forest giants crash down unpredictably in every windstorm. Freshly killed flesh begins to decompose in a few hours. Dampness, thick and heavy, is everywhere, result of the rains which give the forest its name. Unbelievably torrential in season, never ceasing to altogether for more than a few days at a time. Mosquitoes, bears of malaria and a dozen lesser-known fevers, inhabit the broad, deep swamps, which are drained inadequately by sluggish rivers, where dwell giant crocodiles, the most deadly creature of this particular region. This dramatic description of the conditions um, understates the case for, for the Americans as well as the Japanese. These conditions were unprecedented. To fight in this, this is a theme we're going to return to uh, on a number of occasions as we talk about the war in the Pacific because we want to talk about why the war in the Pacific seems different. It's almost, it is not only a geographically different war from uh, an American point of view, but the war in the Pacific is fought in a different way than the war in Europe would be fought. Um, in, uh, one historian has called it a war without rules as opposed to a war fought in Europe with rules. And part of the reason one suspects there is a very, for this, has to do with the, the nature of the terrain, this absolutely alien, different, exotic, and I don't mean exotic, interesting, but exotic, threatening, terrifying in many ways, environment, contributed to it. That and the fact that so many of these conflicts in these, south, these islands in the South Pacific took place literally away from civilization. This is not a sort of culturally value-laden uh, uh, value sort of uh, observation, but we're talking about islands where there were very few, maybe a few scattered villages, no towns, no cities, very little in the way of roads, so that somehow away from civilization, away from anything that the Japanese would recognize as civilization, away from anything that the Americans would recognize, put onto an island where you were simply there with your enemy, created, helped to create an environment in which this desperate sort of struggle would take place. Some of the most ferocious fighting in the entire Second World War would take place on Guadalcanal. Constant shelling from ships which ran down what was called the slot, the strip of, of, of water between uh, the islands. Um, from aircraft that flew above, from mortars, from snipers, and so on. The objective of the 1st Marine Division was to seize the airstrip and hold it. The airstrip was the key. In the attempt to take that airstrip and then to manage it, the American troops would come into conflict with uh, Japanese troops, as we saw for the first time, and their experience was unforgettable. The enemy, if one reads through, there was a very popular book that was published during the war called Guadalcanal Diary. Uh, published after the battle, obviously, before the war was over, 
Um, what's striking about it is, as one reads through the, the discussions between these young Marines as they prepare to go into battle with the Japanese, is that they're already primed. They're already primed for a desperate struggle, uh, already thinking that this is, this is an, an enemy that will give no quarter. Uh, they, I think, had not so much had been a victim of American propaganda about this, but a general worldwide sense of the atrocities of the Japanese that we've talked about that had been covered by the worldwide media in uh, China, the rape of Nanking and so on. And they were, they were ready, they thought, to deal with the Japanese. But encountering snipers hidden in the jungle, encountering the usual sorts of combat, mortar fire, artillery fire, fire heavy uh, uh, artillery assaults on this time, naval gunfire. These things were terrifying and horrible, but it was another aspect of the way the Japanese fought. It wasn't just snipers, but we would encounter there the fanatical suicide charges of Japanese troops, the bonsai charges. And for this, it made an enormous impression on those Marines uh, who were present. And I would like to read you an account of one. The battle, this is a, a battle for Bloody Ridge, which was uh, key to defending the airstrip. There's some proper names here. Don't worry about them. It's the impression of this conflict that I think one wants to come away with. Edson's raiders, his troops, American troops, were well placed in their foxholes with machine gun posts covering the ridge on September 12th when the first wave of Kabaguchi's troops came screaming out of the jungle in front of them just after 9 p.m. In an attack that was timed to coincide with the arrival of supporting fire from the destroyers on the sound. It was a combined sea and land attack with Japanese naval units standing off the coast and lobbing shells directly over the ridge and into the jungle beyond in the general direction of Colonel Edson's outfit. This was written by William McKinnon. Uh, another American soldier who was there. From his battalion's position covering the river flank of the airfield, he saw the opening night's battle for what came to be called Bloody Ridge. The Marines holding the front line knew that with the Japanese withdrawal into the jungle at dawn, the night attack had, quote, been nothing but a prelude. They had made only a limited counterattack, which merely flushed a few snipers out of the trees. As the sun went down that evening, the stirrings of new activity could be heard over the chorus of jungle insects and the screech of cockatoos. Ordered to move forward because the situation up front was threatening, McKinnon advanced toward the ridge. His outfit, which had had no sleep for nearly two days, stumbled, groping their way forward to a new position in the darkness. The crunch of mortar shells heralded the beginning of that night's assault. Suddenly, the jungle came alive with Japanese yelling obscenities and bonsais and hurling firecrackers. This was a special brand of terrorism, as the colonel described it. The sky and the jungle were blazing with fireworks and a hellish bedlam of howls. Firecrackers, a cheap imitation of machine guns, exploded in front of, in and behind their position. Parachute flares that burned brightly for an instant bobbed along, then went out, lighted the lighted the scene intermittently. From the jungle below came the rhythmic accompaniment of the slapping of gun butts and the chant, U.S. Marines be dead tomorrow, U.S. Marines be dead tomorrow. 
The chanting became a mad religious rite, which heralded a series of frenzied bonsai charges through the pouring rain as the darkness was broken by the flashes of gunfire and the eerie green glare of the Japanese flares. For a time, Edson's battalion holding out on the top of Bloody Ridge was cut off until McKinnon's men drove back assaults with machine guns. When one wave was mowed down, and I mean mowed down, another one followed it into death. These, this sort of, this sort of behavior in combat, the chanting in the darkness of the jungle, followed by these bonsai charges across the terrain where their enemies would just be mowed down. The Japanese soldiers didn't seem to have any real hope of actually overwhelming the American position left the Marines staggered, just completely bewildered and utterly convinced that they were fighting an enemy of such fanaticism that they weren't quite human, that there was no explanation for this sort of thing, that uh, the attack on the airfield, which would come another attack on the airstrip the next day after the the little scene we've just described, led once again to... uh, in the, the following morning, literally, of the American troops going out and finding Japanese bodies stacked up where they had fallen during the course of the evening. It didn't seem to some of the Marines as if the point was to actually, for the Japanese, was actually to take the airstrip at this point, but rather uh, it was the attack itself that seemed to be of importance. For American troops, it was to be the beginning of the long, agonizing encounter with the Japanese, the beginning of this epic struggle between American forces in the Pacific and the Japanese. Not only on land was Guadalcanal important. There were a number of naval battles that took place uh, off the coast. Savo Island in August, uh, which was a Japanese victory. The Battle of uh, the... Central Solomon's Cape Esperance in October fought at night. The Japanese Navy was very adept at at nighttime operations, uh, had really pioneered them. The naval battle of Guadalcanal itself, November 13th, November 15th, and a number of others. So many ships were sunk in the close waterways off Guadalcanal that the area was dubbed Iron Bottom Sound. Finally, in February... Unable to dislodge the Americans or to retake the airfield, the Japanese effected a very skillful evacuation of the island, and by February 9, Guadalcanal was entirely in American hands. This conflict, and actually taking these two conflicts together, the battle at Midway and this epic struggle at Guadalcanal, mark a major turning point in the Second World War in the Pacific. The victory over the Japanese on Guadalcanal was the first land defeat for Japan in the war uh, and the first serious defeat of the Japanese army. It marks the beginning of certainly not so much a Japanese withdrawal. Their position is still very strong in the Pacific and they would fight to defend it tenaciously over the next months and years. But just as Midway marked the beginning of a shift in momentum, of initiative to the United States, so too did Guadalcanal. This then was not, as Churchill said about the situation in 
in Europe. One could also say about the South Pacific, this wasn't the beginning of the end, but perhaps the end of the beginning. Lecture 15, The War in North Africa. The year 1942 and the beginning of 1943 mark, as we've seen, in the Pacific, a major turning point in the war. We've talked about the German halt before Moscow. I'd like to turn our attention in this, our 15th lecture, to the war in North Africa. It is a complicated, uh, and I think for for Americans in particular, um, particularly puzzling theater of operations to to understand, especially from 1940 down to Operation Torch in 1942 when the United States enters the war, because of the back and forth uh, nature of the war between the Italians first, Germans, and then uh, the British. In this lecture, what I would like to do is to talk about Axis strategy. German and Italian strategy in North Africa, what the Mediterranean theater meant to Mussolini, to Hitler, uh, to pose the question that is often raised uh, when one analyzes German policy during the war is, was the Mediterranean theater an opportunity, the Middle East, an opportunity lost for the Germans, a strategic opportunity that, that Hitler did not fully appreciate? We want to examine, too, the British view of the Middle East and the centrality of the a Mediterranean strategy for Churchill and the British High Command, the conflicts that this brought the British into with the United States, their new allies in 1942, and the implications of Operation Torch and our involvement, the Western Allies' involvement in the Mediterranean. Hitler's original strategy after the fall of France had been to bring pressure on Britain from a number of different angles. He had hoped that he would be able to lure Franco-Spain, Vichy France, and Italy into a firm alliance which could then put pressure on the British in the Mediterranean. Hitler himself did not want to commit significant resources in the Mediterranean. He never thought it was a terribly important theater for Germany. For him, as we've seen, the Soviet Union was the major target, and anything that distracted him from that was, was a mistake. But he hoped that some combination of the Spanish, the Vichy French, the Italians would be able to put pressure on British colonial possessions, the British position in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean. He certainly tried to to craft some sort of workable strategic alliance with these Mediterranean powers, but without success. Franco was a great source of frustration to Hitler. The, the Nazis had supported Franco during the Spanish Civil War. Franco certainly talked the game of, of solidarity with Mussolini and with Hitler. But Hitler made a trip to the Spanish frontier to negotiate with Franco in 1940. And as Hitler would later say, uh, it was like chewing rocks to, to, deal with, uh, to deal with Franco. Franco would agree with everything in principle, but then raise so many practical objections uh, that Hitler was completely frustrated. Franco, for example, wanted 
German support for the seizure of Gibraltar. He wanted French colonies in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, and French West Africa. Hitler was completely unwilling to enter into this because this would run him afoul of the French, whose support he also wanted with Pétain and so on. Hitler was reluctant to agree to Spanish designs on French colonies, and the negotiations ended without result. Hitler still hoped to, for some sort of cooperation from the French, some sort of German-Vichy alliance. But the French were not, at this point, prepared for any sort of uh, genuine military alliance with Germany. Mussolini certainly was, but he was surprisingly uncooperative when it came to the details and had the unpleasant habit of springing surprises on his his, uh, alliance partner, something that Hitler reciprocated uh, with far greater implications. But this, the the Axis, the Pact of Steel, the Mussolini-Hitler alliance was, this was largely a public relations uh, relationship rather than a strong well-crafted military alliance. Um, Indeed, Mussolini would ultimately draw Hitler into the Mediterranean, but not to achieve German objectives, but rather to help Mussolini achieve his in the area. In the end, the Germans committed far more energy in Africa than Hitler ever anticipated, but it still would fall short of strategic uh, decisiveness. Italy's African policy uh, deserves a certain amount of attention here. Mussolini was determined in 1940 to take advantage of what he perceived to be British weakness. He believed, as did uh, Hitler, that Britain was finished. So he decided that what he wanted to do was to conquer both Egypt and Greece. We've talked about the implications of his invasion of Greece. Um, His Egyptian campaign was launched in 1940. Mussolini was enthusiastic about it, tried to drum up support domestically for it. His military high command was not at all enthusiastic about going to war in 1940 against Great Britain. And the British, although the the Italians were talking about uh, invasion, the British caught the Italians by surprise in December of 1940. And disaster would follow disaster. The British took 40,000 prisoners in one operation in December. In January and another, they took 45,000 Italian prisoners. Later in the month, they encircled Tobruk, an important port city, and another 30,000 Italians surrendered. 20,000 more followed uh, in February. Over 130,000 Italians surrendered, while Great Britain suffered fewer than 2,000 casualties in the course of 1940 and into 1941 in their operations against the Italians. This is what prompted uh, that, that famous quote that we've, we've already mentioned before of Anthony Eden's about never has so much been surrendered by so many to so few. At this juncture, with the British on the offensive against the Italians, what had suppo- was supposed to be an Italian operation to seize the initiative in the Mediterranean, of course, backfires. The British now, unable to move anywhere else, go on to the offensive themselves, and Hitler now feels that it compelled to draw, uh, to, to, to enter the fray. By the end of May 1941, Britain controlled virtually all of Italian East Africa while reconquering uh, French and British Somaliland. At this point, Hitler decided to intervene. He dispatched Erwin Rommel in February of 1940, 
One, uh, to save the situation, in 42 rather, to save the situation. He was reluctant to throw significant resources into North Africa, but the Italian fiasco had brought him had had to be brought under control. Rommel was sent to Libya in s- charge of a small armored force. It was actually one armored division and one mechanized division. And that force, which was called the Africa Corps, would dramatically change the complexion of the North African campaign. Rommel had barely arrived. All his troops weren't even yet in place when he lashed out at the British, forcing them all the way back into Egypt actually capturing the British General O'Connor. He was unable to dislodge the British from Tobruk, whose port he needed for supplies, and so by late May, the offensive had ground to a halt. A deadlock now existed along the uh, Egyptian frontier, and there was a pause in the hostilities. But even as the hostilities slowed along that front, the war would spread across the Middle East like a desert sandstorm. In Iraq, a pro-German coup led to British intervention in April of 1941. The British sent troops, forced the new pro-German Rashid Ali to flee to Iran, and restored a friendly pro-British government in Baghdad. Britain also was concerned that the Germans might land troops in Syria, And so British and free French troops, troops loyal not to Vichy but to the uh, government of Charles de Gaulle in London, moved into Syria in June where they fought against stiff resistance from French troops loyal to Vichy. By the end of the month, all of the eastern Mediterranean was in British hands, but Rommel, with his understaffed and under-equipped Africa Corps, continued to be a serious concern. The dilemma for German strategy uh, was that for Hitler, the Mediterranean had always been, it was intended to be a sideshow. The main preparations being made militarily were for the invasion of the Soviet Union. He was not interested in North Africa or in the Mediterranean. This, This is where I think one sees in Hitler the his limitations. One always thinks about Hitler being this sort of megalomaniac determined to dominate the world, constantly seeking ways to expand. His policies were certainly very radical, and the new order that he hoped to achieve in Europe was certainly very radical. But in the way he deals with the Mediterranean, I think one sees in Hitler a traditional European, and particularly German, statesman. He simply, I think, never fully appreciated the strategic implications of the Middle East, and was very reluctant to to seize any sort of to seize the opportunities presented to him. One of the debates raised frequently by German generals after the war, thinking back about mistakes from the war, was to pose the question: Could Germany have prevailed if Hitler had been willing to devote the necessary forces to North Africa, seize the Suez Canal, for example, and take the Middle Eastern oil fields? Part of the whole last part of the war, Germany would be desperate to find sources of oil to secure sources of oil. Um, this would have cut the British off from their links to the empire, made the, the linkages between the war in Asia and Europe tenuous at best for the British. And so uh, he, these were real possible opportunities. However, while it is quite true that Hitler's perspective 
um, his vision was continental and European rather than thinking in larger global terms or even in, in, even in this theater of the Mediterranean close to Europe. There were other problems, I think, that would have made it extremely difficult for Germany to have, to have asserted itself in the Middle East. One was the very real problem of logistics. It's doubtful whether the, the logistical problems there would make it doubtful whether any sort of German strategy in the Middle East would have been successful. Tripoli, the only major access port in North Africa, um, was 1,300 miles from Alexandria in Egypt. 1,300 miles, over twice the distance from the pre-war Polish border to Moscow. So we're talking an enormous, an enormous distance. Tripoli also had a limited capacity as a port. It couldn't have supported a major effort. Other ports to the east were also too small, and coastal shipping for both the Italians and Germans was in short supply. In addition, if, as one visualizes this combat across North Africa, you know, there aren't huge flanking movements. This is a war of movement in a very narrow band. There was a single road that ran along the coast that moved from west to east. There was the Qatar Depression, which limited uh, much of the uh, movement to this band, uh, territorial band along close to the coast. So what you have is uh, it, was, it was very, very difficult to move supplies without those supplies being uh, coming under attack. Finally, British naval and air forces operating from Malta continued to harass any sort of supply efforts coming uh, from, from Italy. The problems of supply so hampered the armies, uh, both Axis armies and Allied armies in 4041, that they operated essentially at almost as expeditionary forces. It made this problem of supply, of logistics, made it extremely difficult to sustain operations so that much of the fighting in this theater tended to be back and forth with the same territory between port cities being taken by the one side, then taken by another, um, back and forth as they struggled with the problems of water, oil, spare parts, and ammunition, so that it was very difficult to sustain the enormous operations that one one saw elsewhere. In 1941-42, then, there would be a major swing of fortune in the Middle East. It would be the British ability to resupply their forces in Egypt that ultimately would turn the tide in North Africa in the, coast, in the course of 1942. Rommel had initiated a new round of fighting in May of 1942 when he unleashed a new offensive. It followed the usual pattern until late in the month when German troops took Tobruk, the important port city, inflicting terrible casualties on the British. In the process, they captured vast quantities of fuel, food, and drinking water. They also took 35,000 British prisoners. It was a tremendous victory for, for Rommel. He renewed the offensive again, and by late June, the Africa Corps had thrust deeply into Egypt. By June 30th, German troops had reached El Alamein, only 60 miles west of Alexandria. Victory at this point seemed within Rommel's grasp, and Hitler rewarded him by promoting him to the position of field marshal. The first battle of El Alamein, the gateway to Alexandria, in July ended with the British holding firm but unable to push the Germans back 
And so the old pattern returned. Supplies being the key, uh, what the Germans simply couldn't sustain the offensive. They couldn't continue to push. The British at this point began to, uh, to receive supplies. Supplies began to pour into Egypt, including American Sherman tanks, which began to arrive in large number for the British forces. Um, the RAF strengthened its forces, and Churchill decided to shake up his staff after this, uh, the embarrassments of the previous month. In mid-August, he relieved his commander in uh, North Africa and replaced him with General Harold Alexander, who had become a major figure for British, the British military during the rest of the course of the war. He was to command the entire theater. And another equally important, in fact, probably more important appointment that was made at this time was that General Bernard Montgomery was chosen to lead the British Eighth Army. Montgomery was the son of an Anglican bishop. Militarily, he was a meticulous planner and a cautious campaigner. He would be the uh, master of the so-called set piece, never wanting to move until he had all of his ducks in a row. Uh, he was tremendously popular with his troops. The Americans always thought that he drug his feet, was too slow, didn't seize the opportunities uh, that were presented to him. But for British troops, Monty was seen as a great hero because he seemed to care about them. He didn't move until he had overwhelming superiority and was virtually assured of success. He was flamboyant, um, certainly... Uh, the, the, the campaign in North Africa would see the emergence of two of the most flamboyant personalities and titanic egos of the Second World War. Leaving Rommel aside, it would be the emergence of, of General Patton for the United States and, of course, Montgomery uh, for the British. Montgomery attacked with overwhelming force in October of 1942 in the Second Battle of El Alamein on October 23, 1942, when he did, his forces outnumbered Rommel's 230,000 to 80,000. Armor, 1,500 British tanks, many of them American, to 500 German tanks. Air superiority and the role of ultra, the intelligence intercepts, so that the British were able to uh, determine when supplies were coming across from, from Italy, uh, the German convoys were attacked in the, in, the, uh, in the Mediterranean, and Montgomery was able to, to anticipate Rommel's moves. In the Second Battle of El Alamein in October of 1942, a battle that would mark uh, an important turning point, the British suffered terrible casualties, losing four times the number of tanks as the Germans, but Rommel couldn't take even these losses. He ref- Hitler... Meanwhile, refused significant reinforcements. Rommel was constantly pressing, we need help, we need help, we need help. And there was very little help coming from Germany at this time, in part because the Germans, because of German involvement in the Soviet Union. By November, Rommel was in retreat. That retreat proved to be a masterpiece and combined with Montgomery's caution allowed the Germans to escape back into Libya. Um, so the question now was, is, was this going to be the beginning? Was this really a turning point? Were the British now going to take the initiative and really drive the Germans out of North Africa? What, the Americans were now in the war. What was our role to be? 
uh, and how would the Germans respond? The American and British military, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about D-Day, the British and the American military had begun common staff talks, planning. Roosevelt and Churchill were in agreement from the very outset, even before the American entry into the war. Should we come into the war, we both agreed that it would be a Europe-first strategy. Germany was the greater threat. But having said this, there were significant differences between the American and the British assessment of the immediate strategic priorities. American leaders, particularly General Marshall and Secretary of War Stimson, shared the Russian view, which was that a second front was needed in Northern Europe and needed immediately. There was terrific fear in the Allied camp that the Russians were going to collapse with a new German offensive again in the spring of 1942. Marshall, Stimson, most of the American commanders involved in in common staff talks with the British advocated a cross-channel invasion as soon as possible, at best in 1942, at worst in the following year. The British, on the other hand, took a far more cautious approach. At the Arcadia Conference in December of 1941, the first wartime meeting uh, between Churchill and Roosevelt, um, Churchill had broached the possibility of an Allied landing in French North Africa. He was putting forward, putting on the table with the Americans, a Mediterranean strategy that would send Allied troops into Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. They would then press eastward toward Libya, catching the Germans in a vice, Montgomery and his troops moving from the east, uh, the Americans and British force moving from the west. Following the Arcadia Conference, the American military grew restive about Churchill's proposals. Marshall, Stimson, and General Dwight Eisenhower, chief of the War Department's Operation Division, all agreed that a North African operation would divert strength away from a buildup in England that was necessary for the cross-channel invasion. The Americans developed an alternative plan in March of 1942, Operation Roundup. The Allies, the Americans argued, should begin an immediate buildup of forces in Great Britain for a cross-channel invasion no later than the spring of 1943. In the meantime, they contended a smaller landing in France could be made during the course of 1942, relieving some of the pressure on the Soviet Union. This would make Stalin happy. And this operation, this more modest cross-channel invasion to come in 42, was to be codenamed Operation Sledgehammer. Marshall was dispatched to London to convince the British that this was the proper course of action. And there he encountered terrific resistance. The British... Army Chief of Staff, Alan Brooke, who had been at Dunkirk, the veteran of the, the First War, began a policy, and one sees this now in these inter-allied relations. The British would always agree, yes, absolutely, we must have the cross-channel invasion. Of course, that's what we're pointing toward. The cross-channel invasion, this is, is the big show. So they would agree in principle. But then say, well, but let's, let's evaluate the situation. What's available to us as we, as, we look, as we look at the situation now? Brooke would say, well, we have, there's a shortage of troops. This was undoubtedly the case at this point. The American army was not mobilized for a big cross-channel invasion at this point. There was a shortage of equipment, particularly landing craft. This would hurt the Germans. Now, it would, Brooke argued, we, we have to be ready to do this as well. He never 
actually made it crystal, well, he never made it explicit, but it was crystal clear that there was also a great deal of skepticism among the British high command about the battle worthiness of American troops that the Americans were green. There was a lot of enthusiasm coming from Marshall and the American leadership about uh, closing with the Germans. But the British had had a lot of experience of dealing with the Germans, and none of their encounters had been very pleasant. All the way through, is a, also I think this is another point that we will certainly talk to as we talk about the background to Operation Overlord and D-Day. Having suffered such colossal casualties in the First War, the British commanders, all of whom were the most important ones, had been, had been veterans of the First War, did not want to see another bloodbath on that scale. Also, the idea of launching an invasion prematurely, uh, which might lead to failure. The British could not afford another failure at this point. Churchill felt that very, very keenly. The Americans might be full of, of vim and vigor about this, just couldn't chomping at the bit to get into the fray. But for Britain... An, another defeat could not be tolerated. In August of 1942, the Allies would launch the Dieppe raid on the coast, uh, across Channel, a, a small raid, largely with Canadian troops with 6,000 casualties. It was a disaster. And so the British once again could say, well, we're just not, we're, we, we don't have this down yet. We're not ready. Brooke had no trouble convincing Churchill, who then urged Roosevelt to adopt, to adopt the original plan for invasion of French North Africa. Roosevelt was swayed. Marshall was furious by this. Uh, the British strategy seemed to smack of British colonialism, defending the empire. This was something that didn't play very well in the United States. But Roosevelt abandoned Operation Sledgehammer and insisted on action nonetheless in 1942 and the only reasonable place for that action was in French North Africa. The result was Operation Torch. It would be the first Allied joint venture. The man chosen to lead Operation Torch was Dwight Eisenhower. He was a staff officer par excellence. He had served twice as assistant to MacArthur. His real s skills were in planning and organization and logistics. That recommended him, certainly, uh, to the War Plans Division, where he had served since 1941. But it was as much as, as important as those skills were. I think it was as much his personal and political skills that particularly recommended him to Roosevelt and others for this Allied command. He was a team player, a man capable of, of subordinating his own ego to the situation, he was adept at cooperation, and he possessed, by virtually everybody's uh, description, great personal magnetism. Montgomery, who had more than his share of run-ins with Eisenhower over the course of the next few years, would describe him in this way. He said, the power, the power that Ike had, quote, the power of drawing the hearts of men toward him as a magnet attracts bits of metal. He merely has to smile at you, and you trust him at once, close quote. The plan was for Allied landings at Casablanca in Morocco, Oran and Algiers in Algeria, then to sweep eastward toward Tunisia. By landing so far to the west, the Allies were out of German airspace, the British argued, but it would mean a very long campaign. The key 
to this was how the French would respond. There were 200,000 French troops in Morocco and Algeria, presumably loyal to the Vichy regime. The French army and navy were loyal to Vichy. They harbored strong anti-British feelings as a result of the actions we've described. And so it was decided that it would be best if the United States, rather than the British, led this operation. There was also a problem with General de Gaulle. How would one deal with him? There was a good deal of anti-de Gaulle sentiment in the French military. They saw him as someone who would who who abandon ship. Um, he was hardly popular with the French military. The Allies didn't completely trust him either. They considered him to have little support in metropolitan France or in French North Africa. And there were fear, we feared leaks from de Gaulle's headquarters. Therefore, the Allies passed over de Gaulle and turned to General Henri Giraud, whom they smuggled out of southern France to be the new hand-picked leader of free France. The Allies may have recognized Giraud, but this infuriated de Gaulle. A compromise was finally worked out between the two of them. Uh, the, 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 the Machiavellian details of this defy description. Uh, needless to say, that within a matter of months, de Gaulle had outmaneuvered his opponent on every, at every turn and would emerge in full control of the committee that would ultimately dominate French policy in North Africa. The German response to Torch was to pour troops in uh, to, to Tunisia. I might say the French did resist the, the invasion. There were 7,000 French casualties in the Allied invasion of French North Africa. The Allies, having made a successful landing in November, found themselves bogged down in Tunisia. There was inter-Allied friction. Uh, Eisenhower was certainly under a great deal of pressure. The American troops did not perform with great distinction. In fact, in the first encounter with the Germans at the Kazarine Pass, the Americans had virtually collapsed, a fiasco. There began to be talk about replacing Eisenhower with General Alexander, who was now, in fact, placed in charge of field operations. But Eisenhower remained in position, named a new commander for the United States Army's Second Corps, General George Patton, and restored morale and discipline within the American forces. By March of 1943, Great Britain and the United States had amassed great strength and began the final push toward victory. Rommel was unable to get resupplied. Hitler refused to the very end to see the potential of the Africa Corps and too late, too late, began to try to reinforce it. Only after the Allies had already established a dominant position did Hitler attempt to reverse the situation. The Germans had failed to hold North Africa. Operation Torch had succeeded. But for the American point of view, and we'll close with this, with the American, from the American point of view, it wasn't the worst-case scenario that they feared. It was the best-case scenario. Because the very success of Operation Torch meant that there would be not only no cross-channel invasion in 1942, but also, they feared, none in 1943 either.
Lecture 16, War in the Mediterranean, The Invasions of Sicily and Italy. In the spring of 1943, the Allies had emerged victorious from major campaigns in the South Pacific and in North Africa. They now confronted strategic options. And in the European theater, this was largely an option between pressing for a cross-channel invasion at some point in 1943 or some sort of alternative. The American position was for a cross-channel invasion as soon as possible, a position vigorously reinforced by Stalin, who continued to demand that the second front, the second front, the second front, North Africa, in Stalin's view, did not constitute the second front. The other option was an invasion of Sicily and Italy. That position was vehemently put forward by the British, and it is that option that we are going to be taking up in this, our 16th lecture. We'll be examining the Allied invasions of Sicily and Italy, the campaign in Italy, the strategic debates between the Allies over uh, the proper course of action in dealing with the Germans in Italy, the extent to which Italy was responsible for a delay in the cross-channel invasion, and just exactly what the implications of this enormous operation would be. In many respects, a, an invasion across the coast to Sicily from North Africa was a logical extension of the victory over German and Italian troops in North Africa. Indeed, the American commanders, as we've seen, had been deeply concerned from the very outset not about the defeat, a defeat in North Africa, but just the opposite. What would be the implications of Allied success in North Africa? What if, if Operation Torch were launched and were successful, then Marshall, Eisenhower, and other American commanders feared the United States would be drawn irrevocably into a Mediterranean strategy for which they had very little political enthusiasm, as it might be seen as, as supporting British colonialism, or military uh, enthusiasm, since the view was an invasion of North Africa, if it's successful, will mean a postponement of the cross-channel invasion. And indeed, with the defeat of Rommel, the Africa Corps, the Germans in North Africa, this is precisely the quandary in which the Allies found themselves. By a success in North Africa, in which came only in the spring of 1940, in January, February 1943, and into the spring, a cross-channel invasion was impossible in that year. Now then, the option was to cross into Sicily. Operation Husky then was, was decided upon, set for July of 1943, Dwight Eisenhower was named commander-in-chief, but as in North Africa, the British General Alexander was to be the actual field commander. In Sicily, the Allies found Italian resistance to be weak. Mass surrender was commonplace. The Italians clearly had lost their stomach for the war. One of the arguments that Churchill had put forward about the importance of, a, of an invasion of Sicily and of Italy would be that it might topple Mussolini, pull the Italians out of the war. Who knows? Maybe the Italians would switch sides. 
uh, that this would begin the unraveling of the Third Reich's position on the continent. There was great pressure from the very beginning of the operation in Sicily on Mussolini. Italian troops clearly were not going to fight to the, to the finish for the Duce or for this misguided policy of his, of his expansion in North Africa, which had drawn him into this conflict. But gr- formidable resistance was provided by the Germans. General Kesselring had been dispatched to lead uh, p- mobile panzer units in Sicily, and Kesselring would bedevil the Allies both in Sicily and even more so in Italy. General Montgomery, according to the plan, was to race up the eastern coast of Sicily and seize Messina, but Kesselring interposed. His troops slowed Montgomery, and the American General Patton, meeting weak resistance, pushed straight across the island. He took Palermo on July 22nd, and then what was often depicted as a race between Patton and Montgomery developed, both trying to reach Messina. Patton would become, as a result of his leadership, beginning in North Africa, but certainly in Sicily, would become a hero in the United States, given the nickname Old Blood and Guts, um, especially when he reached Messina shortly before the British. Patton's moment of glory was to be short-lived, however. Uh, It would be shortly after this that the infamous slapping incident where Patton, uh, incidents, I should say, two instances where Patton uh, in touring a uh, military hospital, slapped a, uh, a soldier, an American soldier, whom he felt was malingering, suffering from shell shock, uh, repeated this again shortly thereafter. This was covered by the press, uh, and Patton would be removed from command, an, an irony which the Germans simply never quite uh, understood. The consequences of the Allied victory in Sicily were considerable. First of all, it drew the United States and Great Britain deeper and deeper into Churchill's Mediterranean strategy. Indeed, Churchill now renewed his emphasis on the so-called soft underbelly of Europe, arguing now that having taken Sicily, that the next obvious step, the logic, the momentum of military operations would be to jump across to the toe of the boot and for an invasion of Italy proper. This would then be supplemented by support for the partisans in Yugoslavia, who were causing the Germans trouble across the Adriatic. It might even be possible to cajole the Turks into joining the anti-Hitler alliance. In in fact, what what the Americans saw with great dismay was the emergence once again of a full-blown Mediterranean strategy to which they were supposed to uh, lend their support. The Americans were skeptical about this emphasis as they had been from the beginning, but they had no real alternative plans. It was also quite clear by this point that there was no, what was the alternative? The alternative did one now move troops back to Britain to begin the the build-up for the cross-channel invasion or pursue the military logic of the situation? We chose the latter. The collapse of resistance in Sicily and the prospect of an imminent Allied invasion did indeed lead to Benito Mussolini's fall from power uh, on July 24th. King Victor Emmanuel III removed him as premier and replaced him with Marshal Badoglio, an Italian military commander who was certainly unenthusiastic about continuing uh, the war. Mussolini 
was rescued by German commandos and spirited away uh, and ultimately set up by the Germans to run a puppet state, a sort of fascist state in the north to continue resistance against against the Allies. But this was a, a resistance that had German support and very little Italian support. Negotiations with Badoglio were underway. Badoglio wanted, in fact, pledged that Italy would switch sides, not only withdraw from the alliance with Germany, but actually switch sides, support the Allied war effort. However, the Allies continued to cling to the notion of unconditional surrender. This was a policy that was very dear to President Roosevelt. He had announced it at the Casablanca Conference at the beginning of the year. Um, and this caused some problems. What did unconditional surrender mean? That the, that the monarchy would go? Exactly what did it mean? What were its implications for Italy? Hitler, meanwhile, sent troops into northern Italy in the area around Rome. And by September 3rd, when an agreement was reached and Italy was called upon to surrender its Navy, Merchant Marine, and Air Force to the Allies and join the coalition against Hitler, the Germans were firmly entrenched in northern Italy and all the way south of Rome. The invasion of Italy began on September 3rd. It was a three-pronged assault. The British, led by Montgomery, crossed the Straits of Messina onto the toe of the boot, meeting very little uh, resistance. A second British force stormed ashore at Toronto, the Italian naval base, with no meeting no resistance. And at the same time, the Anglo-American Fifth Army under General Mark Clark, the American, landed south of Naples at Salerno. Clark wanted to land north of Naples, but was convinced by the British that this would be problematic since uh, that was too far north, couldn't be supported by Allied aircraft. So troops landed at Salerno. The goal, certainly Mark Clark's hope, was to take Naples within three days. But Kesselring had rushed troops south, and one panzer division was already in place in the mountains overlooking the Salerno beachhead. And the result was a near disaster. The Germans poured down artillery on the small beachhead for some time. The success of the landing was in grave doubt. Ultimately, the situation was saved by air power and naval guns, finally allowing the soldiers on the beach to break out and push in, uh, in inland a bit, breaking the German siege. This landing, I might add, at Salerno didn't do anything to win greater support for the United States and its, its determination for a cross-channel invasion among our, its British allies. The sense was this was a, this was a problematic invasion. It had, they had almost been driven back into the sea. It, for a while, it looked as if the whole invasion at Salerno hung by a thread. So at this point, the two amphibious landings that the allies had attempted against the Germans, one at Dieppe, in 43, and now the Salerno landings didn't give great confidence for the success of um, a cross-channel invasion. Naples was not taken until October 1st. Meanwhile, the British were able to seize Foggia on the eastern side of the peninsula, a major air base, which was now converted to Allied use. That, taking of Foggia, was uh, quite an important uh, achievement. What this did was allow the United States and Britain to move air groups 
from North Africa onto the European continent, into Italy. It would bring the Balkans and southern Germany into range for American B-17s and B-24s. It would begin now, at this time, a, a double pressure on the Germans. Attacks from the RAF and the American 8th Air Force from Britain now to be uh, augmented by attacks from the south. The Germans, finding their position in Sardinia and Corsica in uh, trouble, evacuated those uh, territories in September and early October. Things looked like they might turn out very well for the invasion, but Italy proved anything but a soft underbelly. The Italian terrain was ideal for defensive operations, and Kesselring, the German commander, proved to be an absolute master. The Apennine Mountains extending down the center of the peninsula created a formidable barrier. The numerous rivers were also difficult. The valleys oozed mud, and in the hills and mountains, the men had to deal with raw cold and snow and a lack of cover. Indeed, were forced to depend on mules for supplies, and combat in Italy was uh, frequently hand-to-hand. Anyone who'd been looking at brochures of sunny, pleasant Italy were in for a real shock. The combat in Italy was uh, among the most difficult anywhere in the Second World War. The terrain was difficult, the conditions difficult, and a terrain which certainly did give the great advantage to the German defenders. During the fall and early winter, the Allies slogged slowly northward, but their progress was halted about 100 miles south of Rome, where the Germans had created what they referred to as the Gustav Line. By January 1944, the front had stabilized. The Germans had managed to, to blunt the offensive. And at the end of 1943, Allied command and strategy had been altered. The Allies moving up, this is at this point in the, in the evolution of the campaign in Italy, the Allies really did have, have an option. They could have stopped. There was nothing now at this point. One could talk about the logic, the military logic, or the momentum from North Africa to take them across to Sicily or then to extend the, the assault on to, into Italy itself. But now Mussolini had been toppled. The British had seized the air base at Foggia. We, at, the Allies were in a position to make air attacks on southern Germany and important positions in the east. At this point, it would have been possible, and this argument was certainly made, to simply halt. Why batter away at these German positions, these well-entrenched German positions against this master of the defense in, in General Kesselring? Uh, why not now begin to move uh, more troops and prepare for the cross-channel invasion? And in some sense, this is, this is exactly what happens. There's certainly not a standstill in the Italian campaign, but at the end of 1943, Eisenhower was dispatched to London to become supreme commander of the forces preparing for the invasion of northwestern Europe. General Montgomery would follow as his uh, field commander, and General Alexander, the British general, assumed command in Italy. The Allies certainly had now moved to, to push for the cross-channel invasion, in part because at this time, Stalin 
had reached the, the, the absolute limit of his toleration for this. And at the Tehran conference with Roosevelt and Churchill, Stalin absolutely insisted on a firm commitment from Churchill that Britain was committed to a cross-channel invasion. And Roosevelt swung in this delicate relationship, triangular relationship that these three uh, powerful leaders had. Roosevelt swung his support clearly to Stalin, pushing Churchill, in effect, to declare, yes, we are committed, and we are committed to doing that, this cross-channel invasion, at the, at the earliest possible time, and that would be in the spring and early summer of 1944. Nonetheless, the campaign in Italy would continue as well under General Alexander. In a dramatic attempt to break the deadlock, the Allies launched an amphibious landing at the resort town of Anzio, just 30 miles south of Rome on January 22, 1944. General Clark was expected to move quickly inland, but his forces did not. Fearing quick, a quick German response, just as at Salerno, Clark had, had been, and his commanders had been cautious. Despite intelligence derived from Ultra that made clear that Kesselring couldn't send troops for about a week, Clark's commander on the scene failed to drive inland. And Kesselring shifted forces to prevent further expansion of the beachhead. So that instead of threatening to break communications between Rome and the Gustav Line to cut the Germans off by driving across the peninsula, sealing off the Germans to the south, and then pushing on Rome, the Americans were bogged down again. Once again, an amphibious landing had turned out uh, differently than anticipated. Clark replaced his commanding officer with General Lucian Truscott, but he too was able to effect a breakout from the Anzio uh, position. One of the problems at this point now was that with the, with the main bulk of the American forces south of the Gustav Line, Anzio above it, one possibility now was to drive from the south to link up these forces. Those forces pushing from the south found that the going was particularly difficult, and one place in particular, one log jam, was Monte Cassino. Allied soldiers believed that the Germans were using the old abbey, the ancient abbey at Monte Cassino, as an observation post, calling down uh, artillery fire on their positions. Mark Clark was initially opposed to bombing the ancient structure, but General Alexander insisted, and on February 15, 1944, 200 bombers smashed the abbey. The Germans, as it turned out, had not been using the abbey as an observation post, but they now quickly used the ruins created by the bombing of the abbey to rush troops there. Now they had the observation post and good defensive positions. Uh, the bombing had had the opposite effect uh, as intended. A second air raid, almost 500 bombers against the town, still failed to break German resistance. The bitter fighting around Monte Cassino revealed the full diversity of Allied troops. At this point, we've talked about world war in the sense of the geographical spread of combat from the South Pacific to the Soviet Union to North Africa to, to Europe. But in the, the siege, the attack on Monte Cassino, one really does see now the variety of Allied troops involved. 
there were Indian troops, troops from New Zealand, French troops, and it was be finally Polish troops who would storm the town. And indeed, it was in mid-May of 1944 that Polish troops actually reached the summit in Monte Cassino. In May, French units also broke through the Gustav Line and threatened the whole German position. British troops would ultimately take Cassino, the Poles, the ruins of the old monastery, and five days later, the Americans broke out of Anzio and, at this point, still could have cut off the German retreat from the Gustav Line. It was still possible. But Truscott received an order from General Clark. Instead of driving east to cut off the retreating Germans, he was to turn north to take Rome. Rome was for the taking at this juncture, and it was a, if it wasn't a strategic prize, it was a political prize uh, of considerable import. Truscott reluctantly complied. He didn't want to do this. And Kesselring was now able to extricate his troops, pulling them back once again in an effective fighting retreat. As he pulled back, Kesselring did take, make an important declaration. Rome was declared an open city to prevent its destruction by the Allied air forces. This bombing of Monte Cassino was a very controversial matter, I think, for everybody except those Allied troops who were down below Monte Cassino needing to get by it. I don't think they had very much, many qualms about what happened to the old abbey. Uh, but for everyone else, it, it did become an issue. And so then, and behind this, of course, lurked the even greater question, what does one do about these great cultural monuments of Western civilization? Do you bomb Rome? Paris had not, the center of Paris had certainly been spared. The industrial ring around Paris had been bombed by this point. But now this question of what happens to Rome had, had, had loomed before the Allies. Kesselring made it clear that the Germans would not contest the city. And as a consequence, Rome would be spared. American forces entered Rome on June 4th, 1944, two days before the Normandy landing. The Germans withdrew to yet another prepared position 150 miles to the north, the Gothic line replacing the Gustav line, stretching across the peninsula beyond uh, Livorno and Florence. The soft underbelly, one has the impression we'd still be fighting in Italy had, had the war gone on, that the slow slogging up through this mountainous terrain. And I think for uh, those of you who remember the war or were involved in it directly, the Willie and Joe cartoons of Bill Malden are largely from uh, the Italian campaign. They're marvelous, marvelous cartoons and certainly among the most popular from Stars and Stripes. What were then were the implications of the Italian campaign? Again, it had been a successful campaign, just as North Africa had been. The Germans were in full-fledged retreat. The Allies had been successful. Rome liberated by the summer of 1944. Its detractors would maintain, however, that the Italian operation delayed the cross-channel invasion on which the world waited. Did the Italian campaign delay the cross-channel invasion? I think there are a number of ways that one can approach this question. One is to look, as the British certainly did, at what was required for a successful cross-channel invasion into the teeth of what the Germans were calling Fortress Europe, the heavily fortified defensive positions along the coast of Northern Europe. 
could a major offensive have been launched in 1943? One of the arguments that the British had used, and I think it's, uh, it's certainly a very powerful argument, was that the submarine offensive, the German submarine offensive, was still a major threat in 1943. That the safe convoying of enormous amounts of material and so on into England would have been a difficult task in 1943, whereas by 1944, the submarine threat had largely been removed. In 1943, it is also clear that the Allies did have shortages of shipping. They had shortages in landing craft, equipment, and troops. It wasn't that the landing craft didn't exist, in 1943, they were all the way across the world in the South Pacific being used, and we still needed uh, more. So shortages of equipment, landing craft, shipping, troops. The American army was not yet at uh, full strength. And, as the British argued, uh, the Americans, who were going to be pivotal players in this alliance, obviously had lacked combat experience in 1943 and had gotten that experience in the bitter fighting in Sicily and in Italy. On the other hand, one could make the counter-argument that the Allies, as I just uh, indicated, did have the ships and landing craft, that they were simply in the Pacific, not uh, in the Mediterranean and in Western Europe. Um, It's certainly true that American troops lacked combat experience in 1943. It is also true that German defenses were a great deal stronger in Northern Europe in 1944 than they had been in 1943. There were 49 German divisions in France in 1943, mostly second-line quality troops. They were short of armor. It was a quiet front for the Germans in 1943. In June of 1944, there would be 58 divisions, much more armor, and the coastal defenses had been greatly reinforced, largely under Rommel's instigation. There was a claim made over and over again by Allied air commanders that one of the other key ingredients for the successful successful cross-channel invasion, air superiority, indeed air supremacy, had not been achieved in 1943. Well, that's certainly true. It was a long way from being achieved in 1943. The argument the air commanders make was it could have been established in 1943 by the 8th Air Force in England if the best of those units and support personnel had not been siphoned off to North Africa and then ultimately to Italy as well. I think of these arguments, the greatest threat in 1943 was undoubtedly the submarine, and it's doubtful that the Allies could have established air superiority in the course of 1943. If you'll recall, the it was in the summer of 1943 that the Americans launched the two big daylight raids, uh, the Regensburg-Schweinfurt raid in August of 1943, and then repeated it again in the fall with disastrous consequences. The planes got through, bombed the targets, but they had suffered grievous casualties in those two raids. The German Air Force was still very, very strong in the course of 1943. It would only be at the Tehran Conference which we've indicated, when Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin all met for the first time, that Churchill finally gave in to pressure and committed himself to the cross-channel invasion as being the top priority for 1944. The plan was Operation Overlord, and at Tehran, Roosevelt announced his decision to name Dwight Eisenhower Supreme Commander. This was a surprise, and it was not a popular decision. Both Churchill and Stalin preferred Marshall 
and were surprised at the choice of Eisenhower. Eisenhower had demonstrated certainly those characteristics, those political qualities, those qualities of personality that we've described in North Africa and in his participation in the, in the Operation Husky, but had not yet really demonstrated the ability to take charge of an enormous operation that was going to, to be the centerpiece of all of Allied strategy. Marshall seemed to be the most obvious choice, but Roosevelt said he simply couldn't part with, he couldn't, couldn't imagine life in Washington without Marshall. He needed Marshall close at hand for advice. And so Eisenhower was named. At the end, at the conclusion of the Allied campaign in Italy, the Germans were certainly pushed back. Fort, the, the frontiers of Fortress Europe were shrinking. But the German position in Western Europe was still enormously strong. And even in 1944, the odds for a successful cross-channel invasion were by no means great or obvious in favor of the Allies. It would still be an enormous risk, the implications of which, the stakes of which, uh, cannot be exaggerated. And after turning our attention in the next lecture to events on the Eastern Front, we will return to talk about the planning for that cross-channel invasion.